Hello again, friends. And you are my friends. And welcome back to another edition of 605, the super podcast. The only podcast on Turner time. The mothership. The best wrestling podcast on the planet. The only wrestling podcast that matters. Call somebody. I am your host, the great Brian Last. It's me. The hardest working man in wrestling podcasts. Yeah. Baby, baby. What are you trying to prove? And I am very happy today to welcome a newcomer to the co-host chair. Not a newcomer to wrestling talk, but a newcomer to the 605 Super Podcast. And I'm delighted to have him here. Someone whose work I've admired for a long time. And that is your friend and mine, Mike Sempervivi. And Mike, welcome to the program. I really appreciate you having me on. You don't have to butter me up, though. I understand we've gotten <laughs> to the central states portion of guest getting on this program. And I just I hope to stand up there and do the best I can in, in the memory of Bulldog Bob Brown and Rufus R. Jones. You know, every now and then I'll hear from someone and they'll say, I grew up in Kansas City. I don't understand why you always put down central states wrestling. And it's like, ooh, how do I break it to this person that it's really hard to watch and it's not good? That's when you just, you, you got to look at them and you, you look at them dead in the eye and you, you put their hand on their shoulder and you just kind of rub a little bit. And it's like the wrestling you grew up with is the greatest wrestling in the world. And then just, just turn around and walk away and just leave them right there with that. Well, you know, Mike, this is your debut here on the Super Podcast. And I know a lot of people are aware of who you are and a lot of people listen to you, whether it's on Wrestling Observer Live or the various shows you've done on the WrestlingObserver.com website with Dave and Brian and everyone else. And I'm delighted to have you here today. Why don't we talk a little bit about your background, just for the people who are meeting you for the first time here today. When did you first get into wrestling? What are your earliest memories of wrestling? Oh, God, the earliest memory I have of wrestling is living in Chicago when I would have been three, four, five years old. You know, I couldn't remember a year or anything like that, but we had these sliding doors at the the end of the steps. And I remember kind of peeking through there because I was supposed to be taking a nap or something. And my dad was watching wrestling. And I can't tell you what was happening. I can't tell you what it was, but living in Chicago, it was probably AWA wrestling. And I remember that. That's, <laughs> so, you know, one of my earliest memories of anything. I remember that. And then in 1982, we moved to the Washington, D.C. area. And from there, it was on uh, throughout the 80s with the syndication boom and just being just being a wrestling fan and coming from a, a father who was a wrestling fan, who was a big sports fan. That's what I got into. And he wrestled in high school and college. So I wanted to wrestle and, and I, I very base, you know, like playing, you know, Pop Warner football at the times I'd be doing that. We, we wrestling season was also around there and I, I wrestled and it was just it just was always there for me. And living in between Baltimore and Washington, I was able to get in both sets of channels. And at one point, I moved a little bit further west, so it was kind of a little bit more country. So there was the ability to get in on a clear day stations from Philadelphia and stations from Salisbury and stations from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, that would also be airing wrestling, but have the very important localized promo that I became completely obsessed with. And my father, it just I was heavily influenced by him, and he would listen to a lot of sports talk, which was rare. They didn't have a lot of stations at that time. But they were all news stations, and I always loved the spoken word. So, like, wrestling not only gave me the athletic part of things, and look, wrestling, and these guys used to be football players and wrestlers, and now they're they're doing this pro wrestling thing and the pomp and the circumstance, but then there were the promos, and that's what I think has always gotten me, is I've always been a sucker for radio. I've always loved radio. I've always loved the spoken word, and that, more than anything, 
just has always kept me in wrestling and wrestling's always been there. Anytime anything's been bad in my life, there's always been wrestling's been a, something I could go run and hide in. And when times were tough growing up, that's there was always at least there was wrestling there. And as, as, as cornball as that might sound, I'm not saying it saved my life, but there have been times where it's like, if nothing else, at least I kind of got wrestling. There's always something to hide in. And it's just always been there for me. And it, it's been a, a cruel bitch sometimes when it smacks you across the face. I mean, I do Wrestling Observer Live now. We do with deal with the, the headlines of the day, which, you know, is, is a lot of programming that I don't think I'd watch if I wasn't paid for it. But it's like, you know, it's still something familiar about it. And I, I it's always going to be there for me. I Even if it's not something I watch of modern times, I have enough library where there will never be a time in my life where wrestling's not there. I just, I can never see that happening. But, you know, it just, it was always my thing. And I always wanted to be a part of it. And I had a chance to like go to Bone Breakers and see that place when it was open in Baltimore Training School and Axel Rotten and Maryland Championship Wrestling and having chances to kind of like, you know, hang out on, on the fringes of that sort of stuff. But then I moved away. You know, this isn't something I'll, I'm never actually going to be a wrestler. What am I really ever going to do? And I just kind of I, I went away from it. And in a 2001, I believe it was Wade Keller had just sent out an open call and I wasn't real familiar with being online. I was not a hardcore newsletter reader from back in the day, you know, after magazines. Yes. The, the wrestling radio shows on WCBM or KYW, not KYW, WIP or WFAN. Yes. But I was never a newsletter reader, but Wade Keller was just sent out a call for who wants to cover TNA, this new group, <laughs> total nonstop action. They're doing weekly pay-per-views and I'll be one of those idiots that thought, well, this is kind of a cool concept. I've always been fascinated by pay-per-view and I would buy all the boxing and wrestling pay-per-views. So it's like, well, this is an interesting concept. I can legitimately convince myself to spend nine ninety five on this. And I started writing reviews very awfully for the pro wrestling torch in 2002 <laughs> as just something to do and something to keep me kind of in stroke with wrestling because I had kind of fallen away from WWE and I always liked Jeff Jarrett and I was always looking for something new and it's like, well, I'll do this. And then that at some point he had all of his TV writers. He had this idea to come up with something called the lounge, which it was going to be just every day. Somebody that writes and reviews one of the TV shows can write a column about whatever they want to talk about, the news of the day or their opinion or commentary or, or whatever they wanted it to be. And that's how I started like doing an opinion column. And it was at the time, I think me and Derek Bergen and Keith Lipinski, I'm not sure. You know, there are, there are a handful of people who are probably, I think everybody else is done and buried and gone with doing this stuff, but <laughs> I think we're still the, the three that have anything to do with it. But, you know, I started writing stuff that way and I was awful. <laughs> I was terrible. <laughs> but I would write some of these, you know, I would just kind of write what I felt. And I wrote something on Antonio Inoki uh, in the quest to kill his wrestlers. <laughs> this is, you know, kind of, uh, I, this was about Nakamura, who was a rookie at the time. And he was basically Antonio Noki. There were still the remnants of Inokiism in New Japan Pro Wrestling. And for, for all the good and all the greatness that Antonio Noki and, and some of that style created when Pride and K1 came along, they lost the plot. They forgot that these were yeah. work matches Inoki was in. They forgot that like guys got into pro wrestling because they either didn't want to fight or they weren't tough enough to fight or whatever it was. Like they, they would have gotten the fighting if they wanted to fight. They want to wrestle. They want to pro wrestle for Christ's sakes. And Yuji Nagata, who was always I was always a big fan in WCW getting killed, 
drove me nuts about that. And, and Nakamura, here's like, this is your rookie. This is going to be your supernova, your next guy. He just beat Tenzon. And you send him in there to a shoot fight and gets destroyed. And then you send him out there with Takia. And that drove me nuts. And I wrote this big, long dysentery or just big, long diatribe about uh, how Inoki's trying to kill his wrestlers. And Bruce Mitchell sent me an email and said, hey, just wanted to pass along to you. Dave Meltzer thought it was really good. You know, you got a couple things, you know, a little askew. But I mean, you kind of got it right. And boy, that was like the hand of God coming down to touch me at that time. It was like, <laughs> wow, I did a history thing that Dave Meltzer thought was cool. <laughs> and like that always stuck in the back of my mind. And it was also around that time where Keith Lipinski, I think it was, came to me and Zach Arnold, who was running a site called Presso Power. And what Zach wanted to do and what Keith said Zach wanted to do was to put together a show that was kind of like pardon the interruption where we would talk about the big MMA because at the time MMA and K1 were still big in Japan as big, if not bigger than pro wrestling. And for, I mean, nobody listening to this show is not going to be aware of this, but if somebody stumbles into it, it's like, you know, over in Japan, they looked at pride and K1 like it was pro wrestling. That's what they yeah. call it. It was pro wrestling. <laughs> it's, you know, That's theatrics, right. the whole nine yards. And it's, you know, you're getting paid to grapple. So technically it's pro wrestling. Let's go. And he wanted to do a, a, a show based upon that. And that's how this press who power hour podcast slash radio show started in 2000. And I think it was the beginning of 2004. And oh, wow. it's a long time ago now. There weren't a whole lot of shows out there covering anything. And it basically, we had the chance to talk to, and it was a different era, so many guys from Pride, so many guys from K1, so many guys from Ring of Honor, and, and just had the ability. And Keith Lipinski has got a Rolodex a mile long, and he can talk to anybody. So he would just, we would cold call people and get them on. And that's how I started doing anything spoken and being a big fan of radio. I loved doing that. And that led to Keith had gotten married, was done with the show. This guy, Adam Summers came on. And it wasn't long after that, that Brian Alvarez opened up the, the F4W online site. It hadn't merged with wrestlingobserver.com yet. It was his only a solo thing. Yeah. And at the time, the only thing he and I was a big fan of Brian from the the Figure Four newsletter and the 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 Frank A. Gotch flying mare that used to be a part of it. It was like reading the Onion, you know. Yeah, that's right. It, it was great. So I loved that and Derek Bergen and I, you know, he had kind of hinted about like you know that Brian starting up a site and I started thinking about it. it was like, hmm. The only thing he had on there uh, after the first you know month or two was it was him and, and his friend Vinny. And they were the only ones doing a show. And it's like, well, <laughs> I see a little hole I can punch through here. And <laughs> I was uh, just it was time to go from the the, the PPH thing. So I, I talked to Adam and we started a basically it was the PPH. It had been, uh, wrestling was our muse. Japanese wrestling was our muse. And we started up a, the Adam and Mike Big Audio Nightmare on the Wrestling Observer Show. And just things kind of went from there. Dave got a job with Yahoo which meant he couldn't do Wrestling Observer Live anymore. And I think Brian asked a bunch of people who said, no, I don't have time to do that nonsense. And he ended up with me doing it. I'm still not sure what the process was actually like, <laughs> but he ended up with me doing it. And it just kind of went from there. And then that went five days a week. And I, I got a job that I work overnights now so I could facilitate doing Wrestling Observer Live. And I'm broke as shit because of it. I used to, <laughs> I used to be in the, the booze business and work in bars and liquor stores and make great money. And now I'd struggle, but I don't give a shit because it's always been there. 
wrestling and radio has always been there. And this is so great for me. It's so fun for me. And to be on a show like this, too, I'm so happy that you had me on. I know everybody's probably just falling asleep going, who's a fucking idiot? But like, that's how excited I am about being on here and like <laughs> letting people know this. This is how I got here because I get I know it's I get maligned sometimes. I'm sure there's somebody who's like, you're having Mike Sempervivi on the show, like the fucking Alvarez guy. <laughs> like and They're probably rolling their eyes, but it's like. Like this is I never came. I never wanted to start anything to be banned on Twitter by Jerry Lawler or Nick Aldis or Kevin Von Erich. All I wanted <laughs> to do was to talk wrestling. And there was a point in time where this guy Rich Tate reached out to me from GeorgiaWrestlingHistory.com. And he had a show with Les Thatcher that he needed help hosting. And that has been that when I did that show, that was awesome because Les is the best guy in the world. And he taught me a lot. And it was a lot just listening to him and, and how he would deal with people and talk to people that that really changed the game. So it's like, you know, as much as the observer live is great and as I can never see me walking away from it. And, you know, for anything you want to say about Brian, it provided me a great opportunity to do what I really loved, which is talk about wrestling and, and do so on the radio. But my heart is always going to be in the history of it and the, the hardcore geekiness of it, which is why we're all here, you know, to the history of it and, and trying to maintain that and pass that on because it's going to get tougher and tougher. So we got to stick together. Yeah, and hearing that you did weekly TNA reviews, I guess I understand why you said wrestling could sometimes be a cruel bitch. That certainly would sum that up. But let's go back to the beginning. You said that you would get these syndicated shows and that you really got into the local promos. Obviously, the area you grew up in, it would have been WWF. You would have seen all those local promos. But were you also getting and were you at that age paying attention to the NWA? Oh, yeah, because I was a big magazine reader. <laughs> so it's like anything that, that made it up to the uh, to, to the, the rack at the cigar stop that had the, the all the old newspapers. You know, they would get newspapers from around the country. There was a cigar shop up the street from where we moved in uh, right outside D.C. And they would have like the Sunday papers of like the San Francisco Chronicle and all these Sunday papers from around everywhere. And then, of course, the big racks of comic books and wrestling magazines. And being a big boxing fan, too, again, I just I skipped the comic books. And always went towards the boxing and the wrestling magazine. So anything that was going on, I was I was in tune to. And, you know, it must have been around. It wouldn't have been 83, although I was always just obsessed with Steamboat and Youngblood and Ric Flair from the magazines. But I think it was really into 84 that Gary Juster opened up the the Baltimore, Washington area. And there was a low power station out of Fair, it was either Fairfax or Arlington or Alexandria, Virginia. I think it may have been Fairfax, Channel 56, WNVC. And it was a <laughs> it was a public television station that was not part of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. It was a pure public TV station in that if you had enough money and the rights were available for them to broadcast something. You could donate it to them and they would buy the rights to it. It became the place to watch NCAA basketball if you didn't have ESPN, the, the early round games that weren't being shown in the area, say Georgetown or George Washington or, or American were playing, but it wasn't going to be broadcast on any of the three networks at the time or, or, or through syndication through a Jefferson pilot or something like that. They would buy the game. And they would put the game on. And when it was time to throw it to commercial, the commercial would cut to these two guys sitting in director's chairs in a studio. 
And during March Madness, it was hilarious because they would be up literally all night. So like they would go back and it's like there's a guy like slumped over. <laughs> it's like, you know, it was it was pure public access greatness. But what Gary Juster did was they he used that opportunity and used that portal to get on shows like Championship Wrestling from Florida to get on Pro Wrestling USA. And that's how that hole got punched through and channel 56 and later channel 50 in Washington, D.C. When that stopped being super TV, which was a I don't know if anybody knows what this is, but instead of cable in some areas, they had basically this box on top of a TV. And it was a service that like during the day, the station would show like financial news network or something like that, like, you know, from a cable channel. And at night, the signal would scramble and you needed to have this box. To, to watch everything. Now, you can still hear things like you can still see like a boob or something overnight or something like, you know, if you, <laughs> if you didn't have the box to descramble it. But like that's what they used. And, and when Super TV ended on 50 Channel 50 in D.C. and Channel 54 in Baltimore, all of those stations needed cheap programming and they needed programming for syndication. And we got flooded with pro wrestling it, we went from having just wwf at the time it would have been what championship wrestling and all-star wrestling which turned yeah. into stars and challenge all of a sudden we got pro wrestling usa and and granted there were some shows on anyway like there was you know mid-south and syndication things like that but all of a sudden they were all condensed onto these channels and we got everything and we became as everybody knows baltimore became a big war zone a big open city where anything yeah. could get dumped into it. And all of a sudden we were getting everybody's shows. And at the, again, the age of coming up of being a wrestling fan and to then be flooded with all of this stuff and all of this stuff that I'd only seen in the magazines. I mean, how could you not become a pro wrestling fan for life? That's why I, I, I cringe for the future right now. I mean, we watched more TV back in those days you know, especially if you lived in Atlanta or something like that or in an area that got 20 hours of TV, you know, of wrestling a week, you were actually watching more back then, but it was more diverse and it was more fun and you got That's more right. passionate about it. And I, I worry about the future because I look at how I became a fan and it's like, it's not even the same ball game that we're playing right now, but that's kind of how that happened. And I'd go to matches at the Baltimore arena to a lesser extended cap center at the DC armory. But it was just, I was in a living in a glorious place. And, you know, because of the repeat of the shows, because of having so many channels living in the area that I did, you'd see repeats of everything. So being still, you know, lusting after watching wrestling, I would still leave a show on, but then the promos would be different. And that was big for me. <laughs> like the, the, the promos were just, you know, to be able to get in Channel 57 out of Philadelphia when, when Pro was on and to hear like this is what's coming to the Philadelphia Civic Center, because in those days, as everyone knows, the card would change a little bit from Baltimore. The main matches in most cases would be the same, but like. It was always interesting for me to see like the underneath matches like Todd Champions facing, you know, Ivan Koloff in Philadelphia. Yet it's going to be whoever it is. Cruel connection number two and Ivan Koloff or whatever it was in Baltimore. And then, you know, the promos cutting on and just it, it just became something that always became part of my life. And I always became suckered in by that. But by, by those promos and I would sit there like a geek with my little with the tape recorder that had the big orange button. And I would push that down and hit pause. And then anytime anybody's theme music would hit, anytime they'd go to break, 
anytime they'd go to what town they were coming in, I would hit pause and I would try to tape all of that stuff and I would listen to it. I'd fall asleep listening to it overnight, stick it under my pillow and go to sleep if there was no game on from somewhere, you know, old man transistor radio style. And I would do that with my and I would sit and listen to those promos and listen to that theme music all night long until I woke up in the morning. Which guys really connected with you promo wise? Oh God, from, from WWF, Don Morocco was always like, he was always the coolest guy in the whole wide world by far. And really in the WWF at that time too, he was kind of like, that was kind of it. The biggest influence on me was like Mid-Atlantic, like, cause there was like WWF programming it, it, in 84 and everything. It was changing over and like Slaughter and Iron Sheik was awesome. I'll always remember that feud. And like, that was cool. But like Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes. Tully Blanchard was was a lot more influential on me, I think, in hindsight uh, than I really realized. And then, you know, from there, like the boom of like Jim Cornette, like how can somebody talk that fast and be that funny and be that like, you know, it just he always blew me away. Like anybody that was really great. But like Ric Flair, like I think like a lot of people like Ric Flair was like the ultimate guy, you know, as far as the the image wanted to portray and, and all that sort of stuff. And the irony is I'm probably a lot more looks wise, weight wise, everything else wise to Dusty Rhodes, <laughs> who was another one that influenced me greatly. And as I love those guys and like guys, Jimmy Garvin was another one, too. You know, the because the, it really wasn't world class. It was really by the time he got into Crockett that it was like, I want to be this guy. Like, I'd rather be the world champion and everything. But like this guy's got like a hot girl. He's coming out here dancing. He's a completely like he's happy all the time. Yeah. And it's like he's supposed to be a bad guy, but he's walking around with this hot girl and he's glitter pants. It's like, I guess I'd be in a pretty good mood, too. So <laughs> he always looked like he was having the greatest time. And I agree. Yeah. Precious is the most underrated good looking woman in the history of the wrestling business oh my god absolutely he just he was always i mean he's ridiculous i, I remember uh my cousin who's not a big wrestling fan i once showed him a jimmy garvin thing and he's like who the fuck is this guy you know because he's out there and he does that thing where i don't know how to describe it that he's in the ring and they introduce him and he would like ha kind of have his hands open like uh like all five fingers are showing and his palms and he would like shoot his hands out Yes. I don't know. How do you describe that? I don't know, but well, every that, time he the, does that, it's right down to sharp dressed man there. When you hit that course, a sharp dressed <laughs> man, you got to do the hip swivel. You got to like flash it up. And it would always be great when you'd catch Tommy Young in the shot as like Precious <laughs> is blowing the stuff. And then it's like he's doing that move. And like you see Tommy's eyes kind of go up and then he grabs Precious with the big kiss and Tommy falls back a little bit. It was great. Just all that, all that bullshit. It was great. <laughs> you see, I love heel gorgeous Jimmy. I don't really like babyface gorgeous Jimmy, and I can't stand Jimmy Jam. Oh, that's the same way. I think we're all the same way that way if you came up in that era. I mean, it's, I can imagine for the people that watched him, like his evolution through Florida and to get the world class. And because uh, I liked him in the AWA too, I was a pro wrestling, get pro wrestling USA geek. Um, you know, I'm always looking for an alternative. I was a big USFL fan too. It may have something <laughs> to do with it, but like, like, <laughs> it's like when he was there with Martell. Like, I'll even go back and watch it. It's like, I understand why it wasn't the flashiest of stuff in it. But a lot of that, to me, has got to do with the production and the presentation of how that show was. It didn't have anything to do with those two guys. Because once they got into it with each other, I always thought that was really good, too. And that was probably, I guess, that was my first real shot at seeing Garvin. And then it was over when he came over into Crockett, where it's just like, you know, it kind of blew up from there. Another big influence on me was Mid-South, because my dad being... A football player and being a not a pro football, but he played in college and was a, a, an amateur wrestler. And he always had a respectability for real sport. And he also didn't want me to kill my brother. 
So really early on in the game, he made it real clear that this is a show. This is not real sports. I don't want you to quit school and think you want to become a pro wrestler. Like, you know, you you want to try to go for a scholarship and you're we're also trying to not get you to kill your brother. So, you know, the same way you wouldn't kill him with a lightsaber, you know, don't kill him with a pile driver either. <laughs> you know, so like he always let me know about the showy part of it. But like I gravitated and he gravitated towards Mid-South when we got a chance to see it because it's like. It was perfect. It was a bunch of old football players, a bunch of old real wrestlers, a bunch of old tough guys that like that was, you know, hey, I'm playing football. That guy used to play football for you know West Texas State or for Oklahoma with Steve Williams. It became a real relatable thing. And to have Jim Ross do the commentary and Michael Hayes, Michael Hayes doing commentary. I know Look, Roddy Piper was the best, you know, Jesse Ventura was the best at being the heel commentator. Michael Hayes at those UWF shows, when things changed over and the Freebird signed the million dollar contract, like his work on there was as influential or not more to me than either one of those other guys. You know, definitely Piper was a little bit before my time, but as great as Ventura was, I still think Michael Hayes was fantastic. And those promos and that that serious nature coming from those guys in the UWF, the Duggins, the DiBiases, the Williams, sometimes the promos weren't flashy, but it's like they were as believable as you could get. And it's like, again, there was something very relatable about these guys who like, you know, this is a show, but there's always that part of you where it's like those guys can like seriously kick my ass and everybody else's too. You know, Piper was different because he wasn't over-the-top Piper as a commentator. He was very respectful to Gordon Soley, and although he leaned towards the heels, he wasn't, you know, oh, I'm a guy. Like, it wasn't none of that. It was kind of just, he was there doing the commentary. Jesse elevated it to a whole new art form. I think Jesse's still the best, and I love Jesse's stuff, especially when he's yelling at Vince or yelling at Tony Schiavone in 1989, <laughs> and I love him in Monsoon because you could always tell there was a mutual respect. Even though they liked different wrestlers and they disagreed on things and Jesse would make fun of Monsoon's age, there was a respect there. But Michael Hayes in the UWF with Jim Ross, it's really, really great work and not a lot of people talk about it. It is a relatively short period of time, but you know, there's a period of time from what, 84 to 89, 90, where Jim Ross was just in a league of his own and Michael Hayes had that little brief run as a commentator where I don't personally think he was as good as Jesse, but he was the next best thing. And it wasn't that big of a difference from one to two. No, absolutely. And for where he had to do it, like, I don't know where else he could have did it, but it was perfect to do it in Oklahoma with, you know, with Jim Ross sitting right there. It was a perfect combination. I always love the thing with him and Dark Journey because it never really made sense. Like she's in the ring and he comes out to the ring. Right? Oh, yeah. It was like, I'm, I'm getting off of here and running down there. <laughs> yeah. and, and she's like, what do you want? What, what do you want? Like, she doesn't know what to say. And he's like, I don't want to marry you or nothing. You know, I just. <laughs> I just want you to come take a walk with me down Bad Street. And she slaps him in the face. And then Ted DiBiase, when he calls him the prissy sissy, which of course got those fans in Oklahoma all riled up. Oh, my, let me tell you something. I, I, I didn't do it on purpose, although I knew it was going to get a little bit of rise out of him. I was doing that this old show, that ringside rap show with Les Thatcher. And we were talking about like great time, great matches of history. And then we were talking about a couple different ones. And I brought up my love of country whipping matches between Michael Hayes and Ted DiBiase and how entertaining that was. And he was just, yeah, you know, he's even chewing on the inside of his cheek, like, uh huh. <laughs> Michael Hayes in a country whipping match. Like, yeah, but I mean, the emotion off of it was great. And you wanted to see him get his. It's like, yeah, uh huh. <laughs> and they worked hard for Watts, though. I mean, if you look back at 86, you know, the crowds start going down, and there's a lot of different reasons for the decline of the UWF. But in terms of the actual on air show, it was fantastic. Even Buddy Roberts 
who had been you know, slowly fading from his once great in-ring work over the previous few years, all of a sudden, even though he didn't look that great anymore, cosmetically, he looked awful. But all of a sudden, he was having great matches with Terry Taylor. All of a sudden, he was really good. Terry Gordy was as good as anyone in the wrestling business in 1986, and that was with one knee. His other knee was shot. He, look how much, go back and watch 1986 UWF. Look how much tape is on his knee. Yes. <laughs> and you'll be amazed that he's able to have those amazing matches with Dr. Death Steve Williams and everything else he did. And those guys worked hard for Watts, even Michael Hayes. He Never worked hard for Watts there. And, you know, he always laid his shit in, even when he was working for other people. But other people laid it into him there. And you go, go back and you go watch and you see it. What will always be seared in my mind is the Fantastics and Terry in Terry Taylor against the Sheep Herders and Jack Victory. Yeah, and it's like that, and like that rickety ass barbed wire cage, and it's just like I can't believe I'm watching this. Like, <laughs> like because even <laughs> as many crazy things like Bunkhouse Stampede and things like that, and and, and Crockett, like I, I didn't have access to Puerto Rico. Like, I mean, you'd see the rags on fire and some of their stuff. Like, to see this barbed wire match taking place in front of my eyes and this blood everywhere at 4 o'clock on the Saturday afternoon, it was just absolutely amazing to watch. And you bring up Terry Taylor, and I know he's a much maligned figure, and, and deservedly so, seemingly, for a lot of people. But the saddest part about Terry Taylor's career, in my eyes, was always the fact that his feud with Chris Adams that involved Eddie Gilbert in those dying days when Crockett, I think, had already had the tentacles in and John Ayers was the commissioner and all that stuff. That heel run and that heel turn by Terry Taylor, I thought, was incredible, especially yeah. if you had followed Chris Adams and knew his career and knew the, the sleight of hand that they were doing where it looked like you figured Chris Adams going to turn on baby face, all white meat Terry at some point, and Eddie Gilbert, no matter how conflicted Terry is, you know, sooner or later, he's going to end up on the good side of this, and Chris Adams is going to go dirty. And damned it if it wasn't the other way around, and how they did it was good. And I can still hear promos in my in my head now of that whole thing going down. And I thought that was great. And that's like, it was so good. And the only thing anybody, and nobody's really going to remember it. I mean, unless you were really in there and watching it, there's not a whole lot of people that remember that. And that was, that was Terry Taylor's best work of his entire career. And I thought that was awesome. I think you're right because it was the dying days that the UWF doesn't get a lot of attention. And then he was swallowed into the NWA and they killed him off as fast as they could merge the TV title with him losing to, I think Nikita. Nikita at Starcade. Starcade, Yep. And then, you know, the other thing people forget is he went to world class as a heel and they continued yeah. the feud with Chris Adams there. And that was the last great period of time for world class, 1988. The Freebirds go back in there. They split up the Freebirds. Michael Hayes is going to do that concert where, unfortunately, we don't get to hear Kevin and Kerry sing, where they were going to bring him out to sing a song <laughs> with them. Oh, my God, that would have been just something that everyone went crazy about. Like Glenn Goza today, Kerry and Kevin on the microphone <laughs> singing songs. And it was a really great period of world class, the last great period. Terry Taylor was in that mix, but like you said, he's often maligned, and a lot of the things you hear is that he was his own worst enemy in terms of the way he came across to people in power, whether it was Dusty, whether it was Vince, whoever it may be, he was often maligned, and it really did damage his career. I, I've talked about it before on the show. I was at the Meadowlands in 92 when he returned for the WWF, and he gets in the ring, and he just goes under his breath. He wasn't on the mic or anything, but I was sitting in the front row. He goes. I'm back. And as soon as he did that, someone in the crowd went, ah, rah, rah, rah. <laughs> like it just, you could see just his face. Like, Oh, like <laughs> the second he got in there and did that, someone did that. And it followed him everywhere he went. But 
it's even beyond the Red Rooster thing. Dusty didn't like him. He had heat with various people for various things. He had already not worked out as a booker for Bill Watts, and he clearly wanted to be in that position of power, whether it was a booker or someone of influence behind the scenes, and he turned off a lot of people. Well, yeah, the smartest guy in the room and, and the slimiest, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it, at the same time where it's just like, and yeah, I mean, the, the story, I think his, I think even he said it too, like the, the story about him, you know, doing a, the Dusty Rhodes impression and Dusty catching him doing it. It's just like, again, like how many times, I mean, the corny, obviously it's like, how, how can a guy be his worst enemy over and over again? But he's figured out his way to be And now, now it has kept him in the game for a long time. Yeah, it did. <laughs> Yeah. He may be working somewhere right now. I don't know. Is he? I have uh, no last idea. I heard he was at NXT. I don't know if he still is. That's you know, it wouldn't surprise me if he was. It's so but it's like, yeah, it's it's too bad because he was one of those guys too, especially from the magazines, where it's like, how could this guy this guy's never gonna miss? How could this guy miss? Well, you know, you find out wrestling isn't all just about doing the interviews and in the ring. A lot of it's got to do with backstage, and that was another, you know, as you grow up too, and you know, as you see things with like why certain things are certain ways. And it's like, oh, because there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't see behind the scenes. I think the story may have been, and I may be confusing two different things, but I don't think I am. The story may have been that when Hunter was terrorizing in WCW, Terry Terror was one of the first guys to be nice to him and help him out. Maybe even had Hunter stay at his house. And I guess this is now the return of the favor, that he's in NXT after he had burned several bridges and, you know, obviously he was at TNA for a number of years, but Terry, I believe Terry Taylor, at least last I checked, he was, when I say NXT, I mean the training facility, I, I should specify, but I believe the last I checked, he was there. Well, as we we found here recently, not to, I know we want to make this more evergreen, but to, to put a timestamp on this. So if you're a good carny, you never know when you can get called back and asked for help. With that, let's get going with the top 10. And of course, Ooh. The top 10 is brought to you by our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsore Records, R-A-M-S-E-U-R. Visit ramsorerecords.kungfustore.com, enter the promo code 605 at checkout, and save 20%. We want to make mention of someone we've talked about in the past, Samantha Crane, a great Ramsore artist. She has been nominated for an Indigenous Music Award for Best Rock Album, of course, the album being you had me at goodbye. You may remember us talking about it a while back. The Indigenous Music Awards are a celebration of the accomplishments of Indigenous recording artists and music industry professionals from around the globe. And of course, we talked about this too. Samantha Crane is a member of the Choctaw Indians and the Oklahoma-born songwriter of Choctaw Heritage floats effortlessly in and out of folk, avant-garde, and alternative rock, singing in both Choctaw and English. Imagine if Neil Young and Patti Smith got together and made a record with the Talking Heads. It might sound like Samantha Crane's You Had Me At Goodbye. We encourage you to check out that album once again, ramsorerecords.kungfustore.com. And if you want, check out the Indigenous Music Awards. The 2019 Indigenous Music Awards will take place May 17th, 2019 in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. I think that means our friend Marty Gold should be in attendance there. Once again, Ramsore Records, R-A-M-S-E-U-R, the mid-Atlantic wrestling of the music industry. And with that, Mike, let's get going with the top 10. Number 10 this week, Jim Cornette's answering machine. And what that means is we have to dial in Mr. Cornette. I am right now adding him here. Hold on one second. It is dialing. 
Hi, and thanks for calling. My new spring office hours are from whenever I get the energy to whenever I get fed up with it. So leave your name, number, and the level of your emergency, and I'll do my best, but I can't promise anything. At number 10 this week in the top 10 is Jim Cornette's answering machine, and here to say a few words to Jim Cornette's answering machine is our co-host, Mike Sempervivi. Jimmy, I hope you're taking care of the, uh, the book I sent you. Uh, I appreciate you you taking it in and, and giving it a home. It is very important. It is the history of pro wrestling and the history of Brian Alvarez's Flying Mare newsletter, that Frank A. Gotch <laughs> book. Uh, please, just make sure it's okay. So what are you trying to prove? You are nothing but a bottom-of-the-card jobber. Are you a sissy? I don't want to see you around here anymore. Will you get that stupid fool out of here? Let's spend the night together. All right, Jim, I think I've inundated your answering machine enough. I'm going to hang up now. I will talk to you soon on The Experience. And boom, we have hung up from Jim Cornette's answering machine, and uh, we'll have to find out more about this mysterious book that you sent him. We'll have to crack down on that, maybe do one of our deep dives into finding out what this mystery is all about. But number nine this week in the top ten, a very popular figure here on the Super Podcast, Yo Mamba, the Jungle Savage. Yo Mamba, the Jungle Savage. I will tell you more about him later. You know, Mike, this is something we've been trying to investigate and find out the mystery of Yo Mamba for so long, trying to solve who is Yo Mamba. We were very, very close to solving it. Terry Garvin Sims was about to tell us, and unfortunately, he passed away before we had a chance to record that segment. Are there any big mysteries in wrestling still to this day that you think about? You know, it's so overdone, but because I was a child from that generation and because it was so bad and ridiculous at the same time, that Larry Zbysko baby doll, what was on the photos of (laughs) Dusty Rhodes, like that, the manila envelope, that was definitely one of them. Um, It's not exactly the same. A mystery I have now, it's more of a real life thing, is why is Nelson Royal, the, the speech he gave about the bunkhouse stampede, the campfire speech, I can't find that anywhere. I got to get, get, get a copy of that. <laughs> but like that, that was always, that was probably, that one's probably the biggest one. I'm trying to think of any other like, oh God. I don't know. There's, I that, don't per- know. there's that period of time there where Dusty's booking falls right off a cliff. And that manila envelope is a perfect example of it. Yes. And that's, you know, for as much as people, like, people will say, like, 8080, they were making a comeback. It's like, there was a a nice series of hot shots (laughs) that took place because of stuff like that (laughs) (laughs) that needed to be done. And it wouldn't have sustained. So things ended up probably working out the exact way they were going to. But, yeah, as far as mysteries go, I, I think that was one of them, other than, like, why sometimes people would leave and come back, you know, and like, you know, how they would like float in and out of places. But man, yeah, I think that the Manila envelope is still probably my biggest one. And we never got an answer. I don't know if Dusty no. ever, I don't know if Dusty knew what it was going to be. I think it was one of those things like, we'll do it. We'll figure it out when we need to. Well, it's like, would it have been pictures like the, you know, the, the Savage Flair Elizabeth stuff later on? Would it have been like stuff like that where it was like, yeah, baby you know, doll Dust- sitting on his face? Yeah. <laughs> Their own private bunkhouse stamp or over a glass table. Yeah. So you never know what could happen. <laughs> but I think that was it because for the most part, I mean, everything was always kind of laid out that way. I would always be offended for people. Like, you know, I remember when, when Morocco and Bundy beat up Hogan and it's like, they were moving obviously towards Bundy, but being a big Morocco fan, it's like, 
Why did Hogan never look for revenge on Morocco? Why couldn't he gotten in the mix more? It was always like offended and standoffish about things like that. More than some of the mystery stuff, because for the most part, everything either got paid off or got explained away quickly. Although the Midnight Express leaving and us ending up with Russian assassins like randomly and stuff like that. That was always interesting to me. <laughs> Guys who just leave and just out of nowhere and title changes that would happen that, you know, phantom title changes that that would always that would always interest me as a kid, too. The Morocco thing's really interesting, too, because he had been such a hot heel, especially in 83. I mean, he was fantastic in 83, maybe the MVP of the World Wrestling Federation. And they bring him back in, I want to say, early 85. They start doing the teaser video of him on the beach, getting oiled up by multiple women, saying he's going to come back. They do a main event of him and Hogan at the Garden, I think, at least twice, and it drew really well. But then they never really used him well on the national stage they kind of just made him a joke act with fuji even though he would still do some serious stuff him and steamboat you know and i know he gained weight before he got really really on the gas when he turned babyface. but it was a missed opportunity there because he did have that ability like we talked about earlier to connect with people as a heel on local promos and really get you to either think he was cool but still want to see him get his ass kicked or really hate him and want to see him get his ass kicked yeah, and it, you know, with all the other cartoon characters that they had, and that probably had a lot to do with it too. You know, as far as what Vince thought marketing was and everything else. I mean, it just he always just seemed to be like, especially as you go back and watch like the the, the real old stuff of him standing there next to Vince, and it's like you you got it. Like he's got to be the reason. And I don't know if Vince gives him any credit. He probably doesn't. But like in his mind, all those years of standing next to him as he was cutting those promos, it's like. That's the ex- and the, the size of him. Like, that's the exact guy. That was your exact template moving forward. I mean, I think superstar Billy Graham probably gets more credit than that than Morocco. But it's like, I mean, Morocco carried him through such lean times, too. When I started watching, I really start remembering WWF in 83. It's like him and Ivan Koloff and there's Ray Stevens a little bit and like Don Carnoodle in the, in the Confederate flag. But at least he could wrestle. They but it's it like with him, too, by the way. Say what? They blew it with Kernodal, too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. To do something with him there. But like from there, it's like it was Sweet Hansen. It was like it was truly like I can't imagine what it was like in the 70s in real time. But like those guys, I mean, they were there. They had nothing else. And granted, it was a transitional period, but like, you know, until 84, where like all they started raiding everyone and guys started coming up the Valentines and, and this guy and that guy. But like, I mean, Morocco was like the only thing that carried that company through 83 at a time where it's like you were banking on Snooker, but you couldn't bank on Snooker because he was insane. You know, not that they're the greatest shows, but I love WWF syndicated TV from 84 and 85 just because you never know who's going to pop up. It oh, really like, is like Buzz Sawyer just randomly popping up and <laughs> Bulldog Buzz Sawyer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the Freebirds are there all of a sudden, just, you know, Gamma Singh. Just random people show up and then they're gone. You never see them again. You know, there there's so many guys. There's never been a bigger period of time than that for the WWF where guys are there quick. Guys are in and out quick. The missing link. There are so many guys that have little stays. I'll tell you, you want to talk about mysteries. How about relax with Trudy? That suitcase oh. that Adrian Adonis had, what was that going to be? Well, I think it came, didn't it become what it became? You know, he had a chain to his arm and everything. Hey, he's on a Piper's Pit, I think it was, in whatever, Rogers Court, whatever the hell, I guess it was Piper's Pit still yeah. at that point. But, like, I just always took that to mean, like, Trudy was the alter ego, and he came out of the suitcase, and he became adorable. Very interesting. So you think the adorable Adrian is actually Trudy? Yeah, I thought that was the direction that was going. And then because I'm trying to think of he had it before the trade with 
before he went over to Hart, right? He had it with Heenan, yes. Yeah, he had it. And so it's, I think, I just always kind of took it that that's what that was. And when, because that's everything kind of like, I don't know which how it dovetailed off because I think he disappeared. He obviously disappeared and then he came back. But I just kind of always thought that's what that was. So what do you think? You think in that briefcase he had a wig and lingerie? I think it was just like a, a metaphor, or would that be ah, what it is? Or yes, a metaphor. That's above my pay grade. I'm not exactly sure what that <laughs> meant. But uh, you know, I always get a kick out of when Piper returned to take back the pit, and of course he had the flower shop, and there's uh, Morocco wearing like a flowery shirt, and there's Orton with his pink cowboy pink hat. hat. Oh, it's great. <laughs> Jesus. And I remember that Saturday night's main event. Oh, where they did where Piper, they're playing my way with Sinatra. Oh, yeah. And he's going through and they do the slow motion of him just wailing on everything with the bat. Oh, my God. I thought that was so great. And that's, you know, I don't have any many good memories of Adrian Adonis as adorable. But that was one. I mean, just him going back and forth with Piper, as ridiculous as he looked. When you look past that, God, that was so good. I think my two favorite music videos from that time, I love the Piper one, but the one they did for When the Going Gets Tough, the Tough Gets Going by Billy Ocean. Yes. And then they did one with Wang Chung. I don't remember that one. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, it was the one song you would think. It was Everybody Have Fun Tonight, uh, not Dance Hall Days or anything else. But they also did one with Everyone Have Fun Tonight. Yeah. You know how big of a loser I am? And I, I'm, <laughs> this is how big of a loser I am to this day. This is how much pro wrestling has taught me everything. Okay. Everything. How to deal with people. But one of the things is music. And I can remember, I, I know music and I hear music now. When I hear Whitney Houston's I'm Going to Dance with Somebody, I still see the blue screen coming up and the, the inset box getting smaller and Mean Gene going, and we'll be back, you know, <laughs> after the localized. Pro and they would play these songs. And it's like I, it, I hear things that still take me back to that time and the yeah. things that were used as bumpers. On w, I mean, for anything you want to say, like when WWF, they used music in some ways the best when it came to doing bumpers and intros and outros. I still remember all that stuff. Until they realized they had to pay royalties. Yes. WWF TV used music great. I still, I'm not a fan of Owner of a Lonely Heart. I do not like that song at all. But I do like the intro to Piper's Pit where it's like, let's now go to Piper's Pit. Boom, 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 Big boom. Facts. Yes. Boom, boom. I, I love that. I love how they use David Bowie's Modern Love on their show. Oh, yeah. It's an underrated song. I'll tell you another song. It's not the WWF, but it's a music video I always loved. And they, I thought it was the perfect song for the video. It's. Sammy Hagar's Over the Top from the film Over the Top. The UWF used it for Steve Williams and Terry Gordy. They did a package of them feuding with each other. And they used that song. And it's a song I really want. I don't have it. I have so many songs. I have a massive music collection. I don't have that one. And I went to buy it and I stopped myself because you can't buy the song. You have to buy the entire best of Sammy Hagar. And I just refused. That's, you know, on principle, I can absolutely understand that. If it ain't DLR, I ain't down with it. That's right. <laughs> it's like, and well, that, you talk about the Mid-South one, too, because, you know, living in, in Maryland, when I guess they would throw it to the localized promos, we wouldn't get those. So they would play that extended video package. And I remember it was like the, the We Are the Champions one. It would start. It was. Uh, yeah, it was We Are the Champions of like Steve Williams winning the UWF title and them all pouring like champagne on him and everything. And then there was like. I don't know if the music was from Chariots of Fire. I don't know where the music was from, but I can hear it in my brain to this day of like, 
it was just kind of like a highlight package, like the struggle and fight of Mid-South of UWF wrestling that they would play. And it was like this really like epic, like keyboard and it was all synthesized music, but it was like something out of like, you know, they stole from some big budget movie. And I always thought it was awesome. And they would show that one and it would go into like the whole, like we are the champions thing, which it was because of that promo that I ended up buying the queen. It was that. And the fact that junkyard dog used uh, another one bites the dust. That's the only reason I know queen. I mean, I bought Tom Petty's greatest hits because of Chris Adams. I won't back down, but I didn't know the fuck Tom Petty was. I grew up listening to hip hop and go, go like I, you know, so it's like (laughs) a lot of this stuff, like buying, like I didn't listen to, to black Sabbath. I had a, a Ozzy Osbourne, Randy Rhodes tribute album. I didn't listen to that for years because I only listen to one kind of music for the most part with hip hop, but I had it because of Iron Man because of the Warriors. So it's like truly pro wrestling did teach me everything. There's a period of time with ECW too, where it wasn't pure hip hop, where Paulie would mix hip hop and alternative together, where you get like Mr. Used to Salt and Peppers, What a Man. And then you get like the Sandman. I think they did. Lenny Kravitz, Let Love Rule with a Sandman and Woman. I learned who Beck was from ECW. I learned who Elastica was from ECW. Oh, man, I love Elastica, too. <laughs> yeah, they did a Mikey Whipwreck video like that was spliced in with the Elastica video. And I was like, wow, this is great. Who is this? And that's how I you know, found out who Elastica was. And there's so much good music there. I'll tell you another video I love from World Class. I guess it would have been 88 also, maybe 87, 88. They did a Kerry Von Erich video to Here I Go Again by Whitesnake. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, and I always, I always really dug it. I mean, even though it's like old clips of him like body slamming King Kong Bundy or whatever, but I always really, really liked that video, and I thought it worked. I mean, there may be no territory that hair band music works better than world class. Uh, yes, that is an that is an absolute fact. <laughs> that is the perfect the script. And the only the, the only way you could dispute that is well, no, and it was really a hair band, but like the growing up to hair band of, of seeing Ricky Morton live in Mid Atlantic, the cry. Like I, I know people probably newer fans will hear Jim Cornette talk about it and roll their eyes about how over Ricky and Robert were. There are so many girls that I knew that hated wrestling, but boy, they they love Ricky Morton <laughs> at that time. And like you would never the ear piercing screams. I mean, that and the Road Warrior pop. Those were two things that were absolutely true. Well, that's number nine in the top ten. Yo Mamba, the Jungle Savage. Yo Mamba, the Jungle Savage. Totally awesome. You cowardly dog. And of course, the uh, the vocal stylings of Mark Goleen, the leader of the House of Goleen. At number eight this week in the top ten is disappointed Lance Russell. Oh, I don't want to see you around here anymore. Mike, do you have a favorite Lance Russell moment or memory? Oh, my God. You want to talk about a unicorn? Like, for all the wrestling I got, we didn't get Memphis. (laughs) We just didn't get Memphis. And you would see it in the magazines. Got a lot of coverage. But we never, I never, because I'd have to go over if somebody had FNN score, you know, but that was rare when I'd be able to, to to check that out on a Saturday night when it would come on. But man, it was like around 1987. In fact, it was definitely 1987 because that was the Lawler Idol stuff that was going on. Yeah. But there was, did, did you ever see a, it was from Rhino Video. It was rock and roll wrestling with posted by Johnny Legend. And it was basically a bunch of Memphis clips set to music. 
And it's like the theme song was like, there's going to be a riot. Somebody's going <laughs> to die tonight. And it was just like they it was a Bruiser Brody. They to White Lightning was the, somebody did a song and it was just highlight clips of, of, of different Memphis wrestling. But that's like really that was the first time to really see more than just like a clip that would play on like Georgia or something like that if somebody was coming in. And it was obviously because they're 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 the matches at the Mid South Coliseum. It's a bunch of announcing from Lance Russell, and I just I fell in love with him then. But it really wasn't until he came to WCW, and then obviously the explosion of the internet, where I really got a chance to hear him on a regular basis. And but it was just always something about his voice that just I thought was great. There was just always something kind and nice about the voice. It's yeah. like. He seems to be just even off these clips of like the, the Tupelo concession stand of like, ah, oh, now we got mustard on us. And it was like, this is like, <laughs> what the hell is going on here? What is this shit? And it's like, it just blew my mind. And it wasn't until thank God for the internet and thank God for everybody that videotaped all that stuff. Like I thought he had, again, he was just kind of like reading in the magazines. He was always a legend. So like to see him and Gordon Soley, even though they would just use Lance to do like studio shows and like worldwide and clips and occasionally hold the mic, they never really used him in WCW. So once the boom of video, cause I wasn't a tape trader started to, to come out and be put up everywhere. That's how I really fell in love with Lance. I mean, it was one thing to hear him talk in the story, but to hear him in action, I love Lance Russell. And if I, you know, everybody talks about their Mount Rushmore because of where I grew up. Like I'm always partial to Bob Cottle and I understand why he's not everybody's, you know, cup of tea or anything like that. But like Bob Cottle, Gordon Soley because of who he was, but like Gordon, because of who he was and the influence that he had on a lot of people, like I would put on there. But for me, it's Jim Ross and it's Lance Russell because I, nobody Lance, there was nobody better at at, at being Lance than Lance. There's nobody outside the ring that could have did what he did as well as, I mean, the, everything about him fascinates me. The 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 fact that he and Jared and the, the move that they made and the, the respect that he had in Memphis to, to be the news director. And, and it's just every everything about him has always fascinated me on top of the fact he's the sweetest. He was the sweetest human being on the planet and always thought in a world of carnies and, and ridiculous stuff. Just like he was on TV in real life, he was just him. He was like a a, a centering point. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, let me ask you, because you didn't get to see Memphis and you were a magazine guy, when you would read about what was happening down there and see these wrestling stars that you may not know, some of them may have appeared on Pro Wrestling USA, but Jerry Lawler, Bill Dundee, whoever it may be, what did you think when you saw them in the magazines and did they meet your expectations when you finally got to see them either on TV or live? Well, see, there were a lot of guys that like I had seen in other plays, Bill Dundee and Buddy Landell and, and guys like that who would go in and out of there. It's like, man, I like these guys. And now I don't get a chance to see them because they're there, you know, because, you know, Dundee never really impressed me in the ring or anything like that. Again, liking, you know, just coming from different areas. He it was always hard for me to like this guy is so small. I hate to say that, but it's like it was always like, I you know, until I had learned what working was and like what guys do, it just was always a hard disconnect for me as like the Bruiser Brodies and Road Warriors and Stan Hansen of the world are kicking the shit out of people but like the promo is what would always get me and him talking about bud Rowe and stuff like that so to see these guys that i liked you know in other you know in memphis in a place i couldn't see you know that that would always drive me nuts because i'd like to see what was going on there but jerry lawler was like to see lawler and it wasn't until it was like the end of 87 when when awa was really starting to fall and they incorporated a lot of that memphis in there when it was like you know dr dean hector guerrero 
you know, I always liked Hector Guerrero as part of, you know, the Guerreros down in, in, in Mid-South. When they were down there, I always thought they were cool. Like, you know, Hector and Chavo wrestling with DiBiase and Williams and getting choked out with their bandoliers and stuff was always a hell of a visual. Like, 85, you know, yeah. It was awesome, man. <laughs> that stuff was great. And feuding with the rock and roll for a little bit before they left and everything. I mean, that stuff was all. So to see him there and to now see these guys mix in and at a time where AWA was, you know, it was not the, the most electric place in the world compared to what was happening in other places. So to see like Jerry Lawler on there cutting promos on, you know, Kurt Henning and Kerry Von Erich and stuff like that, it was like, wow like the only thing i had seen you know from him before was the thing with andy kaufman that's all i really knew him for so to see him in action and then you know with the expansion to cable and being able to see like fnn score to see him tour around and like beyond polynesian pro it was just like i knew from an early age it seemed like jerry lawler had a great travel life because he was a champion in 37 different places <laughs> like you'd open up the roll call of champions at the back inside wrestler and it's like jerry had like 18 belts so, so it was like to see that and then later on to see you know because again the only you know to have that video where it's like all of this like ledoux cutting himself like that was on there you know, him throwing Lawler into the table. Like, so it was like this craziness of oh, Memphis wrestling, yeah. <laughs> you know, that craziness of Memphis wrestling, you know, the, to, to actually see that later on. And it just, it, it, I can see now why, I mean, I can see why Jerry law or Jerry Jarrett was a one-time tap for WWF because I don't know who could have bridged the gap better than Memphis wrestling. There's a reason it lasted so long. And it's not just because of the, you know, the, the, the passion in the city. It was because it was a timeless program that really knew how to play to its consumers. You bring up Hector and Chavo when they teamed up in mid South. I always loved their name. The Alamo busters. Yeah. <laughs> what a cool fucking name. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Here are the Alamo busters, Chavo and Hector Guerrero. There's a lot of things that you can't get away with now <laughs> that, that you could get away with any any Butch Reed promo on Tito Santana. There's things you just can't get away with now. But boy, for the time, <laughs> I just saw. You know what? I just saw, and I should have pulled the audio, uh, and I'll try to find it for next time. I just saw. I, I think it was a superstar Billy Graham promo from the '70s where he's talking about steroids that he's taking. <laughs> And I was like, what the fuck is that? Can never do that again. Well, in the 70s, because yeah, in the, the, the Sports Illustrated thing with Ken Patera before the Munich Olympics, like, well, we'll find out whose steroids are better, theirs or ours. It's like, <laughs> you know, they, people forget they were legal. Like, there was that guy, I forget how it ended up happening, where they had all the congressional hearings and stuff in the 80s, which, boy, did that kill wrestling. But, like, you know, <laughs> but, you know just remember, like, it, that's just all those guys. Like, football, too. It's like North Dallas 40. It's like there was, it was a different time. Well, that's number eight in the top ten, disappointed Lance Russell. Look out! Tell him in Mexican just to get out of here. At number seven this week in the top ten, I guess he was talking to Hector and Chavo there. At number seven this week in the top ten, the very popular, yet vulgar, old lady, Mrs. Spencer. Hi, stupid. Do you know about Mrs. Spencer, the old lady, Mike? Only through you guys. Uh, is, it? is it Dennis Corluzo trying to call Jim Cornette and that, getting the number wrong by one? That's exactly it. Go to hell, you motherfucking son of a bitch. I'm sure she was a very pleasant old lady normally, but you call her up and you ask for Jim, she turns into Ron Wright. You motherfucker, motherfucker. And speaks in tongues. So <laughs> Ron Wright at a Pentecostal church on a Saturday night. That's <laughs> 
Well, you know, she probably lived close to Ron Wright because she was living in Morristown. That's not too far from Kingsport. You fuck son of a bitch, you. I hope you die in the next 30 minutes, you motherfucking bastard, you. That's become a favorite of mine. The idea of her using it together, you fuck son of a bitch, you. <laughs> I love that. Well, we'll do this rather quickly. There she is, number seven, the old lady, Mrs. Spencer. Caller ID killed all that fun. <laughs> That's right. At number six this week in the top ten is Kevin. Hey, Mike Semper-Vivi. Uh-oh. Hi, Kevin. Oh, gosh. What's going on, kitty cat? It's, uh, you know, it's it's nice to, to hear from you. I, you know, I thought since you banned me on Twitter and everything that uh, blocked me that, that you wouldn't have any time for me. But it's, it's nice to talk to you finally for once. Now, hold on. What happened there? I, I know Kevin likes to slide into people's DMs. And Kevin is sometimes, I, I don't know what sets him off. I guess you may have defended the gay community or something. But what exactly was it that caused him to block you? I, I think it, it was something I had said about Fritz. It's the only thing I could think of because, like, I never had a bad interaction with him at all. In fact, it was mostly like, you know, putting up a clip of something that's like, oh, yeah, that was cool, or, you know, whatever it, it, it would have been. But it, I think I had responded to somebody about something about Fritz and, like, you know, just I think it was about the family. I'm not even real 100% sure what it is. And then. That was it. Uh, like, I, I went to look at something that somebody retweeted. I'm like, why can't I see this? And it was like, you're blocked by Kevin Von Eric. What? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, again, I don't think I ever said anything spicy about him or anything like that. I think it was just something where it was like the tragedies and it was something about Fritz is the only thing I could think of. He's such an interesting guy. I got to say, I still remain a fan of his. And I actually think the more time goes by, the better I think he was in the ring, if that makes any sense. Like, there was, oh, a, yeah. there was a period of time in the 90s where pretty much everyone I knew who I would talk to about wrestling really would put down the Von Erichs in the ring. Well, I shouldn't say the Von Erich, Kevin and Kerry. They would put them down in the ring. Say, Kerry was never any good, he had to be carried, and Kevin was just sloppy. And now I go back and I watch it, in an era where everyone works the same and does the same kind of things, and he's totally believable. I mean, well, there's a reason for that. There's a reason why those guys have that face of fear as he's running across the ring to throw his, you know, shin at their head or whatever he was going to do there because it really was going to hurt them. But I actually really, really enjoy Kevin Von Erich up until like, what, 86 or so. Well, and that's uh, it's hindsight for me, too, because growing up when I grew up and like the tragedies, you know, like started to, to steamroll and they became. I don't know, caricatures or whatever. I'm not sure the right, you know, they're like almost cartoonish and, and, and the way that whole thing fell and, and fell apart so fast. And there were so many better workers. Like you think about workers in, in role class, it's like, you know, Chris Adams, Gino Hernandez, you know, like talk about Jimmy Garvin, Terry Gordy, like all, you know, you can go through the whole list of names. It's like, you know, work wise, they weren't great. But like, again, looking back, the legitimacy of, yeah, being very fearful of Kevin, like, and Carrie, you know, Kerry was flashy and he had the look and all that sort of stuff. And then David was the look the most like his father, had the most oral like his father and all that other stuff. But like, if you had to like, all right, give me one, it would probably be Kevin. And it weren't the best promos in the world or anything like that, but it didn't have to. Everybody hung on every word anyway. And like his physical style, like, you know, I, I, I discount him. But I think if, you know, if you took that same, if you took him and dropped him in Mid-South and UWF at the same time, you know, it, that I lust after, it's like he would fit in perfectly and be able to stand in there perfectly with those guys. So, yeah, I mean, in hindsight, 
you know, did he have the the ballet and the, the performance type of matches that a flare in a steamboat? No. But he was he unique and could he go in there and have believable brawls and get in these believable fights with the Freebirds and stuff like that? Hell yes. <laughs> you know, it, it, it his really matches was. his matches really did seem like a struggle between two guys. Yeah. And that's and again, I think is it's because of of what of all the things that happened unfortunately and because of the punchline that so many things became that 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 i think reflects too much upon the work and people forget about the work and only think about <laughs> you know only think about the, the 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 high points of ridiculousness let me ask you a question because i know like me you vote for the wrestling observer newsletter hall of fame obviously fritz von Erichs in the hall of fame well deserved hall of famer may not be the greatest father some would say but as far as being a wrestler and an influential promoter deserves to be in the hall of fame do you think there's a case or an argument to be made for Kerry or even if you did Kerry, David and Kevin as a whole? I think you got to put them in as the clan together. You know, I, I think and that would be that's fair. You know what I mean? You know, of, of guys who aren't in, you look at like Cowboy Bob Kelly, you know, can stand on his own as far as being a, a, a nominee. Uh, uh, Bob Armstrong, another one could stand on his own better. But I think the Von Erichs as a group, for what they did and how they were marketed and how they were paid. They were the boys and they were the boys who were going to take this thing over and take it to the, the next level, which they did. And I think you need all of them together. It's like, you know, you can put Terry Gordy in on his own, but for as, as, as great as Buddy Roberts career is, I don't think you're putting him in on the fabulous blondes or anything, but you put them all in together as a group. Yeah. I mean, of course you do, <laughs> you know, of course, just of course, you know, same thing with the midnight express, you know, you can say, well, you make a case. Somebody could for Stan, you know, his career outside of, of why he could be in or something like that. But like, you know, together alongside Bobby Eaton, Jim Cornette and Dennis Condry. Yes. I mean, it's a no brainer. So I think the Von Erics have the best case that way because of the business they were able to push. And I think we agree on when you look at this from a territorial point of view, of which we probably should, since it was a territorial business at the time, that, you know, when Junkyard Dog and Mr. Wrestling 2 and guys like that, you know, Sergeant Slaughter, you know, aren't in and they were guys that rode their territories. I mean, look at the Von Erics in Dallas and, and, you know, you can debate it back and forth, but I think that's how they would be strongest. And that's how I think if I was going to vote for them, that I would definitely certainly do it that way. I think the big argument against them would probably be longevity. Well, that's it. And that's like the same thing that hurts like a, a dog or something like that, where, you know, the, you look at like Slaughter's career and, you know, the, the feuds that he had and the places that he was, you know, it's like, you know, were Gino and Chris against the Von Erics big? Yeah, but like, what do what does everybody think of? They think of the Freebirds, <laughs> you know. And it's like you think about when David passed away to the ascension to carry when Carrie was really good, and it just it just time is an issue. And unfortunately, even though this should not come into account, I mean, I'm one of those people NFL like like Lawrence. I came up on Lawrence Taylor in in, in the '80s. Like, it doesn't matter what you did off the field or what you did on it. Like, if you thought Chris Benoit was a Hall of Famer for wrestling, it's okay. You can say he's a hall of famer for wrestling and still say he's a shitty person. You know, it's not the hall of very good people. It's the hall, you know, there's a lot of people in there who people don't know about who are horrendous to their families and horrendous to other people that get passes, you know, that we're not good people, you know, and I'm not saying to try to defend Chris Benoit or anything, but like you have to separate the two. You can be great at something yet, yet still be a horrible person. And one shouldn't have to do with the other. So when it comes to the hall of fame for me, it like, it just comes down to basically what you did in the four posts. You know, it's hard for me because there are certain cases where there are guys that are in that I would go, yeah, clear cut Hall of Famer who I know did 
some really dastardly things, really awful things. Oh yeah. Like ben, that, Benoit, you know, that that's a struggle for I can't watch a Chris Benoit match. I can't. It's it's hard for especially when Nancy's there at ringside for so many of them. It's really, really hard for me. And it's hard for me to think of him in a positive context, even knowing that he was one of the most talented wrestlers in the world during his lifetime. Even geez. knowing how good he was, it's still really hard for me. And you know, that's a unique one for me. There's a few other ones. Um, you know, I've, I've mentioned my issues in the past with voting for Johnny Walker, and there's a few other guys too. But with Benoit, it's hard for me because I, I can't judge him anymore because of my distaste for what he did and who he was. And it's hard for me to look at someone like that and say, that's a Hall of Famer. And see, I, and I, with him... I depart. I, I compartmentalized it so fast after it happened, and I think it was a defense mechanism. Probably, I put it in like almost like a news mind point of view of like I am not going to let this guy who went crazy and killed. I'm not going to let him. There's too many Booker T matches, Eddie. So many people that I love are are, are tied into those matches. It's like I'm going to watch those matches, and I have to treat this like it's OJ, where it's like you know they're going to show the clips, and you're going to see how great he was as a runner, and this, that, and the third but this is still a horrible person who murdered two people and sliced their heads off. And the same thing with Benoit where it just, to me, it's like, I wasn't as emotional as wrestling is for me. And I, and I under, believe me, I completely understand why people have the views that they do and how they could never want to watch it because I know emotionally how tied I am into wrestling and how, how much, like I said, it was always there for me. So I understand when it hurts you, you know, or when something about it hurts you that you, you, you turn, you know, you, you put your defense mechanism on, but I was not, Almost right from Jump Street, I was not going to let him shed just because he's so was so part of so many things. I wasn't going to let him do it. I just I couldn't do it, and I treated him like OJ, where it's like I can look at him with a straight face and just look at it and not like it, but I can deal with it and 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 get through it. Where you know, unfortunately, like you you can't, and I don't, you know, for guys like John, you know, who does that for me, Johnny Weaver, and for as much as I grew up on Crockett, I just think about the stories of him. And it's just like stuff like that and using and hiding behind the badge and just being just a horrible person where it's like for some reason that gets my goat more than Benoit, who I've just I put into just a a big sheet of ice right in front of us. I'll give you another example, and it's obviously very different that I'm not comparing the two, but just in terms of you brought up how emotional it is with wrestling. I can't watch a Masawa match anymore. And I loved Masawa. In the 90s, I was a major All Japan fan. And knowing how it ends... I can't watch his matches. It, it, it bothers me too much to watch him take those bumps, to land on his head, to watch him take all those German suplexes. I can't do it. I just can't do it. You know, else is, and I, I agree with that, too, because of how he died. And you know who else is like that for me? Where, again, it's it's kind of weird, I guess, in a way that I watch Ben. But, like, Pero Aguayo Jr., because of how he yeah. passed. Yeah. And it well, it's Hayabusa the same way. It's like I'll never I'll never get that 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 thought out of my mind. And like Hayabusa I could watch a little bit more because at least he was able to overcome before he passed. But like yeah. because of how Aguayo died and because I know what these it's like it's almost a reminder with Masao and Aguayo of like these are guys who are putting their body on the line for me and that their neck issues and the fact that this I mean, this could happen with anybody at any time, you know, and no matter how tough you think you are, it's just when you take one bump too many and your 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 spinal cord just says no. Like, you know, and as again, it that that humility and again, growing up playing football and stuff like that, there's always that like, how does this not happen more? You start thinking about it too much. And that's where 
you know, they start to shiver. It's like, no, I can't do it. And I know exactly what you mean that way. Exactly what you mean. Well, on that down note, that was number six, Kevin. At number five this week in the top 10, a very popular and mysterious man, Brother Midnight. Baby, baby. Are you at all familiar with Brother Midnight, Mike? Just through the top 10. That is all the knowledge I have of, of Sir Brother Midnight. It's an interesting thing, like when someone becomes that cult wrestling favorite, someone who may have just done a few matches or someone who may just have a few promos that are in circulation, and people just jump on it, hone in on it, and fall in love with it. That's what happened with Brother Midnight here. It's what happened with Mark Lean, obviously, here with the top 10. Do you have any cult favorites? Do you have someone that you like that most people wouldn't go, oh, that's my favorite wrestler, favorite promo, whoever it may be? Do you have someone in that category? that you personally are a fan of? You know, it's just because it came, it, it will come up when talking about the history of Baltimore, but like, and it's, it's a sensitive subject as we speak right now, because he was one of the Knoxville five, but like Ronnie Garvin, I can't explain why Ronnie Garvin, I like him so much or why he was so over in Baltimore, but he was, you know, the, the stuff with Jake Roberts and with Georgia. And I think that had a little bit to do with it. Like I talked about the Gary Jester. Yeah you know, influence, but like when that shit hit, like I didn't, I didn't see, I was too young and wouldn't have mattered. Didn't have cable anyway. So I didn't know 1980 Georgia until a lot later. I didn't know that heyday. I didn't realize that like Georgia sucked right now in, in a lot of people's eyes. <laughs> yeah. I knew like, like Larry Zbysko was okay, but like, I really like Jake Roberts and I like the, the, the look of the, the TV. I love that TV title belt. I know people hated the one with the flags, but I like geography. I, I love that belt. So, I mean, that I, I so that Ronnie Garvin, I mean, again, I can't explain why he was over. Now, when Crockett came along and it was like the matches with like Wahoo and Garvin against like Jimmy Garvin or Arn Anderson or Tully Blanchard, like that stuff that like that kind of flies under the radar at that time. The stuff for the national title and for the TV title. I love that stuff and can always fall back into the, that kind of stuff at any time. You know, I think promo wise, you know, Jimmy Garvin is definitely one of those guys. Eddie Gilbert is kind of like one of those guys, too. I always liked Eddie Gilbert's promos, whether he was all like upset and fired up and being like the, the cowardly heel or even being like the baby face, the calm thought out like baby face when he was in, you know, booking and doing some of the stuff in Crockett for a while. I always thought he was incredibly underrated. And then to go back and watch the stuff with like the Backlund stuff that I was just I, I was too young and I don't remember seeing any of that stuff that happened with the, the mass superstar you know, and to see, you know, his role there with the, the neck being broken and all that. stuff. I never I don't know if he really gets his due so much. But, man, he you know, he, you'd look at his age when he passed away and it was like he was such a supernova. But like it just him with with Missy and the Steiners like that growing up too, especially in Baltimore, where there's this hammer jacks and a lot of that big hair influence and uniqueness <laughs> and stuff like that. And, and being in, in pubescent stage at that point. There was nothing cooler than hearing the Steiners walk out to Welcome to the Jungle and Missy Hyatt in like whatever tight thing she was wearing, because yeah. I swear she was the most <laughs> beautiful thing. Missy Hyatt is like she will perpetually be like that Missy Hyatt to me. The Missy Hyatt between like 1984 or whatever it was when she debuted and like that era in WCW, that's how she's always going to look to me no matter what. Yeah. And like that was just so absolutely awesome. But uh, again, that's just as a unit. I digress there a little bit. But like Eddie was just one of those guys, too. I never he, he just doesn't get enough or people concentrate on like the stuff in like ECW or something later on down the line. It's just I always thought he was really good no matter what he did. 
I really liked, you know, 89 was when I first got into the NWA and there was a, I don't even know if I would call it a program. It was almost like a mini program on TV with him and Brian Pillman. And I loved it at the time. And when it comes to Missy, not only was Missy gorgeous, Missy Hyatt may be the most underutilized super talent in wrestling because she was dynamic as a valet. She was great at getting heat. I thought she was good on promos. She was perfect in a role. And after 1988, no one ever used her anywhere near close to that ever again. I mean, no one did. ECW brought her in as a valet for Sandman, and it was a waste. Same, yeah. It was a waste. And to see how she never caught on, you know, it just, WWF, how it just, you know, the the Missy's Manor thing, which was just all wrong. Yeah, Like, you know, imagine just (laughs) if things had fast-forwarded a lot later on, what it it actually could have been like. And it's just, you know, it kind of sucked that that didn't happen. Hey, let me ask you, on the topic of Baltimore, obviously, based on the era you grew up in and the shows that you've already mentioned, were you there or do you have any memories about the time period when, for the last match of Bruno San Martino's career, he actually teamed up with Hogan in Baltimore, correct? Yeah, I was at that match. What was that like? (laughs) That was, oh my God. Like, (laughs) again, it it goes back, and I, I won't spend too long on it, but it goes back to what I said about being able to, wrestling always being there. And being able to, to to hide in it. So we had moved up from the D.C. area into to Howard County, like halfway between Baltimore and Washington. And it was uh, it was a little out in the country. And I came from an area like D.C. was like it was mostly Latino, you know, the, the, where I would buy, get all my VCAR tapes back in the day. Like I like to hurt people and everything was Plaza del Mercado. <laughs> I mean, it was like. It was a, a you know a lot of Korean. There it was a mixing, a big mix of people. It was an urban area, and where we were moving up to was it was rural at that time, really rural and, and out of the way. It just wasn't that developed. But like things were going good for my dad, for my family, and finally, you know, he actually got a step up for you know some you know first time in his life, you know, moving up and taking the stair steps up. And we had moved up there, and it's like Christ, we're away from everybody. But as we started to move up there, he was diagnosed with cancer. And it was testicular cancer and it was moving fast. And, you know, we end up moving up there and he's just, you know, he's the only, he's always been my hero because he's the only, I never got old enough to clash with him. So he was always that guy who like took me to the wrestling. He was my football coach. He was always there. And it was just, it was getting worse and worse and worse as 1987, you know, kind of rolled on. And that show, it was August of 1987. It was that show it was like the last good memory my father and I had together. And it was his chance to see Bruno San Martino that he hadn't seen since he lived in South Plainfield, New Jersey, you know, years ago in that all Italian family who liked Notre Dame football and it was all that sort of stuff <laughs> like that, that stuff, you know, and loving Mickey Mantle. That's, that's what he was. And that's why, you know, people have rolled their eyes and always bring up like, yeah, with Bruno's last match, it's like, you know, but that's the reason why I always bring it up is because that's that was the memory that we had. And it was it was incredible because we always had seats and I don't know how he would always get them. I think it's because of the, the the guy that he worked for was big into sports and he had a plug at the at the Baltimore Arena where we would always be towards the front, not front row, but like maybe a couple rows back, like, you know, six or seven, you know, 10 rows back, but always up against the fence, always up against the gate. And so that's, we would always get tickets there. 
And I just remember, I mean, it was it was crazy because there were guys that I had never, you know, I'd never seen that close. Like I'd been to the cap center and seen like butchery, but like that to be up close to see butchery come out. And he was always a guy that I loved from mid South and everything. So to see him was, was awesome coming out the jive soul, bro was ridiculous <laughs> and, and seeing, you know, I don't know why that sticks out so much, but it always did, you know, Ted DiBiase who I hadn't seen in, you know, since he came for Georgia and there, you know, it was like completely different. He's coming out in the, as the million dollar man. But it was Hogan and Bruno, you know, it was Bundy and one man gang and like Bundy and gang come out. And it's like I realized how short Bundy was. Bundy was so short, even as a little kid and everything being larger than life. It's like Bundy was kind of short. He was just really wide. So, so they came out and then it's Hogan and Bruno. And I have never ever and i know people talk about the i i guess bruno and and superstar graham that pop of it being the biggest i i can't i don't know i know what the pop was like for Hogan and bruno coming out and it was freaking insane and i just remember being shoved all the way up against the fence like this i never had been shoved up like that because you know everybody rushes to to reach out to the wrestlers and but you know, it was never anything like this. And it's like I reached out and I remember patting Bruno on the back. And it was like, oh, God, that's so hairy and wet. and gross <laughs> and so. But he, he gets I mean, it was I can't. It, it was just amazing. And the place is going nuts. And of course, we're still up against the fence. And then you're yelling. You know, they always yell, all right, get back, get back when they're trying to settle things down and everybody get back to your seats. And it's like. So we're off the fence now. We're still kind of there, but then they're still screaming like the the security guys. It's like they're screaming at us. It's like, well, wait a second. They're not screaming at us. Like, get down, get down. And it's like all the kids and we're looking. And it's like we all turn around. And our, goddamn, all of our fathers are standing on chairs <laughs> in there looking at Bruno. And it's just like it was unbelievable. It was absolutely unbelievable. and. You know, the posing at the end and everything. And it's like, I remember I I wrote a letter to Dave because <laughs> my father, unfortunately, you know, went really downhill after that. I remember it was right before Christmas. We had like the big blowout cry of like, yeah, he's going to die. Like there's no, there's no fighting this anymore. And it was like it was miserable. So it's like, you know, you go through something like that. You lose a block of time and he passed away. I thought it was like to uh, until my son was born. You know, in, in in 2008, I always thought he had died in January. He hadn't died. Till, it, he died in March. I mean, that's but that's how much time that I had really lost and really understanding what was going on. But it was like we went to a football game after that. I know for the University of Maryland, like the, you know, whoever was playing quarterback at the time, Stan Gelball era down there. And we actually and it wasn't until Graham Cawthon interviewed, interviewed me for the Baltimore book that we actually went to the UWF show. It wasn't UWF. Crockett already bought it, but they had UWF title matches the next week at the arena. And oh, wow. I can't even remember that because that's how awesome that night was. And it's like that was the last great moment that I ever had with my dad was because of that night. And I remember I wrote a letter to Dave and said, look, before, you know, whatever happens before Bruno dies. Make sure he gets this. And I you know, wrote the story of that because 
I mean, it was just that that was it. And it was like, you know, he got to see, you know, because my dad, like I was telling you, he was my reason for liking wrestling. My mom hated wrestling. She hated that I was going to kill somebody like my brother or something. And she just thought it was like kind of low rent. Now, she liked Magnum T.A., you know, she, she she really liked Ricky Steamboat, but like, you know, it was like, you know, she didn't really like it and it just was not her bag. But like my dad was all in it. He liked, you know, Jimmy Valiant because he, you know, I guess growing up in New Jersey that, you know, he again, that's those are the guys he remembers and Bruno. And it was just it was awesome. So that's kind of <laughs> that that's what that was. And to find out like later on that, like that was the most miserable time of Bruno's life. And I, that's what I wrote. And I don't know if Dave ever gave it to him or not. I, I kind of I don't want to know if he ever did or not anymore. I'd like to think he got it. So he knew that on the worst night of his professional life and probably at that point in his life was what was going on with his son and and his life and just everything, his business that he cherished so much and all that stuff that on that miserable night, him standing out there and gritting his teeth and just cursing Hogan through his teeth, doing those poses and all that other stuff. If he didn't do that or quit one night earlier, I wouldn't have had that. And I really, boy, I'm very appreciative that I got a chance to have that. Who was more over that night? Oh, Bruno. <laughs> well, you said that pretty quickly. I mean, it was hands down. It was Bruno. Yeah, I mean, Hogan always rocked anyway, but it was like there was nothing ever. There was nothing like that. And, and I know... You know, Bruno was not as over per se in Baltimore as, you know, he was in New York or Boston or or even Philadelphia, but he was still Bruno San Martino and this was still special and it was still I mean, there's a reason that he was there. You know, it's not like they didn't do that because you know, they, they didn't have fear about being in a war. They were in a war <laughs> and that's why they had trotted Bruno back out there and they did everything that they could. And that was one of the ways that they did it. And again, it was miserable for him, but for us, it was great. <laughs> it really was. Well, that is number five in the top 10 brother midnight. The regulator, innovator, dominator, creator, updater, plus the imitator, assassinator, baby. You piece of slime. And there's a message from Bruno to you for not getting that letter. Mike, <laughs> you piece of slime, as Bruno said. But from there, let's go on to number four in the top ten, the always popular, orgasmic Larry Nelson. No. And now the long form. No. I... What's the stipulation? Larry Nelson's an interesting character, of course, because he's someone who was commonly put down by smart fans in the 80s. They thought he was over the top. They thought he was ridiculous. You look back at him now, and boy, is he entertaining. And boy, could we use more commentators like him in today's wrestling. What do you think of Orgasmic Larry? I, for some reason, the what's the stipulation part is the one that really gets me. I don't, what's the I don't, stipulation? <laughs> I, I, Larry is just, he, he was such a cartoon character. He really was. And it just like, I, it's not that I hated him. Like David Crockett was like lower on my list of guys as far as like respectability on announcers goes. I just, and I didn't like Larry. It was just like, he was just such a cartoon. And for whatever reason, his call of Stan Hansen beating Rick Martell. And I guess, I don't know why, but it just, cause I, I liked Rick Martell. Maybe I was playing with the action figures at the moment, the Remco figures. I can't remember why, but that just now, wait a minute. Could it be? Yes. <laughs> Stan the Lariat Hansen with the Brazos Valley backbreaker, <laughs> the, the Boston <laughs> that he had at the Meadowlands and, and beaten Rick Martell. For some reason, that always sticks in my mind. But what gets me about him later was 
even as a kid, and granted, unfortunately, because my father did pass away early and my, my, my mother's mind was taken away by my fact my sister was five years older, always getting in trouble, and my, my brother was five years younger. So I was kind of let off to kind of fend for myself on my own. So I got into maybe some, some more adult type of things a little bit earlier than I, I should have. But even at that time, being relatively innocent, seeing Larry Nelson's eyes doing interviews... <laughs> It was like you knew like there were times where Larry was like not just drawn, not just pale, but gray. It was like the damnedest thing of like <laughs> just being laid out. And it was just like he was I, I he was just very cartoony and just was just very cartoony and with Bischoff coming after him. I mean, he was much better than that as an announcer role for the AWA, but he was just him and Rod Trongard and and really, I mean who was it? Not, I mean, Roger even Kent. Marty Neal, but who was Roger Kent? I mean, they were Roger Kent, another great example. <laughs> they were all for some reason, they were all just came across as like cartoon characters to me. They all came across to me like old men from the Midwest. And that, you know, well, <laughs> that's exactly what they were. Yes. And I have no idea why you think Larry was so cartoony. Oh, Jesus. I have no idea why you would think that way. Look out, Baron Von Reisky! <laughs> you see, these still get me. I listen to these so many times, and they still crack me up every single time. And uh, here's one. his subdued Larry. He didn't blink. He didn't fall. He did nothing. <laughs> My favorite is still when he yelled, Medic. When he fell out of the chair. <laughs> I mean, just everything he did is so funny. I really want to go back and discover some more. I always say that. I never get time to. And uh, people always send me different things, and it's always awful audio quality of Larry Nelson bits. So I got to really go back and do a deep dive and see what more gold, what Larry Nelson gold is available to play here on the show. But that is number four in the top ten, orgasmic Larry Nelson. Oh, I, what's the stipulation? Are we having fun, people? At number three this week in the top ten is someone that remains popular for reasons I don't quite gather. And that is Hot Dog, or as some people call him, Hot Dog and Lasto. I had the misfortune of speaking with him earlier today. Let's go to this recording right now. Here at number three this week in the top ten is a man who somehow remains popular with the listeners of the Super Podcast. He is known as Hot Dog, or as some people call this segment, Hot Dog and Lasto. Hello, Hot Dog. Hey, Lasto, I just got back from the fire Festival. That was wild, my friend. And when I say wild, I mean W-Y-L-D. <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on. The fire Festival, that was a while ago, and, and it didn't wow. actually happen. I was one of the celebrity hosts, so my whole trip was paid for. Yeah. <laughs> Soggy red carpet treatment all the way. <laughs> I'm guessing your cabana wasn't ready either, Hot Dog. Now that you mention it, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Where are we in the ratings, Teej? It's been a while. Are we holding steady at what? Number number one? Number two? Uh, no, I believe last time, uh, Hot Dog, you were at number two, but this time you're at number, number three two. in the top ten. Number three. Did you say number three? Number three. Hold, on. Hold on. I can't hear you too well through these cheap bootleg headphones. Number three? <laughs> number what, three. What did the program director say about that? That's no good. This is awful. Wow. I'm I'm seriously bummed out about this. I had a whole segment right here, my in memoriam to uh, wrestlers that passed away in 2018. What? Yeah, I was going to do my in memoriam segment. Should I read off the list? I'm sort of, well, I'm, I'm sort of in a down mood now as it is. Well, I don't know, Hot Dog. I mean, you haven't been on in a while, and uh, it is now well into 2019, but why not? Well, let's hear some of this list. All right. 
Mountain Fiji. Mountain Fiji from Glow. Gino Moore. <laughs> what is this list, Hot Dog? It says in memoriam from people that passed away in 2018. Okay, Gino Moore. Number one, Paul Jones. Number one, Paul Jones. He he did indeed die in 2018. Rockin' Rebel. The Rockin' Rebel, yes. Slip Mahoney. <laughs> what is this hot dog? <laughs> Frank Durso, veteran uh, journeyman wrestler from Pittsburgh. Okay. Also known as Slip Mahoney. Slip Mahoney, okay. I know Jerry Mahoney. One of the Rosati sisters. <laughs> okay, enough with this death list, hot dog. What else do you have? Are there more names on your list? Just a couple more. Luthez. Luthez died many, many years ago, hot dog. Uh, it still kind of stings. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Big Bully Busick. Big Bully Busick. Former AWA champion, Vern Troyer. <laughs> Okay, well, Vern Troyer obviously is a actor uh, and a little person. Not any, yeah. and he did indeed die, but not former AWA champion Vern Gagne. Last, oh, there's so many more names. I, I really, I, can't, I can't go on with this. I've got to go try to put this fire out, Pronto. Hey, Lasto. Yeah, we've got a really special guest calling into the show today. Pick him up on line number five. Excuse me, please. There is no line five. Hello, special guest. Are you there right now? Hello. Hello? Yes, I can hear you. Is this Fred Schneider again? No, Brian. This is veteran women's wrestling promoter Danny McLean. Danny McLean? Yes, I've got some information about my latest promotion. Prettier Ladies of Wrestling. That's right. Plow. <laughs> well, hold on. Are you related to David McLean from Glow? I'm Danny McLean. I've been called the Gallagher II of the McLean family. <laughs> All right, well. The black sheep of the McLeans. But I wanted your listeners to be the first to know about one of our latest signings, our newest plow girls. Have I got a hot flash for you? The ink is barely dry on the contract. <laughs> but prettier ladies of wrestling has signed the hottest free agent in professional women's sports. None other than... Priscilla the Tampon Girl. Okay. Well, you heard me right. You heard me right. The Tampon Girl. And along with her partner, Maxine Pad, they comprise the tag team of Heavy Flow. Okay. Heavy Flow is going to be a tag team. And what did you say it was Plow? Prettier Ladies of Wrestling. P-L-O-W. Coming at you. Heavy flow coming at you sometime within the next month when you least expect it. Okay, heavy flow. Yeah. They're working on their entrance rap and some side-splitting vignettes as we speak. All right, so you have the raps just like uh, David McLean's glow. Plow will be having these opening raps. Entirely different. This is prettier ladies of wrestling. Oh, <laughs> of course, of course. And that news about heavy flow, that comes direct from the desk of our celebrity CEO, Darcy Retsky of the Smashing Pumpkins. Okay. You remember her? I, I do remember her. Can, can we put Hot Dog back on? What is going on here? He's very pale, Aunt Darcy, but a, a shrewd businesswoman. Brian, it looks like we're about to get cut off here, and I'm out of quarters. You fans want to keep up to date? <laughs> Call the Plow Hotline at 1-900-888-PLOW. That's 1-900-888-PLOW. 
Hey, Brian, yes. why did the pregnant lady go into the pizza parlor? Oh, Hello? That's, that, that's a Santo Gold joke. Oh, what is that Hello? joke? Hello? Hey, Lasto, I'm back. That was kind of a nice surprise, wasn't it? <laughs> Danny McClain, yeah. What was the punchline of that joke? I forgot the punchline, Hot Dog. Oh, come on. That's a classic. <laughs> she heard they had free delivery. That's right. That's right. There was free delivery. Well, well there's the horn. Hot Dog, is that uh, all you have for us this week here on the show? Yeah, I couldn't get a hold of the program director or the station owner. I could swear he's in, but his door seems to be locked from the inside. Let me just address our loyal listeners, the 605 Mothershippers. We can't do this alone, so on behalf of my partner, the great Brian Lasto, the Don Quixote to my Sancho Panzer, please give us ratings, 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 and skyrocket us back up to number one. Our very livelihoods depend on it. Hey, Lasto. Yes, hot dog. We gotta go, brother. There he is, number three in the top ten, Hot Dog, or once again, Hot Dog and Lasto, whatever you want to call it. And let's quickly move on from that. At number two this week in the top ten is someone who has captivated the imaginations of the 605 Super Podcast Super Universe. It is, of course, Hiccuping Fabulous Moolah. And we'll find out right now if she has her hiccuping under control and what else is going on in that crazy world of Hiccuping Moolah. Let's go to this recording right now, number two in the top 10. Here at number two this week in the top 10, the always popular hiccuping fabulous Moolah. And I believe she is on the line right now, although I haven't heard her yet. Hiccuping fabulous Moolah, are you there? Good morning to you, Brian. How are you fine people in the super universe today? Your hiccups sound a little different this week, Mula. Oh my goodness, I swear the doctor gave me something for this and I just... <laughs> oh my goodness, I might have to change my gimmick. I'm a, a hiccup in and a cough in and a holler. Well, anyway, how are you, Rose Petal? I haven't talked to you in... <gasps> so, oh, my eyes are watering over here. I can't even hardly stand up straight. This is... This is a George Napolitano, right? Interview for a Wrestling Fever, 1987? No, no, Hi. this is for the top 10 on the 605 Super Podcast. And Hiccuping Moolah, you are at number two this week in the top 10. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I wasn't informed of this at all. Let me get myself together. I got curlers in my hair and everything. I got my I got my money eyeglasses on and everything. It's the first thing in the morning. Oh, my goodness. Well, well, anyway, a good friend of mine slipped over last night, you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'll give you fans out there a little hint. Um, this is a little wrestling humor that that we like to employ down here. Um, you know, this man that I'm going to invite on to my show right now that was in my house last night. Your show? He was always in a, he was always in a hurry to finish. So we called him the Russian bear. (laughs) You get it, Brian? The Russian? Because he was in a That's a little. Development McIntyre loves that one. Peggy Lee Pleather, she can't. Every time she sees him, she's like, the Russian bay lasted two seconds. Anyway, my good friend, psychedelic Ivan Koloff. Oh, he was on the uh, Magnificent Ones house party. He was in the Magnificent Ones house party the last time we had the top ten. He's at your house now? I am glad that you remember me, Comrade Brian. Das bedonia, Miss Lillian. It is nice to be here. Your stout bearing reminds me of the woman who raised me in the homeland. <laughs> oh, I've dropped my monocle, you'll permit. Oh, one second. 
Oh, oh, the leg bands are not as good as they used to be. You know, they call me psychedelic. I have a call off with good reason. What is that? What is that? I'm about to tell you, Lillian, shut up and let me talk to these people. Lillian and I were sitting around talking about our favorite rock groups from the golden era. And in the motherland, we had a group similar to the mamas and the papas. They were called the starving mothers and their crying children. <laughs> and Mula has agreed to accompany me on a duet right now that we used to sing around the campfire with the lady who used to raise me in the orphanage. Are you ready? This is part Give of the me act. a slow, draggy, <laughs> depressing Z. A slow, draggy, depressing Z. Don't run, don't run, don't run. All my teeth are brown. The teeth are brown. <laughs> and my tongue is gray. And my tongue is gray. Come on, Mula, don't be shy. I've been singing, I haven't. Well, you suck. Now, what else is that? You know, Brian, as you may know, yeah. uh, after the Civil War, which was about 75 years ago, many well. of us women... <laughs> Many of us women folk were left with no husbands and no means of visible support. <laughs> so the government decided to gift each of us women in town with our very own donkeys. It is quite an honor when a townswoman lets a visitor have an unrestricted use of her ass while you are in town. As you know... <laughs> The size of your donkey is a symbol of your prestige within the community. And the same applies down here in Columbia, <laughs> Columbia South Carolina. <laughs> then it is only fitting that a photo of me riding your gigantic ass in the church parking lot made the front page of the penny saver for all to see. It brought, <laughs> it brought everyone great, great warmth back home. Oh, everybody, everybody stopped by to look that day. Everybody stopped by to look that day. Even the town veterinarian told me that he had never seen a sight like this. Such a happy, satisfied ass. I don't know what He has is. never seen this with his eyes. And Mula is not the only one. So many local women. Oh, it's true. It's true. Everyone loves that. Let me finish. So many local women have been incredibly generous with their asses. Children come up to me in the street, begging me to ride their mother's asses, okay, recognizing well, the prestige on. that this would bring to their families. Evan, I'm going to have to cut you off. It's becoming cocktail hour. I will take a Molotov cocktail. A <laughs> Molotov? A, mo a Molotov cocktail? What in the heavens is that? It is a Metamucil and vodka. Metamucil and vodka. It has destroyed more Russian bathrooms than Chernobyl. Oh, my God. Jeez. <laughs> Mula. Psychedelic one was... Ivan Kolov. I, I don't know what to say. Not very psychedelic this I week. Would... <laughs> there, is only, there is only half a page left. You will have to bear with us, comrade. <laughs> and then I will banish you to the salt mine for not liking my new character. GGB. <laughs> We're going to need some cocktails in here. We need one white Russian and one um, whatever I haven't ordered. When I'm done talking to Mr. Brian, you can go back to pulling Momo's teeth, okay? 
What? Could please get those cocktails and we could just proceed with our... No, I said when we're done with my interview with Mr. Bryant... No, when we're done with my interview from Mr. Bryant, we... What is that? Oh, my fucking God. Juju B, I swear to fuck, I will pull every goddamn bone in your body out through your fucking nose and they can carry you around in a bucket. Is that what you fucking want? You goddamn bitch! You son of a goddamn moron! Brian, I'm so sorry. We <laughs> yes. seem to be having some kind of phone connection trouble this week. I'm going to have to cut it short. All right, well, listen. <laughs> uh, well, listen, Hiccup Igmula, before you go, and by the way, I like that we finally got some of the backstory of Psychedelic Ivan Koloff, that he was in an orphanage. But before we go, you are at number two in the top ten. Anything you want to say to the listeners of the 605 Super Podcast who vote on the top ten, uh, anything you want to say about your placement in the top ten and where you want to be? I would just I would just like to say that I have been truly blessed in every way during this lifetime. And uh I guess that's really all there is to say. You shut up, bitch! I'll fucking kill you! Alright then, I'll see you from Columbia, South Carolina next time. There she is, number two in the top ten, hiccuping fabulous moolah. And now it's time for number one, and of course number one will be challenging next time on the show for the championship against either the Magnificent One or Cranky Barista, Ken Patera. And at number one in the top ten is the Handsome Boogeyman, not Jimmy Valiant. And I had an opportunity earlier today to speak with the Boogeyman. Let's go to this recording right now. Here at number one this week in the top ten is a man who has been popular for such a long time here in the top ten. None other than the handsome Boogeyman, not Jimmy Valiant. And I believe you hear the clapping. He is on the line right now. Boogeyman, congratulations. Number one once again. Back at number one last, though. You know, my dear friend, Killer Cal Rudman predicted it in his industry tip sheet to Friday morning quarterback that not handsome Jimmy Boogie would motivate his way back into the catbird seat. And so it has come to pass. (laughs) Ha ha. Number one, Daddy. Well, congratulations. Oh, I feel good. Bump, bump, bump. From the moment I rise, feel good from morning to the end of the day. <laughs> All right, some kinks. But uh, congratulations, number one. Number one, indeed. A celebratory mood prevails, Lasto. Boogie Club t-shirts are flying out the door like a greased pig with a cherry bomb in its ass. <laughs> what? Yes, ma'am. What? Since we in such good spirits flying Brian Leo the Lion, I got an old friend who stopped by the gift shop and started celebrating a little bit early. <laughs> Here he comes, making his way. <laughs> Take it easy there, partner. It's that lovable lush of a ring announcer, that wily wino himself, Barfly Joe McHugh. Oh, wow. Hey, buddy, I'll stop me if you've heard this one. <laughs> well, welcome back to the show, Barfly Joe McHugh. How many wrestlers does it take to help Ivan Putsky from Krakow, Poland, <laughs> to screw in a light bulb? I don't know how many. Three. <laughs> Reggie the Crusher Lesowski, <laughs> Ed Wiskowski, and Killer Kowalski. Okay, seems a bunch of wrestlers with Polish names. You know, those four individuals, as a combined effort, have their own condominium. What? 
Can you guess what they call it? I don't know. The Ski Lodge. Okay. <laughs> Listen, uh, Barfly Joe McHugh. I've got a million of them. Oh, let's hope not. Oh, look at the caboose on that barmaid. Hubba, hubba. <laughs> okay, Barfly Joe McHugh. I think you're uh, getting close to overstaying your welcome here on the Super Podcast. The U.S. economy is really in the shitter. <laughs> you really are a barfly, aren't you? <laughs> and you know whose fault it is? Whose fault is it? The honky-tonk man. <laughs> what are you, Jake Roberts? You blame honky-tonk man for everything? Hey, I like you, kid. <laughs> Buy an old man a drink, would you? Okay, sure. Barfie. Another round for, uh, uh, what was your name again? Brian. Yes. Another round for Brian, and my name is Joe McHugh. <laughs> well, very good to hear from you once again, Barfly Joe McHugh. Nice to know. I didn't expect you to make another appearance on the show, but here you are. All right, brother. <laughs> How about that? Barfly Joe. It's always a treat when he stops by. It's uh, getting him to leave that's a little problematic. You're telling me, Boogeyman, but hey, here you are at number one in the top ten. That yes, means next time on the show you challenge either Cranky Barista Ken Patera or the magnificent one for the championship. First things first. Am I to understand that I hopscotched right over fabulous hiccuping moolah? <laughs> yes, you did. I knew that old bird when she was known as hiccuping slave girl moolah. <laughs> and I don't want to say what she was a slave to in mixed company. <laughs> but uh, be that as it may. <laughs> what is my competition again? Your competition is either Cranky Barista Kempatera or The Magnificent One. The Magnificent One. Oh, my goodness. I saw a recent photo of that man, and he's magnificent, all right, in sheer tonnage. <laughs> Put on a lot of weight he has. Oh, that's not very nice, Boogeyman. It's a simple fact. Out there in Hawaii, he was recently declared an island unto himself. The man is fat. Oh, Boogeyman, come on. Enough of that. As we used to say, it takes a harem to hug him and a boxcar to lug him. And who, may I ask, is challenging him for that prestigious... Prestigious! Who is challenging him for that prestigious 605 title honor? It will be Cranky Barista Ken Patera. Cranky Batista Ken Patera. What the hell is that? (laughs) That's not what I said. Cranky Barista Ken Patera. He's a version of Ken Patera that is just like the real Ken Patera, except he's wearing an apron and he works at a Starbucks or a different... Seems seems kind of high concept, if you ask me. That character's got no legs, if I'm being honest. But so be it. Anywho, thanks to Boogie's Army for their help. Please vote for me to take back my royal crown from the magnificent mess or that cranky Manny Patankin, or whatever the fuck his name is. <laughs> Boogie Club t-shirts on sale now. Our size is up to 7X. Your smooth operator. Smooth operator. All right, Boogie. standing by. Woo! Mercy, daddy. There he is at number one of the top ten, the handsome boogeyman, not Jimmy Valiant. And, of course, that means he challenges for the championship next time on the show against either the reigning champion, the magnificent one, or cranky barista, Ken Patera. And the votes have been tabulated. The votes are in. The winner and still champion, 
none other than the magnificent one. And we're going to go to him in Sunset Beach, Hawaii in just a moment. But first, let's hear a word or two from cranky barista Ken Patera. Let's now spend a few minutes with cranky barista Ken Patera. Of course, he was in the championship match this week and he came up the loser, the winner of the magnificent one. Cranky barista Ken Patera, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Who is this? This is Brian from the Super Podcast. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What the fuck do you want? Uh, I just wanted to inform you that here you are, the top 10 in the voting. You have lost the championship match to the Magnificent One. Are you shitting me? You called the fucking Olympic strongman while I'm working to tell me that I fucking lost some Mickey Mouse uh, top 10? Indeed. That's exactly why I called you. I'll tell you what. The next time you're stuck in my nuts, count them both and tell me which one of those came in number one. <laughs> I ain't got time to fuck around with you. What's that? Get lost. Here he is, still the reigning 605 Super Podcast Super Universe Champion, none other than the Magnificent One, and I believe we have a connection right now to Sunset Beach, Hawaii, on the north shore of Oahu, and I believe we have the Magnificent One on the line right now. Magnificent One, are you there? It's already been all said and done, Brian Lass. Everybody knows in their heart who the king of the 605 Super Podcast Top 10 is. I barely need to utter a sound. I barely need to say a word to toot my own horn. I'm feeling laid back today, but I also feel like complimenting myself. I feel laid back today. I got some of the good stuff. The waves are tickling my feet. I've been having good workouts. I'm a nice bronze. I'm as beautiful as ever. Why don't you ask me about all the people I work with in my life, Brian Lass, instead of wasting my time when I could be enjoying myself okay. out in the surf right. doing my thing. Why don't you ask me about all the people I work with in my lifetime who I put on the map of professional wrestling, Magnificent One, Prince of Darkness. Do you know who you're talking to? What? Champion for how long of the 605? It's been a while. Go ahead and ask me any, any dynasty okay. in professional. Who would you like to know about who I work with? What family? What famous name could you name that I didn't destroy in the ring before everybody? Go ahead. Well, what, what about the uh, Graham family? Graham. Crazy Luke Graham. Best of all. The most famous <laughs> member of the Graham family. What else do you want to know? Well, I guess you're not laid back anymore, but hold on. Crazy Luke Graham's the best member of the Graham family. No. Are you even qualified? Crazy Luke Graham Jr., I said. Crazy Luke Graham Jr. <laughs> Who else would you like to know about? There's a lot of my segment tonight that we need to get to. If I'm going to cling on to my championship, which is the most important thing to me, besides the blood that runs through my veins, I bleed the 605. And my endocrinologist said, man, you are fucked up. <laughs> Go ahead, name me, name me any, 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 name any famous wrestling family. I work with everybody. What about the Guerreros? Mondo Guerrero. <laughs> what? Is what? what? what the just, fuck is so funny? I don't understand what, what you're doing. What the fuck is so funny about Mondo fucking Guerrero? What, what is A it? member of the traveling. I name a wrestling what? family and you just spit out a name at me? I don't understand, man. What? 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 The Armstrongs. Scott and Steve Armstrong. The best arm. The Von Erichs. Lance and Lacey Von Eric, take your pick. I work with all of them. The Wyndham family. You got Blackjack, you got Barry. I work with Kendall, the best. Only the cream for the, only, only the best for me. 
What would you like to know? Carlos Mata, Stan Vachon, Jackie Fulton, Vic Steamboat, Lou Perez, Johnny Rich, <laughs> Jerry Valiant, Mondo Guerrero. What else do you want to know? Paul Duke, Jerry Oates, Bart Batten, Brett Sawyer. Ted DiBiase, right? You like him? Everybody loves Oh, Mr. NWA, I work with his son, Ted DiBiase Jr. Thank you. Briscoe. Oh, one of the biggest names in Florida. West Briscoe. What's, what's more prestigious than that? I don't understand what Briscoe. this is, Magnum. So when you worked with the worst member of every family? How dare you? That's an insult <laughs> to professional wrestling. What? You're going to be banned at every... I can't believe you said that. I just worked with the carpenters that built this great sport of ours. Hey. Let me introduce a great friend of mine. <laughs> okay, let's just move forward. I don't have a whole bunch of people here today. I don't have a room full of people in my rumpus room because I have opened this safe. I brought out the good stuff because I got two of the best guests, two of the most impressive. I flew them all the way out to the island for my birthday. And the first one, all the way from England, Kentrishire, England. Lord Apnea Hayes. That's right. It's Lord Alfred Hayes with sleep apnea, baby. And you better get with it. Come on. Lord Apnea Hayes. Come over here and talk to Brian. Last for one second. Please. Oh, you people might be dubious. You're about to get an education in what a true English gentleman sounds Hello. <laughs> Is this Brian Nurse's lost? Yes. Hello, Lord Apnea Hayes. I understand that you're at the helm of some sort of farm report or sideshow bulletin or something that you publish. Will... Mr. Morocco has asked me to come on and educate you people as to the fine art of professional wrestling. Okay. Now, Brian, I was educated, as you know, not only in the most strenuous of circumstances in Wigan, <laughs> England, as well as educated under the Queen's watchful glance. I would like to know where you attended, or what was it that you graduated from over here? Some sort of technical school, I understand? <laughs> you know how to work with wheels and gears? Are you good at soldering whatever you animals do over here to put your pennies together in order to buy some Walmart goods? Why don't you tell me where you went to school, Brian? So I'm taking it that Lord Apnea Hayes is a heel, like the manager version of Lord Alfred Hayes. Not the, uh, not the... What the hell was that? And that's the story of how my mother came to nickname me Horsecock. <laughs> Hold on, what was that noise? <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes the doctor tells me that I have sleep apnea, oh, and I yes! think he's full of... <laughs> I think he's full of pish posh, because as far as I know, <laughs> I was telling you about my mother's inspection of my bodily parts, which occurred from the ages of eight until the royal age of 23. So, <laughs> what do you think about my story of how my mother came to nickname me Horsecock? I think it must be a fantastic story, uh, Lord Apnea Hayes. And, uh, All right, now I've been around since the olden times. The olden times. What is your earliest recollection of professional wrestling as you know it? Earliest recollection for me would probably be around 1985, 1986. When the, uh, when the... <laughs> and 
from that day on, I still can't eat a roast beef sandwich without thinking of her. And all the boys would call her when she entered the room, much to my dismay, Arby. Okay, hold on. What? It was most embarrassing. It sounds like You see, it. she had a situation going on downstairs that unfortunately most of the boys became aware of during a rather randy, ribald evening in the hotel. All right, Lord Anthony Hayes, I think I got the gist of what you're saying out there, but uh, is there any change you Is there anything you would like to ask me, a font of knowledge for over a hundred years? <laughs> well, yes, there is something I'd like to ask you. Can you put the Magnificent one back on the line? <laughs> According to the rule of comedy, we have one more, so I will... <laughs> so needless to say, the bush on that day was so dense that I almost needed to charter an expedition to find my way home. <laughs> ah, but that was the 70s. My 70s. <laughs> Magnificent one, please. What do you think of that? That, a new favorite that, that on was the something. 605. That was surely something, Magnificent One. I'm glad uh, he happened to be in your house, even though the rumpus room is full today. But uh, glad now you can see why there's so little room, so little room, such a suspicious occasion. Who else is here? Oh, my God. I can't believe it. We we're just watching some RuPaul the other day. <laughs> he came by. He had some products for me to improve my skin. It's fierce Terry Funk. What? Fierce Terry Funk. My eye shadow. My eye shadow. <laughs> I can't find my goddamn eye shadow. Which one of you bitches took my eye shadow? Who was it? Who was Are you jealous of me, Brian? You're all jealous of my firm ass and my athlete's body, Brian. You... Bitch, look at these cheekbones. Look at these perfect cheekbones, Brian. Look at my dimples. I am fire, bitches. <laughs> I also want to give a shout out to my girls. They're at the club tonight, and that's where I'm going to be. <laughs> so get ready for me, misdiagnosed Patty Helmentes, Helen a handbasket, Ellen Degenerate. Supreme what? Antiquities, Patty Melt, Sally Port, Lazy Susan. I'm going to see all you bitches there. Don't look out. Okay. Okay. That's Fierce Terry Funk. Here's a handful. Oh, yeah. That's it for the Morocco, for the Magnificent One this week. <laughs> Do you have anything else that you would like to know from me, Brian Lash? Well, yeah. Hold on. Before you go, Magnificent One, we haven't addressed your challenge next time in the top 10. The man at number one this week will be the man challenging you. And that, of course, is an old nemesis of yours, the handsome boogeyman, not Jimmy Valiant. Jimmy Valiant. You can't spell VD without Jimmy Valiant. Um, <laughs> I have not prepared for this challenge this week. You trying to throw me a curveball. I thought Ken Patero was in the top spot. I didn't even reserve any comment for him. You beat him. So, you beat him. That's why you're going against the handsome boogeyman. All right. Well, I don't look at the cheat sheets. I like to. My manager is supposed to inform me of all this. I'm not aware of all the, all the easy this and that. And you, you won gold doubloons and you won championships and you're getting awards. I can't keep it. I can't keep track of all. As far as anybody that's going to compete against me, gold good luck. Because people of the 605 know 
that I am going to reign for exactly 1,001 years because that is what I deem appropriate. So, as always, go fuck yourself and mahalo. Well, there he is, the reigning champion, the magnificent one. And, of course, the top 10 can be voted on at facebook.com slash superpodcast. The post will go up a few days after the show comes out for the top 10 and then probably a day later for the championship match, which next time will be the magnificent one once again against the handsome boogeyman. This is becoming an epic rivalry, if I may say so myself. But as we move on with the show, Mike, a few notes here. I want to give a couple thanks to people who help out with each and every episode of this program and have helped out with this one. And that, of course, is Jace Nakarado, a big help to us, as well as Lou Kippelman, the superstar producer that's a part of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And I also want to thank Travis Heckel for continuing to knock out some amazing artwork for not just the 605, but for all Arcadian Vanguard shows. Thank you, gentlemen. I very much appreciate not only your help, but you being on the team. And speaking of the team, I want to talk about one of our team members here at the Super Podcast, Jerry Gray, the golden boy. As you guys know, he has been on so many episodes and has really delighted us with amazing stories, both funny stories as well as stories that shed light on history. And that's what it's all about. And of course, you guys know how it works. Jerry is battling stage four cancer. It has wiped him out in more ways than one, not just physically, not just financially, but it's really taken a toll on Jerry. And if you've listened to him on the show, I can't imagine that you think anything other than the fact that he is a good guy. And I'll tell you something from my dealings with him for over many years. He really is. So I would ask you, if you have anything to spare, if you enjoy Jerry on the show, please consider going to his GoFundMe page and helping him out. That link is tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. Jerry is a great friend of this show. Like I said, if you enjoy him here, please, there's no excuse. Help him out. Every penny, every dollar helps. And if every listener donated just $1, he would have exceeded his goal several times already. So consider helping him out. Once again, tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. And as we move on to show, I want to make mention of one other thing. Ron Fuller. Of course, me and Ron do the Studcast each and every week. And we also do the Super Studcast and the rest of the story for patrons of the Studcast. And what that means is each month we deliver extra content, doing a deep dive into wrestling history on various topics, whether it be the Knoxville Wrestling War or the Georgia Wrestling War, or Ron in Japan. We also have conversations with Legends of Wrestling. Hear Ron talk with Terry Funk, with Stan Hansen, and so many more. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, consider becoming a patron of the Studcast. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash studcast. It's only $2.99 to access the additional three-plus hours each month of content. I guarantee you, you will enjoy it. It's the best deal in wrestling. Once again, patreon.com slash studcast. And from there, let's now go to the latest installment of Pandemonium Theater. Welcome to another edition of Pandemonium Theater. I'm your narrator, Lou Kippelman. And today is part four of our reading of Pandemonium Inc. by Craig A. Williams. Today's pandemonium players are the great Brian Last as Vince McMahon Jr. and Captain Lou Albano, Howard Baum as Vince McMahon Sr. and the Roadie, Dan Farron as Bob Backlund, Amy Lee as Linda McMahon, yours truly as the waiter, and Mike O'Gorman as Andre the Giant. Cut to Exterior, Bangor Auditorium, Afternoon. 
McMahon steps out of his Buick in the parking lot of a tiny regional arena. Interior, Bangor Auditorium, continuous. Walking through the rundown venue, McMahon stumbles upon some roadies as they set up a stage. State-of-the-art lighting rigs and sound equipment. Gotta clear out, bro. Crew only. Crew for what? You live in a fucking cave or something. I'm married with two kids and a full-time job. You hippie burnout leftover. Now what the fuck is all this? Like fucking Zeppelin, man! Cut to interior, Bangor Auditorium, later. Lights explode over a sold-out crowd, losing their minds, while Led Zeppelin melts their faces. McMahon absorbs the lights, the sounds, and especially the fervor of the crowd. He also takes the joint that's passed to him as we... Cut to interior, Bangor Auditorium, a few days later. McMahon and Linda watch as the same lighting and sound rigs are set up around his wrestling ring. Maybe you can help me understand something here, Vince. We bring in 50, maybe 100 bucks tonight. All this gear is costing us 500. So how do we, you know, feed our kids and pay our rent if we're losing $400 a night? We don't get the box office if we don't create the event. I wish you'd seen these kids at that concert. It was like a religious experience for them. Wrestling can be the same. Okay. But until that happens, maybe your dad can front us a little. He doesn't know, and I don't want him to. Vince! He's going to retire soon. He needs to know I can handle this business. They're interrupted by Lou Albano and a babyface named Bob Backlund. Me and Bobby had a few questions on the script. Questions? Mostly Bobby. Uh, after I hold Lou in a Boston Crab, he rolls out of it, then throws me out of the ring. And then the fight goes into the stands. Right. I take it into the parking lot and down the highway if the audience could see it. Okay, but wrestling. It, it, it takes place inside a wrestling ring. Otherwise, it's just a... A, a brawl? A fracas? A riot? Pandemonium? You're new here, Beckland, so I'll explain this to you one time. You guys are characters in a storyline. You, Lou Albano, are the veteran who discovered this marvel of an athlete named Bob Backlund, a bona fide NCAA wrestling champion, and turned him into the star he is today. Now the ungrateful little shit has gotten too big for his britches and turned his back on his mentor, and you're devastated, infuriated, so much so that fuck the rules and tradition. You're going to make him pay for real. And that means doing something totally unexpected, something that audience has never seen before, and that's throwing his thick ass out of the ring and kicking it into the stands. Because that's just how pissed off you are. And it's just how pissed off everyone in the audience is, because they all got some little asshole who got the promotion or the raise or the girl they didn't get. And you, you ungrateful fuck, We'll be on your way to being champion of this goddamn league if you just keep that cock gobbler of yours closed and stick to my script. Any more questions? Linda watches as the two wrestlers slink away. Backlund's a little vanilla to hold the belt, isn't he? 
He's got the pedigree the NWA guys jerk off to. Who cares about pedigree? People want spectacle. They want Led Zeppelin, and we're giving them the fucking Osmonds. Cut to interior, Le Pichet Restaurant, Montreal, night. McMahon and Linda are dressed in late 70s elegance as they dine at a small French bistro. Montreal, Quebec, 1977. Clearly, they are enjoying every bite and every sip of wine. I'm sure we can't afford it, but that was possibly the best meal I've ever had. It ain't Paris, but it's as close to it as the Buick could take us. It's a very romantic surprise, Vin. To ten years, with the most beautiful, intelligent woman I've ever known. The perfect mother to our precious children. And a hard-ass chief operating officer. As they clink glasses, a waiter comes by. Everything to your satisfaction, monsieur? Meh. Pardon? Meh. That's American for, no, it wasn't. Matter of fact, it was quite, how do you say, shitty. Vince. We. Oui, that's the word. Shitty. And I'd like to tell your shitty owner how shitty I think his shitty frog food is to his shitty frog face. As the waiter disappears. Are you drunk? Linda's eyes go wide as we whip pan to the kitchen, where an impossibly massive human being appears in the doorway. Andre the Giant, 7 foot 4, 520 pounds, in otherwise gentle giant, unless you insult his cooking. You insult my restaurant. You insult my food. Mag fucking magnificent. You son of a bitch! You brought me up here on a recruiting trip. Linda, meet Andre Rene Rusimov. Led fucking Zeppelin. Can I apologize by buying you a drink or 12? Cut to a small newspaper blurb from Bangor. Giant turns over car in traffic altercation. Pull back to interior Le Pichet restaurant later. The place is empty now, chairs turned upside down on tables, except for the one where McMahon and Linda sit with Andre, crammed into one of his bistro chairs. Saw this in the local paper. Had to come see this giant for myself. He crashed into me, said Valentin Fins, so I turned his car upside down. Imagine that. You ever wrestled? Professionally? I don't want anything to do with that. All my life, I've been a freak show. When I was 12 years old, I was 6 foot 3, 240 pounds. Acromegaly. Gigantism. Sounds like fun to you. But for me, it's not so fun. I don't want to fight. I want a quiet life. Run my bistro. Raise my family. You're married? Off Andre's look. Sorry. It's just, how do you, I mean, how does she? She is a very happy woman. Smiles all the time. You're a goddamn marvel, Andre. An eighth wonder of the world. 
I could make you a millionaire many, many, many times over. And you too, I'd guess. It's a five-hour drive down to Maine. One fight, no contract. See how you like it. Andre considers. Well, Drake, if you can stay conscious longer than me, I will wrestle for you this one time. That's not fair. It's not my fault I'll wear you by 300 pounds. There's that, sure. But I'm also already a bottle up on you. Andre grabs a bottle and rips the cork out. <laughs> Downs it and then slams the empty in front of McMahon. Now we are even. With a shrug, McMahon pours himself a glass, then Andre, as we fade to Interior, Le Pache Restaurant, Dawn. Thump. McMahon passes out cold onto the floor. Linda pushes away from the table as Andre pours himself another glass. Well, it was nice meeting you, and I thank you for the meal. But I should probably get his dumb ass back to the hotel. We can't afford. Wait a second before you go. Motions for her to sit. What he says about the money. Is that true? I don't know, Andre. Right now we have a lien on our house because we owe the IRS $43,000 back in taxes. But he sees something in this that no one else does. No one ever has. This thing I have that makes me so big, it won't go away. I'll be lucky if I see age 45. My wife, my daughter, I want them to have something after I am gone. I've been in love with Vince since we were 14. And I can tell you, he's a lot like that condition of yours. He won't go away either. And he's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Andre pours her some wine. I like you. I'll cook for you when I come down to Russell. As they clink classes, Vince groans a little as we cut to interior Bangor Auditorium, night. Theme music, for example, the Alan Parsons Project Sirius, a.k.a. the Chicago Bulls theme song, plays as stage lights illuminate a darkened arena. A spotlight beams down on McMahon as he stands in the center of the ring. And now, ladies and gentlemen, tonight's featured event. In this corner, standing six feet, one inch tall, weighing 241 pounds, from Princeton, Minnesota, Bob Backlund! McMahon holds up Backlund's arm. Please don't make me do this, Vince. And his challenger, from Grenoble, France, by way of Montreal, standing seven feet, four inches tall, weighing in at 540 pounds, the eighth wonder of the world, Andre the Giant! The spotlight comes down on Andre as he enters the arena to gasps from the audience and other wrestlers. I'm sorry, okay? I won't argue about the script ever again. I know that. Good luck, Bob. It'll be over before you know it. Seeing no way out, Backlund makes his way toward Andre a dolphin who's just been dropped in a tank with a blue whale. As the bell rings, 
Backlund goes after Andre and bounces right off. He lands a series of blows to Andre's gut. Nothing. He tries for a headlock, but can't even get up that high. The crowd loves it. Andre grabs Backlund by the throat and hoists him into the air with one hand. As Backlund flails, Andre chucks him to the mat with a thud. Andre takes a run at the ropes, bounces off, and, as Backlund's eyes go wide in horror, wham! Andre belly flops onto him and we cut to black. Fade up on Exterior, McMahon's house, day. McMahon's kids, Shane's now ten and Stephanie's six, are chased by McMahon while Andre cooks some delicious shit on the grill. McMahon sees Senior, and the joy disappears. Go say hi to Uncle Gino. The kids run over to Gorilla Monsoon as McMahon approaches his dad, who marvels at Andre. As advertised, that is a fucking giant. Who's the other moose? Among the crowd is Jesse the Body Ventura. Jesse Ventura? Navy Special Ops. Really? Off McMahon's look. Whatever. You've got half my business in New England now, and the rest of the Wrestling Alliance clamoring for a bout with your guys. Not a fucking chance. Tell me something, Pop. You sent me up here to fail, right? But you didn't, and it's time for me to step down. Business is good, I met some good-looking wool down in Florida, and I don't need the ulcers anymore. This concludes the latest edition of Pandemonium Theater. Join us again next time for the continuing adventures of Vince McMahon Jr. For Pandemonium Theater, I'm Lou Kippelman. There it is, the latest installment of Pandemonium Theater, and I want to thank all of our fine Pandemonium players, especially Michael Gorman for joining the show this week, and we're going to hopefully have Mike on the show next time to talk a little bit about his Andre the Giant impression. What did you think of that Andre the Giant, Mike? I I need him to, you got to do me this favor, okay? <laughs> have you, you've seen the movie I Like to Hurt People, right? Of course. But the Sheik, I need you, I need you desperately to get him to say, are you talking to Andre? Are you talking like, to Andre? Please, yes, please do that for me. <laughs> <laughs> I will, and then I'll see if he can put you on top of your car. Just like Andre did in that movie. But uh, we'll hopefully have him on the show. Very, very good guy and very, very gracious with his time, and I'm very appreciative of that. And uh, you should check him out. I think you can see Mike on HBO's Vice Principles. So uh, if anyone has checked that out, you've seen him. And if you haven't, go and check it out. A good guy. Support his work because he supports the Super Podcast. And from there, let's go to another guy who's a big friend of the Super Podcast, John Arezzi. We've had John on the show several times, and I wanted to have John on again to talk about Pedro Morales, who just recently passed away. Really one of the great drawing cards in the history of professional wrestling. If you look at his run in Madison Square Garden, it is super impressive. And I think other than Billy Graham, no one had the success he had for that period of time in Madison Square Garden. He also may have had the coolest opponents, I think, Mike, because he had what? Blackjack Mulligan, Freddie Blassie, King Curtis, Ray Stevens, Larry Hennig. I mean, it's just one really cool opponent after another. And John was there for most of those matches. And John also filmed a lot of those matches. So I wanted to get John's memories of witnessing Pedro, not only on TV, but once he got to attend shows at Madison Square Garden, as well as the famous Pedro versus Bruno San Martino match at Shea Stadium. Let's go to this conversation right now with the man behind Pro Wrestling Spotlight, 
John Arezzi. I am very happy today to welcome back to the Super Podcast a great friend of the show, a man whose pro wrestling spotlight still lives on in the hearts and minds of wrestling fans in the New York area to this very day, and that is your friend and mine, John Arezzi. John, welcome back to the show. Hey, pleasure to be here, Brian. Good to talk to you again. I thought about you the other day just because I remember you and I sitting at a Met game and you taking out your phone and showing me some footage and saying, Wayne, do you see this? And it was perfect quality footage that you had filmed, literally filmed, not taped, but filmed at Madison Square Garden. And some of the footage you showed me was Pedro Morales defending the World Heavyweight Championship. And it was just incredible footage, even though there was no sound. You could feel the energy of the crowd. You could feel how explosive it was. And it made me want to talk to you about Pedro, because obviously he just passed away. A legendary career, especially in the Northeast, where he was a world champion, intercontinental champion, as well as a tag team champion. And you got to see almost his entire run as champion in Madison Square Garden. Is that correct? That is true. When did you first see Pedro Morales? What is your first memory of him? Uh, my first memory of Morales was uh, uh, early on in, in 71 uh, after the Bruno San Martino uh, lost to Koloff and then after Morales had won. Uh, and that's when I really got introduced to Pedro Morales at the time. Obviously, Bruno losing was a big shock to you. You were already a wrestling fan. Pedro was already in there as the U.S. champion. Was it something where you had any idea that he would be in that kind of position? Was it something where you saw him as a middle-of-the-card guy? Where did you see him before he won the world title? Well, that was, that was I hadn't seen Morales at all, really. I'd heard about him, read about him in the magazines, uh, because I had, I had stopped really watching it for a while because I, uh, the TV situation in New York wasn't really fluid. And when I opened up Newsday, the Long Island newspaper, January 19th, 1971, and in the sports section, there was a huge story on, on San Martino losing. So that was a shock. I couldn't even believe that Bruno lost. And it kind of piqued my interest, and that's when I looked for wrestling again and found Morales. So that was really the first time I saw Pedro. And even throughout his run, his early run in, in 71, his first uh, several title defenses, uh, I wasn't that really in tune with uh, what was going on in the WWF at the time. It wasn't until the summer of 1971 when I was at a friend's house. We had a sleepover outside in the backyard. It was a bunch of us friends from high school got together, and I met this kid who I went to school with, and we started talking about wrestling. And he said he would go to Madison Square Garden. And remember, that's when you had to be 14 or over right. to get into the garden. So at that point, uh, in 1971, I think I was 15. That was just 14 years old. So then it was like he, go to, he, he went to the garden. I was like, all right, I'm 14 now. I could go. So he invited me to go, to his, go with his dad. And that was in August of 71 when Morales faced Stan the Man Stasiak at the garden. That was my first show, and I was hooked. I was back in fully well before we get there let's talk about some of the early title defenses he had at madison square garden because of course pedro at msg is a legendary run it was so successful it was bigger crowds than bruno had ever had at madison square garden up to that point it was a big deal and pedro wins the title on february 8th 71 from ivan koloff setting a new attendance record according to the newspapers of course and then on march 15th 71 pedro's first title defense at msg he defeats blackjack mulligan 
followed by a May 24th, 71 title defense over Tarzan Tyler. Following that, Pedro beats Crazy Luke Graham on June 21st, 1971. And then following that, on July 24th, 71, a tag team match, Pedro and Gorilla Monsoon defeated the international tag team champions, Luke Graham and Tarzan Tyler. It is following this show, August 30th, 1971, where Stan Stasiak defeated the world champion Pedro Morales when the referee stopped the match due to blood. It is that show where you, John Arezzi, attended your first ever wrestling match. What do you remember about that night, specifically the atmosphere around Pedro and his match? Well, what I remember most about that match in August of 1971 was the electricity, the crowd, and the, the majority of the audience were Puerto Rican. So the love and the passion they had for Morales was something that electrified the arena, and I was in awe really at, at how at how passionate and electric and frenzied that crowd was. And when they busted, when, when Morales got busted open on uh, that match, I remember it vividly. There were, there was, it, was, it, was a lot of, it was a lot of blood. And I was, I was just enthralled at it. And the frenzy of the crowd, I thought there was going to be a riot. And anytime Morales was in any trouble, the crowd would kind of surge the ring. Like they were going to explode. So that's what I remember most about that night. But I was hooked after that. I, I was like, I'm going every show. I mean, back then, they couldn't even have the managers stay at ringside at a lot of these shows, right? Because they were afraid fans would get to them. Right. They, uh, they, they chased the managers away right after the bell rang, and that was it. The managers were all chased. Uh, but that was, a, uh, that was a very, very exciting time, and that's what really, really gave me, uh, gave me the bug to just kind of like <laughs> be so passionate about the product and, and, and going and made sure that I won every single month and I won every single month right through 1977. Well, of course, the next month you would get a main event of Pedro Morales once again against Stan Stasiak in a Texas death match, which he would win and you would go. So was it the same process? Was it, did you go with your friend again, the Madison square garden? How was show two? For yeah. You? Yeah. Show two was wonderful because I was hooked. So what I did, my friend, uh, my friend, Frank, who I went to the first show with, I decided to put a group together. So I, my older sister, her friends, uh, a couple of my neighbors. So I had a group of about 10 people that went to that second show and uh, had bought ringside seats. And we were like in the seventh row. So I had like 10 people with me on that show. So it was immediately like I took control of putting together these group outings. Uh, and that lasted through uh, through the end of the year of 71. Uh, and that included that uh, Stasiak Texas death match, which was really disappointing because I thought a Texas death match was going to be like what you'd read about in the magazines and other territories. But it was really just just like a regular match. It didn't it didn't really it didn't really change at all. Although you know it was just regular rules, but it was still a frenzied crowd. And Morales uh, Morales got the victory that night. And uh, then of course in December of that year was uh, the first time I'd ever seen uh, the great Freddie Blassie live. Well, Freddie Blassie would come in for two title matches against Pedro Morales. Of course, one of them being the Roman Gladiator death match, or Roman Gladiator match, I think it was called here, which was, of course, a creation of Jeff Walton, a friend of the show and a friend of yours out in Los Angeles. But here, you know, so many people think of John Arezzi, and they probably still think of Fred Blassie. What was it like for you to finally see him, and what were those matches like? Here's Fred Blassie, even though he's older and he's at a late stage in his career, still a heel that gets heat. What were the matches like with him and Morales? I was just totally, and I, and I wasn't totally smartened up to the business at the time. 
so seeing Morales and just and seeing Blassie rather come out of that dressing room for the first time against Morales with that white hair and that tan and him just erupting the crowd into this frenzy of booze and him being so believable and the best heel that I'd ever seen and to this day that I've ever seen. And then him in the ring against Morales. It was kind of like I was seeing the Beatles in a way, if you're, you know, a strong music buff, because I'd read so much about Blassie. And then him and Morales going at it in that first match and then into that uh, gladiator death match. It was it was an incredible experience just being there live to see the crowd, uh, to see how uh, how frenzied they were, to see the passion, the action. Uh, there was nothing like it. And to this day, it's just such a vivid memory of mine. You mentioned that you went to these shows with your group. Where were you guys sitting? We were about seventh row ringside. So pretty close, pretty close to the action. The next two title defenses at MSG, January 31st and February 21st, 1972, Pedro defeats Professor Toru Tanaka. Do you have any memories of those matches? Uh, I do. In those matches in the first quarter of uh, 1972, the group had dissipated. I guess they weren't as frenzied as I was, and I had gotten the wrestling bug, so uh, it was just myself and, and my friend Frank going again to... Uh, see the matches and and uh, so those matches were not as quite as memorable for me as were those ringside matches and seeing Freddie Blassie uh, but I were I were I did attend those shows but they didn't they weren't standouts uh, because uh, you know even the Seclunas and and uh, the King Curtises and the Tanakas were just not uh, performers at that time that I was really into very much. The next show is really interesting because it's March 13th, 1972, and Pedro Morales defeats, you just mentioned him, Baron Mikel Sakuna, but also Bruno San Martino returns and wrestles Smasher Sloan, of course, defeating him with a backbreaker. What are your memories of what it was like when Bruno and Pedro would be on the same show in terms of how the crowd reacted to one versus the other during this specific time period? I would say that Bruno coming back against Smasher Sloan, he got a huge reaction, but Morales got a bigger reaction, and I think it was just because of the, the capacity of the crowd at that time were, were, were the Puerto Rican fans who Morales was their hero. So they're the ones that bought most of the tickets. What did you think? I mean, this is, was this the first time you got to see Bruno live? Absolutely. It was great. It was, it was a dream come true for me because Bruno was my hero. And seeing him against Master Sloan, who I had remembered from the 60s, when I first started watching wrestling, uh, Smasher Sloan was, uh, was a performer at the time, and then him coming back, and then Bruno, and then Bruno winning with the, uh, the backbreaker at, at that show. It was a dream come true for me to see, to see Bruno. It really was. The next month, you get Pedro on April 17, 1972, pinning King Curtis. He had wrestled King Curtis several times in MSG. Do you remember those matches well? Yes, I do. I remember the ones later on, uh, back uh, in 73, when Curtis had come back uh, with the Grand Wizard as manager, because that's when I actually uh, began filming those matches. All right, we'll talk more about them when we get to that in a minute. But on May 22nd, Pedro defeated Pampero Furpo. That must have been an interesting one. Yes, it was. I remember all the promos of that because then, you know, at, at that time, again, I was watching every week and I was hooked again. And, and I still love those promos from Pampero Furpo. Uh, he was a believable heel. And, and that was kind of the first 
contender that I actually thought could have a shot at beating Morales. And remember, I really wasn't smartened up to the business yet. So I was still kind of half and half on, is this real or is this not? And I thought Furpo had a legitimate shot, as I did with Blassie, by the way. What about the next month? June 2nd, 72, Pedro defeated Luke Graham, another frequent opponent of his, the lesser, dare I say, of all the Graham brothers in wrestling. But what did you think yes. of Crazy Luke as a contender? Uh, I just, I used to love the gimmick uh, when, when he was, you know, when he was the crazy one and he, he was somewhat believable, but he certainly uh, didn't have, uh, he didn't have the uh, uh, the excitement level uh, in comparison to some of the other contenders that were going against Morales at that time. That was kind of a sleeper match. On July 1st, 72, Pedro defeated George the Animal Steel. An early version of George Animal Steel, or maybe a midway version of George Animal Steel. Not yet the animal he would become in the 80s, but a little bit further away from the animal he was just a couple years earlier. Right, he was in that mid-level part. Uh, I remember seeing him early on uh, when he first broke in and was always someone that you would be afraid of. And then that uh, that mid-level uh, steel uh, of the 70s was still very believable, and it was an exciting match. But once again, uh, it wasn't uh, wasn't really like one of the standout uh, defenses that I saw Morales at, uh, as, as far as what my recollection is to this day. On July 29th, 72, Pedro defeated the Spoiler, who was there and was not able to wear his mask at this period of time, correct? Correct. That is That is right. And I believe he was with Captain Lou at the time. Yes, he was. It was more exciting seeing Captain Lou at the time than it was seeing the spoiler. (laughs) He would always get a big reaction from the crowd at MSG, wouldn't he, Captain Lou? Yes, he did. All the time. All the time. On September 2nd, 72, this is a big one, Pedro defeated Ernie Ladd. What did you think of Ernie Ladd? Did you take him serious as a contender at this period of time? Uh, Yes, yes, I did. Ernie Ladd was certainly someone that I watched when I was a kid back in the late 60s, early 60s, mid-60s. And I thought he was a legitimate contender because Ernie was just this big dude and very believable former football player. And I thought he had a legitimate shot at Morales. On September 30th, they went to Shea Stadium with the famous, infamous, whatever you want to call it, Pedro Morales versus Bruno San Martino, babyface versus babyface matchup. You were there, John. I want to ask you about that night, that matchup, but in the months beforehand at Madison Square Garden, did you ever hear anything in the crowd, people comparing Bruno to Pedro, people talking about who would win in a match between Bruno and Pedro? Yeah, that was always a discussion that the fans would have. And, uh, and, and at that time, before the Garden shows, uh, we would all uh, congregate outside uh, to use our little instamatic cameras and take pictures of the guys coming in. So that was always kind of an argument, who would win between Bruno and Pedro. And there was never a doubt in my mind that if Bruno was ever in the ring with Pedro Morales, that Bruno would absolutely win. So that was, uh, that was, always, that was always the argument. And the majority of fans that hung out outside by the dressing room entrance, the, the entrance to Madison Square Garden, were all Bruno fans. So that argument was going to be Bruno was going to win. What was it like that day at Shea Stadium? What was the crowd makeup? I know it was well, a rainy well, day. Well, leading up, le- leading up to that was the three-week angle that they did at uh, Philadelphia. I guess it was in Philadelphia when they teamed Bruno and Pedro together uh, leading up to the uh, the night where they 
they, they uh, it might have been all on one TV taping actually, uh, where they had Bruno and Pedro uh, wrestle one match and another. Then they were in against Tanaka and Fuji, and then the salt was thrown in their eyes, both of their eyes, and then they were blindly swinging away in the middle of the ring, and that's when they started connecting with, with each other. And that's when, uh, you know, a week later, it was like, that's when McMahon went on TV and made the announcement that the match of the century was going to take place at Shea Stadium. And I'll never forget it because I, I taped it on cassette, and I just went crazy. And immediately, uh, uh, with my friend, we, we got tickets uh, to that show at Shea Stadium on September 30th. And I'll never forget, uh, that was a very cold and rainy night it was it was just it was just gloomy and my dad who drove me and my friend to Shea Stadium he was I don't know you you guys are nuts what are you going to see this crap for <laughs> and he just he dropped us off outside Shea Stadium you couldn't believe where we were going and that was the night that I actually found out it was all a work because uh, we were standing in line waiting to get in uh, and uh, we, we went to the entrance of Chase Stadium, I guess, where the performers were going in, and, and, and a name that you might remember from the past, Professor Elliot. Do you remember that name by Elliot any Elliot Marin, yeah. Yes. Professor Elliot came outside and says, well, it's going to be a draw tonight. I was like, what do you mean it's going to be a draw? <laughs> I mean, it's going to be a draw. No one's going to win. I was like, get out of here. I, could, I didn't believe him. And my friend and I was like, no, it's not going to be a draw. And and that was kind of like it, it just ruined it for me that night because it turned out to be a draw. Then I realized that this was all a work. I was only 15 years old, but it was, that was the night it was like, all right, this is all phony. This is this is a work. So that was anticlimactic for me because I was absolutely dead sure that Bruno was going to walk out of that ring with the belt, and then it was a draw, and then it crushed me. Beyond you, who had just had wrestling ruined for him by Professor Elliot, <laughs> the, the rest of the crowd that was there on this rainy, cold night, how did they react to the draw? It was a lot of booze. It was, you know, it was the, the only excitement of that match, and that match was so boring because they just traded a lot of wrestling moves, arm bars and arm drags, and it really wasn't any, there wasn't any, like, punch to, to the face. There wasn't, it was all scientific. The most exciting part of the match was when George Steele, you know, attempted to do a run-in, and then he was grabbed by, you know, 15 or 20 security policemen to be, you know, dragged back into the dressing room. Uh, so that was a very, it was a very boring match where they built it as match of the century, but I, to, to me as a hardcore fan at the time, it, it was just, it, it was very anticlimactic. It was very boring. And coming off the angle, and of course the match at Shea on October 16th, 72 at MSG, Pedro teams up with Bruno San Martino to go against the aforementioned Professor Toru Tanaka and Mr. Fuji, who are the tag team champions. A best two out of three falls match, which Pedro and Bruno win via disqualification. What was it like seeing them as a team in MSG, the two biggest babyface attractions in New York in a generation? Well, that was explosive, too. The crowd was, was up for it. It was emotional. It was great, and especially with them holding the flags at the end of the match. It was it was really it was really a great experience to be able to see that and see them two together in the ring and 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 by that time it was like all right I know it's fake but I still love it. <laughs> well, the next two matches you would get from Pedro and MSG, November twenty seventh and December eighteenth seventy two. On paper they sound fantastic. I want to hear your memories. Pedro defeats Ray Stevens on both of those shows. 
This is Ray Stevens when he was still fairly young, before his body was completely beaten up. How good was he in 72? What were those matches like? Oh, he had a great, he, he, was, he, he, he was just great, great brawler, great bumps. I mean, just, you know, having him fly into the turnbuckle. And I believe he was busted open hard way um, in, in one of those matches. I do remember taking my Instamatic camera and still having those pictures somewhere because I do remember that he had a, that he had a knot over his eye and uh, there was blood. But he was a great brawler. Very, very, very believable. Very believable. That second show, John, December 1872, was also the debut of Mil Moscaris in Madison yes. Square Garden. How big a deal was that compared to the world title match? That was huge, much bigger, because there was Moscaris, and it was the mystery. Is he going to be allowed to wear the mask? Because El Olimpico, who would wrestle even on that show and previously, there was a, a law banning mask wrestlers in New York. So it was like, will Moscaris come out with the mask? And I was familiar with Mil Moscaris because of watching the, uh, the Channel 41, the tapes from Los Angeles, and seeing Moscaris uh, on those shows. So that was like, it was a big thrill to see him there. And it was, uh, it, it lived up to every one of the expectations. Uh, it was a phenomenal match. And it was seeing Mil Moscaris there right in front of you. It was amazing. John, what percentage of the crowd do you think were aware of him in advance? And also, this is a hard thing to gauge, but do you think a lot of people were watching the TV that was coming out of Los Angeles on Spanish International and later Florida Wrestling that aired on the same channel? Do you think a lot of the fans who regularly went to Madison Square Garden were watching all the available wrestling at that time? I do remember Moscow's getting a pop, uh, not an explosive pop, but a pop. So there, I would say, I would have to estimate if 30% of those fans, 25-30% of the fans were watching uh, the Olympic Auditorium tapes on Channel 41. That might be a fair estimate in regard to the number and, and the familiarity with, with Mill at the time. The next month's show is a big one for you personally. On January 15th, 1973, Pedro Morales defeats Moondog Maine, Lonnie Maine. And this was the first show that you actually filmed. So tell me about that, your memories of that night, but also what made you decide to get the camera? I knew I wanted to film these matches. I knew I wanted to have documentation of them, and I begged my parents for Christmas to get me uh, a, a camera so I could film the matches. And uh, I got my Christmas present, and it was an 8-millimeter um, camera, and, and uh, I took it to Madison Square Garden in January and filmed that match. And it was very, very exciting for me uh, just to be able to be there with an 8-millimeter camera filming and capturing the action. Uh, the, the match was a very exciting one too. Uh, and that's when you, that's when you really see the passion, the frenzy of the crowd because trying to film the match. And that was my first time ever filming. You would get pushed around because the fans were just surging the ring. And, uh, I was at ringside and, and, and it was hard to keep the camera still because you were getting, you know, bumped around by people and people were surging into the ring. And every time Morales hit uh, Lonnie Mayne with that left hand, the crowd would just go crazy. And uh, just the high spots that were in that match as well. When I look at the film today, uh, it's just like it was yesterday, just reliving it all and just hearing, hearing the crowd and how loud it was and, and how, how it popped uh, when Morales entered the ring. While he was in action, and then when he'd do his finishing move off the top rope and winning a match with a one-two-three, 
you couldn't hear yourself. It was that loud. Were you at all afraid about bringing your camera to the garden? Did you have confidence that you'd be able to film? You didn't think anyone would confiscate it or take it away or hassle you at all? I never even thought about it. Never gave it a second thought. I just have a camera bag. I'd have my Instamatic camera in there and my 8mm camera there, and I never got checked to uh, confiscate it. I mean, I didn't even think they checked anyone coming in those days. The next month on February 26, 73, Pedro once again against King Curtis, who he defeats on this night. What are your memories of that night and King Curtis as a challenger? I remember uh, I remember watching the TV leading up to it, and King Curtis was somebody that was very believable, very scary, had the wizard as the mouthpiece, and he was very unpredictable about what he would do in the ring. And I remember that uh, match vividly as well because I did capture it and have relived those moments recently by rewatching it and seeing the you know seeing King Curtis pick up uh, you know uh, uh, he took a camera uh, whether it was a plant or not from one of the photographers at ringside he took an actual 35 millimeter camera and started hitting Morales over the head with it and uh, so that was really kind of believable to me as well. Uh, and then Morales uh, finally won with the uh, one, two, three after the um, uh, after the full, uh, crossbody off the top rope. But very explosive again. Very wild crowd. Very passionate, frenzied crowd. I love the opponents that Pedro's had the last several shows: Ernie Ladd, Ray Stevens, Moondog Maine, King Curtis. Blassie's coming up again in a moment. These are guys mm-hmm. who are some of the best promos of all time. What were those promos like? I mean, obviously, that's where a lot of the heat came from, was Pedro going out there, talking in Spanish, also talking in English, and then these amazing heels. Unlike the Bruno era, where a guy would come in and they would do the three shows, or the Backlund era, too. Pedro, some of these guys got three title matches, but it was never three matches in a row. A lot of mixing and matching, and a lot of really the premier heels in wrestling coming in to get in title matches. Yeah, I think the uh, the promos sold it. I mean, each one of these promos. Morales was such a great uh, interview. Uh, you know, he had the broken English, but he was so passionate. And he would just work himself up into a frenzy when he would talk about these matches when McMahon was interviewing him. And, and uh, you know, hey, Vince, I've been ready for any type of action. And, and, and it would just, it would rile you up. No, he was one of the best, and uh, all of those, uh, all of those heels at the time, with the individual mouthpieces, whether it was you know Grand Wizarder or Freddie Blassie or Albano, it was just a magic time in the business because they were unscripted. These guys were just going for it, and uh, it was so believable that once you got to the Garden, the anticipation of seeing that main event. I mean, there was always a buzz every single show. And when the main event was on, it was explosive. It was like nothing else. What did you think the first time you saw, or maybe the only time, I don't know, but what did you think when you saw Moondog Maine eat a live goldfish on TV? <laughs> I do remember. I thought it was cool. I did. I thought it was very, very cool. <laughs> well, I mentioned it before, John. March 26, 73, Pedro, his third title match at Madison Square Garden, defeats Freddie Blassie. When he's deemed unable to continue, you actually get to film this one. You attended the first two matches. Now you get to film your hero, Fred Blassie. What do you remember about March 26, 73? Well, the biggest thing I remember even before the matches, that was the very first time I had actually personally met Fred Blassie. He had uh, written me uh, some letters after I started the fan club, and he told me he was going to be coming back in for the shot. And uh, that night he uh, sent me a letter inviting me back there 
and that was the that was the night I met him for the first time. It was the very first interview I ever conducted with anyone, and it was with Fred Blassie. And then that night, filming that match and seeing him come out, and just immediately the brawl started between him and Morales. It was it was electric. And to this day, I just I remember Blassie taking the string off of his trunk and wrapping it around Morales's throat. And I remember a fan throwing a flash cube into the ring that you would have on top of one of your Instamatic cameras back in the day, yeah. one of those disposable <laughs> flash cubes. And someone threw one into the ring, and then, and Freddie picked it up and raked Morales across the eyes with it, and then started <laughs> biting him. And 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 then you know Freddie outside the ring, and Morales hitting him against the turnbuckle, and then Blassie juicing and. And then, you know, him swinging it air because the blood was getting in his eyes and the referee finally calling it off and raising Morales' hand. It was, uh, it was to this day when I look at that film, and uh, I look at that quite often now that I've uncovered all of the uh, archives that I've found recently, uh, that is my favorite film to watch because of uh, how dynamic uh, those seven or eight minutes were. John, we have a few more opponents to talk about during Pedro's title defenses at Madison Square Garden, but up to this point and thinking about the remainder of his run, which of his opponents would you say had the most heat against him? Which one would be the most in fear of being stabbed or being attacked by angry Puerto Rican fans? Who had the most heat of all the opponents you saw at Madison Square Garden? Had to be Blassie, without a doubt. No without one else but Blassie. Yes. What was it? What was it about Blassie as Morales' opponent that he had so much heat? Well, because Blassie was such a believable villain, uh, heel, and Blassie with the, you know, you know, the, the biting, uh, the way they, uh, the way they actually even censored Blassie in the in the preliminary matches leading up to uh, the, the the title defense, uh, he had the fans scared, not only scared of him, but they hated him. How did they censor him? When he came back into the territory, I mean, he'd be biting each opponent. I remember he fought Mike Pappas, and then he fought Lee Wong, and he'd bite them open. And as soon as the blood started, they would put – it almost looked like electrical tape on the, <laughs> on the camera, like an X. And they'd put censored on it. And you hear McMahon, oh, you know, he's, he's bleeding profusely, and, and we can't show this to you. And, 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 and it would be just a big X on the screen. <laughs> so it was kind of just purely censored, like it was tape on, on top of the camera lens. Uh, that's, that's exactly how it looked. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, Blassie would come out because he, was, he just – and he snarled at them. And, he, and he, Blassie would provoke the crowd, you know, and, and that's what I remember most. I remember them carrying – I remember them carrying several fans out of the arena. Like the cops would just be dragging people out of there because they were trying to surge the ring. That's heat. Yeah, it was great. And then here's the one thing about the whole Morales run. And it wasn't this way with Bruno, and it wasn't this way with any other champion that I've ever seen. You were actually afraid that if Morales lost, there would be a full-scale riot. The roof would be blown off the place. So even when I was doing the Freddie Blassie newsletter, and I knew it was a work at that point, there was never going to be – there was never going to be – Pedro Morales losing anywhere, that there was a high concentration uh, of an ethnic crowd because of how passionate they were and how beloved he was. And when he later did lose the title, they kept it as far away from New York as they could. <laughs> yeah, they did it in Philly. Yeah. 
They couldn't do it in New York. There would be no, absolutely no way that Morales could lose in New York. And I don't know if you know, Brian, I mean, you're such a historian yourself. I mean, how many times did Morales ever lose in Madison Square Garden? Was it that one time only against Stasiak in August of, 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 in August of that year? I mean, I don't think Pedro lost at all after that. I think that might have been the only time he, he lost during that whole title reign. At the Garden. That's the only loss he had, even though it wasn't a pinfall loss, at the Garden during his entire title run and the period of time he was there afterwards. He would later be pinned in the 80s, but he had a long run where they couldn't pin him at Madison Square Garden. They were no. legitimately afraid of what would happen if yes. he was pinned. Yes, absolutely true. John, the next two matches, August 30th, 73, and June 4th, 73, Pedro defends against and defeats. Don Leo Jonathan, a mighty imposing wrestler and really a phenomenal wrestler considering his size and the things he was able to do in the ring. You filmed those matches. What do you remember about Pedro versus Don Leo? Those were the two matches that I felt in my heart that Morales was going to lose the strap to Don Leo. Don Leo was so much larger than him. He was very agile, very believable. I thought that he was going to be the one to beat Morales. I wasn't an insider or anything close to it at that point, but that was the guy I thought was going to beat Morales. And the films that I have, uh, I still remember to this day the disappointment that I had because I wanted Don Leo to win against him so badly that I was very, very angry and very frustrated <laughs> when Morales you know, came out of those two matches still with the title. You couldn't openly cheer against Pedro at the Garden, especially in the seventh row. You would have been killed, but... You, you couldn't. At this point in time, John, are you a heel fan? Are you a full-blown heel fan? Absolutely. Heel fan. Yes. Because even though Morales... And he, I look at Pedro today a heck of a lot different than I did back in the day. Because I never, I never really was a huge Morales fan back in the day. Today I am. And I, I, I grew to appreciate what he did for how the fans reacted to him. Because those, for me, were magical times. Those, for me, and I wish every fan had the opportunity to see how it really was when he had his title reign. Because you felt like every one of those matches was a legit shoot because of how crazy the atmosphere was. It sucked you in. How would you compare that atmosphere to the second Bruno title reign, which from everything I've heard was even hotter than his first one? And obviously he was a bigger draw and a better draw at that period of time than he was even earlier in his career. But how would you compare, let's say, 1975, 1976, the fans reacting to Bruno to earlier on with Pedro? Uh, I don't think you were afraid of your life if Bruno was going to lose. I mean, the crowds were electric, and when Bruno made his way out into the to the ring from the dressing room with Skolan, I mean, the crowd would erupt. You know, can I compare it to the same type of eruption that Morales had when he came out and was in action? It was close. It was more of a how can I how can I say that? I mean, it was it was more of a you know such a beloved, passionate uh, crowd for Bruno, the respect, the hero, the legend. Everything that Bruno was, and with Morales, it was a di it was kind of a different eruption. If you, it, it was just kind of different. It was a different passion. It was more or less like it was more pride uh, from the Puerto Rican fans to 
Like this Pedro, Pedro Morales was their hero, their champion, their gladiator. And Bruno was just this legend that everyone was just so, so excited just to see him there in person. Uh, it was kind of a different vibe, but still very, very exciting to watch. John, we mentioned him a little bit earlier, and the next two title defenses on June 30th and July 23rd, 1973, sees Pedro defend against George the Animal Steel. The first match stopped due to blood after Morales repeatedly rammed Steele's face into the turnbuckles and punched him. And the second match, Joe Lewis was brought in as the special referee. What do you remember about those two matches with George the Animal Steel? Uh, the first one, I remember the, you know, the, the, the blood and, and George could never blade himself where the, the blood would go away pretty quickly. So, uh, <laughs> I do remember that with Steele. You know, he never really was a heavy, heavy bleeder when he, when he juiced. Uh, second match, it was just the fact that Joe Lewis was there as the referee. And I, I have that match on film as well. Uh, very historic to see Joe Lewis in the ring, but it was, it was a, a typical Morales match. It was seven, eight minutes, a lot of brawling, steel running around doing the madman thing. And Joe Lewis looked like he was half, half dead in the ring. <laughs> he couldn't even move around. He just, I didn't even know what he was doing in there, but it was just great to see him. Uh, but those two matches were, were, uh, were certainly not as exciting as, as some of the previous ones. Pedro, of course, had two big title defenses against Stan Stasiak early on in his title reign in 71. And here we are in 73 on August 27th. And again, on October 15th, Pedro again defeats Stan Stasiak in Madison Square Garden. The first match via judge's decision at the 52-minute mark. And the second match, a Texas death match. Any memories of these matches, John? And at any point during this period of time, did you think, yeah, Stasiak's going to be the guy to beat Pedro. Never thought Stasiak would be the guy to beat Pedro. I do remember that judge's decision by majority, I think they called it, the winner by majority. I mean, because never, never, that never happened before. It was kind of like, what is this? Why did they finish the match this way? Because now I'm getting a little bit more smartened up every month. I'm, I'm, you know, I have a newsletter. I'm corresponding with people. And, and that was just kind of stupid. It was like by judges, by, by majority, the winner, Pedro Morales. And the Texas death match was well, – there were never real Texas death matches in New York during those days anyway. It was almost kind of like you're at the point where – all right, we're getting ready. You know, let's get something else in here because it's got, it, it just wasn't it wasn't um, as exciting as it was early on. What gimmick match was the biggest draw in the old WWF for you as a fan? Was it the cage? Obviously, it wasn't Texas Deathmatch. What was it? What gimmick? It was match? the cage. I would have to say it was the cage. You know, when they first had that first cage match, and I don't know if it was Bruno and Koloff. I still I think have. It may a, have been. It might, it might have been, but I mean, it was the cage match, just the fact that that was, you know, a real good gimmick match. Because all the other gimmick matches were just by title only. It was never, they were never really any different from a regular match, even though they may have called it Texas Death or Gladiator Death Match. Uh, and I don't believe they had any uh, Russian chain matches there. I believe they did those in Boston. But it, it just was a typical regular match back in the day. The final Pedro Morales title defense at Madison Square Garden is on November 12, 1973, where Pedro defeats Larry the Axe Hennig when the match is stopped due to blood loss by Larry Hennig. Any memories of this final Pedro title defense at the Garden, John? No, I do. I just love the fact that Henning was such a great brawler. I have that on film as well. And uh, those were the days that I was actually now sitting at first row. Uh, cause that was when I was able to bribe the ticket seller the day of each show and 
give him a $3 tip and said it ranks <laughs> sit at the first row now. Uh, Bill Baker, thank you very much. Uh, that was the dude's name. So that match, yeah, I got that on film. I actually just watched it about a week ago, and uh, I just loved it because it was a great brawl, and uh, I just thought Henning was really believable, and it was great to see him in the ring. But that's still, still not having a clue that that would be Morales' last title defense. Pedro would stick around for about a year or so and work Madison Square Garden until he would disappear from the WWWF until he would reemerge in the early 80s with the Intercontinental title and various other things around that period of time. But what was that last year like when he was there and he wasn't champion? Was he still as over? How were the fans treating him at this point? What was that last year without the title like? It was totally different in regard to the reaction that he would get. You know, with still respect, he'd still get his cheers, but it wasn't the frenzy when he had the title uh, and defending it against the Blassies and the Jonathans and the King Curtises. It just wasn't the same. John, looking back on Pedro and Madison Square Garden, you got to attend so many shows during Bruno's second title run, Backlund's title run, the Superstar Graham title run. How would you compare Pedro to them? And what do you think the legacy he leaves on the WWWF and Northeast Wrestling is? Well, looking back at it now, and I look at it in a different way than I did back then. It was a very exciting time, and I think Pedro left a great legacy uh, in the history of professional wrestling for that title run that he had in 1971, 72, into 73. And I think that um, his, his brawling style, the adulation that the fans had for him, uh, the fact that he was the hero to the Puerto Rican fans in the New York metropolitan area, that alone, that run alone, should be remembered more by the WWE today because he was, he drew big crowds and he was an exciting performer and he was a gentleman in and out of the ring. John, one last thing before I let you go. I know that you have recently become active on social media, whether it's on Twitter or on Facebook, posting really cool things from your archives, whether it's photos, videos, programs. So many cool things. I've retweeted a bunch of them, and now you're on Facebook, like I said before. How can the fans stay in touch with you and keep up with what you're up to? Well, they can go to Twitter, at John Arezzi. They can go to Instagram, at John Arezzi. And just this last week, I started a Facebook page, and it's John Arezzi's Matt Memories on Facebook. And I'm posting very unique content every single day. There he is, friend of the show, John Arezzi, with another fantastic segment looking at the life and career of Pedro Morales, and you'll be hearing John Moore in the future here on the Super Podcast. And from there, let's go to another friend of the show, and that being the Taskmaster himself, Kevin Sullivan. Kevin's been on the show several times, and I really wanted to talk to him right now because so many people are talking about the activities that took place in and around Knoxville in 1979, the Knoxville Wrestling War, as well as some of the earlier things that Bob Roop did when he tried to steal the territory in San Francisco. Kevin Sullivan was there for both instances. Mike, have you been following this on the Studcast and all the things that people have been posting online? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, I have. And I... I was my jaw hit the floor with the all south stuff because we've talked about earlier on. I mean, when it comes to 
I mean, what he is revealing about the Georgia stuff, we've always gotten just the one side, as you talked about on those broadcasts, uh, about you know the Gunkel side and Bobby Simmons and Les Thatcher and Jody Hamilton and, and, and people you know looking at it really more for one side. But we hadn't heard a lot from the Bob Armstrong side. We hadn't obviously heard from the Ron Fuller side. And to hear him talk about that, that was something else. And I thought nothing could top that until it came time for the Knoxville stuff. This is unbelievable. And to hear the pain in his voice and to hear, I mean, this has got to be something for him to go through to, 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 to talk about this stuff and the levels to which they went to. Like I knew that they did some diabolical stuff. Talked to Les Thatcher about it. He, to this day, like, you could hear the bitterness in his voice talking about how they destroyed something that was so good and how they never were really able to get it back there, you know, no matter who went in there, whether it was Mulligan, whether it was Cornette, you know, even Ron later on, it just was never the same. And they killed that. But then to to see really understand with the video, with Plan B and with everything that's gone on, it's just it's amazing that any of those guys ever worked again. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. And you'll be hearing less talk about it here on the show. I think next episode, actually. So stay tuned for that. But before we go to Kevin Sullivan and getting his thoughts on all of this. And again, Kevin's someone who was in Knoxville for John Kazana, Ron Fuller, Jim Barnett. Blackjack Mulligan or Ric Flair, as well as Jim Cornette. So he was there for everything. He knows Knoxville wrestling as good as anyone in wrestling. So there's a lot of interesting parts of this story, and I wanted to get Kevin Sullivan's take on it. Let's go to that right now. I am very happy today to welcome back to the Super Podcast someone who is battling the flu just like I am, but someone who is one of our most popular guests. He has been known for doing so many things in wrestling, but maybe best known for picking the Yankees to win the World Series right here on this show <laughs> last year, and that is your friend and mine, Kevin Sullivan. Kevin, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be back on, and uh, I don't think the Yankees are going to do it again this year either. <laughs> <laughs> when we do the opening day show, we'll have you on and we can talk about it, but real quick yeah. before we go, were you really happy with the Red Sox last year? Did you like that team? Oh, oh, oh yeah. I, I uh, actually went to more games probably last year than I ever had. You know, I live in the islands of Seattle. I went for the four days they were here. I'm going to go to, they open up their season here on the road, and I'm going to the four games here. And I went to four times Fenway Park, a couple times in Baltimore, Detroit, uh, Jacobs Field, and uh, whatever the old Tiger Field's called. What is it? Look at the big tiger in it now. It's not see. Yeah, I, I got to go to a lot of games, so I really enjoyed my summer last year, yeah. And where are you right now with David Price? I couldn't, you know, it was one of those things. I think he finally got over the hump. And I give him all the credit in the world because, as you know, if you know baseball, as Yogi said, 70% of it's mental and 70% of it's physical. You know, it's a mental, it's a mental game. Rick was the guy from... St. Louis, remember the pitcher who couldn't Rick pitch afterwards? Yeah, Rick Ankeel, he couldn't throw. Tell me how that happens. And uh, it's it's the only game you can, the only business you can feel in 70% of the time for 15 years and you're almost guaranteed to go to the Hall of Fame. Yeah. It's pretty, yeah, yeah. 
It's pretty interesting. But like I said, you and I always love talking baseball. We'll definitely do that again when we do the opening day show. But what we're going to talk about today is something that everyone has been talking about. We uh, had Ron Fuller on the show last time, and Jim Cornette and I have talked about it. And I've heard an overwhelming response from the listeners about this tape that recently emerged of the Knoxville Five, Bob Roop, Ron Garvin, Ron Wright, Bob Orton Jr., and the great Malenko, exposing the business in 1980, apparently from the research we've done, in a television studio after hours, talking about the realities of wrestling. And it is a stunning video, to say the very least, and obviously one that people like you and people around wrestling never knew about, never saw, never heard about before. So I want to talk to you all about this because you have a very unique perspective because not only were you there from the beginning of Bob Roop's career, not only were you there in San Francisco when everything went down with Bob Roop and Roy Shire, but... You may be the only guy that worked for every major league version of Knoxville wrestling. Kazana, Fuller, Barnett, yeah. Flair and Mulligan, Jim Cornette. So you also have one of the most unique perspectives on the history of wrestling in Knoxville because you've seen everything there. Right. So right. I wanted to talk to you about all this. So let's start, Kevin, with your initial impressions. When did you first see this video and what did you think when you saw it? Well, I, I just saw it a week ago, and it knocked my socks off. And you got to realize, and the, what I thought was fascinating, how many years did it take to come out? And what was, you know, what was the smoking gun doing hidden for so long? Obviously, they were going to do something with it. And because they didn't do something with it, maybe they thought that something was going to happen to them. And back in the day, we're talking 1980, I always say I, uh, I saw Superman uh, on TV land, and it was about a wrestler from India, and they they sealed him up into the dressing room because he was a shooter. Superman saw it, he knocked it down. The guy came out and won the match, and at the end, I'm looking at the date, and the date is 1953. It wasn't that people accepted wrestling as completely true, but they thought some of it was. They thought some of the guy. I remember, remember as a kid, I thought the Sheik was real. I don't know how you could think the guy says wrestling is not real, but the Sheik was real. But the thing that was Knoxville exploding, I'll tell you, when I worked for John Cusano, the TV station didn't go over the mountains in Knoxville. So you got just Knoxville itself and some of the surrounding areas. When Ronald Fuller went in there, and I want to just say something. I worked for a lot of promoters in my life. Ronald Fuller was the best payoff man I ever worked for. Back in the day, it was 33 or 30% you got paid for the house. Ronald ran some smaller towns during the week to keep the guys happy. And he also ran them around the uh, around Norris Dam. We all had boats. And he ran the towns around Norris Dam. And we would leave an hour before bell time and go to the buildings and get a payoff. It wasn't that we were getting a lot of money that night, but he was paying 60%. And when he ran in Knoxville himself, I mean, this was, I'll never forget this. 
1978, I drove 330 miles for the week. And I had 330 miles. I went from Knoxville to Johnson City. And that was 210. So I drove another, what, 120 miles for the week. I wasn't on the main event every night, but I made $990. What would that be today? Yeah, so Ronald took care of guys. There was a bonus in your check. I did an angle with my dad. My dad came down to visit me, and Ronald paid my dad a first-class airfare to come down, and he paid him a main event payoff. Ronald was as fair a guy I've ever worked for. Fairer than anybody probably that could, uh, probably the fairest guy ever in the business. And these guys, for some reason, got a burr, and I'm not saying they were wrong. In their heads, they were right, but they were wrong. Somehow, somebody got to them, and it doesn't take much for revolution. All it takes is enough people in it, the right spots to turn a business upside down. You know, I, I read a thing about one time when Lenin took over Russia. All he took over was the post office and the telegraph lines, the means of communication. Well, what he did, what these guys did, they were the four or five top guys. They took off the means of communication because they weren't on TV anymore, and they stepped right out of all the angles. So I thought that was a brutal thing to do. It, it wasn't that this guy was a slave driver. Uh, we had Christmas parties. There was bonuses. And the thing that I always admired about Ronald, if you made $900 a week and you were in the upper echelon or $1,000 a week and you were in the upper echelon for Ronald, the opener match made six fifty. So, So he kept it like a family. And occasionally a guy on the opener match, he would throw him in a semifinal to give him a little... He was very good at looking at payoffs. If he said, oh, he's, he's going to be short this week, Hypothetically, Kevin's going to have a good week. I can throw Kevin, in. and he would throw. I didn't, didn't have to be me. He'd throw me on the second match, but he would pay me for like if I had been on the semifinal, and he would give the kid that was going to have a poor week a better week. Ronald was a very, very honest guy. I never had to go to Ronald, and I used to go to promoters back in the day and say, "Hey." I don't think this was right. Never once did I have to go to Ronald's. Well, Kevin, let me ask you about the example you just gave us, your father coming in and doing that angle with you in Knoxville and getting that payoff. Obviously, famously, one of the last, maybe the last great moment of San Francisco wrestling was the Kevin Sullivan-Bob Root feud with your father in there. So your father was right. involved with that. Did your father get a payoff from Roy Shire for that? And he didn't even get a hot dog. And we sold out four shows in a row in San Francisco. I mean, it, it wasn't me or Rupert, it was the angle with my father. I mean, and uh, that was that was the difference between Shires and Ronald Fuller. And uh, 
you know, Bob had out there, he wanted to steal that territory too. I mean, he had this thing that he was a smart guy, college educated guy, and thought he could take over people's businesses. Well, maybe he thought in his head, the business is going to die. The guy's too old. His uh, thoughts are archaic, and I better get it or help to get it before he leaves. So I can see that maybe on, and I'm saying this, maybe on Shires, but not on a guy that is now Ronald was also going to expand. So you'd have two territories that you could have continued just about 20 years in two territories. You know, if you worked on top, you could. And it was good for the boys. And there were short trips. You got to remember, we used to drive a lot of miles with Ronald. There were short trips. If you, even if you went to uh, the southern end of uh, Ronald's territory, Pensacola, Mobile, uh, Montgomery, you, you went to him more than a thousand miles a week, which is unheard of. And he was paying, and the territory was drawing. So you could have stayed there as long as you produced. And even if you had a, you know, you, you, in with Ronald, you, you could get a trip, uh, one or two trips a year to Japan to get out of there. And then you could stop off someplace else for three months and then come on back. I mean, he made it like a, uh, he made it like a, a family affair once you were there. <laughs> It, it, it was almost impossible to get fired unless you did something really stupid. And one of the intentions with the southern end of the territory was that if you were working in Knoxville and you, like it happens to everyone eventually, you got stale, you can go down to Pensacola and you could do something there and then eventually come right back to Knoxville. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Ronald and uh, Robert was with him booking. They had that place on fire. They had that place on fire, and they had great baby faces. They had a whole family of Armstrongs. You know, they had Ken Lucas. They had great, great talent. So they were going to do very well. And if you just went along with the program, because they were paying it, it wasn't that, you know, you weren't getting money from these guys. They were paying you. Let me ask you about San Francisco, because obviously you yeah. kind of alluded to it a little bit there. Roy Shire is not a very sympathetic figure when it comes to no. professional wrestling. Great promoter, brilliant guy, at one time a revolutionary booker. And obviously he had Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson. You can't really go wrong with that in the 1960s. But not a very happy or nice guy by, uh, by all accounts. So everything goes down there. I'd like you to, if you don't mind, if you could tell us what did exactly happen there. And also, what went down with Roop and Roy Shire there, how come that didn't prevent Bob Roop from getting another booking job, for instance, like in Knoxville? I think that thing was Roy had a bad reputation. Roy was on the strongest channel at the best time at one time in uh, Oakland, which went all over the Bay Area. He used to chew tobacco. He was spitting on the rugs on the floor at the TV station. They asked him twice not to do it. 
They didn't ask him a third time. They fired him. I mean, what kind of guy runs a company and spits on the floor of another guy's business? And he wasn't. And here's a thing that a lot of people don't realize. Roy wasn't well-liked because he didn't use the NWA champion. He had the U.S. champion as his champion. He had stolen a territory from Malkovich, a guy that didn't have TV. And, of course, he went in there with TV, but you just hit on the most important thing. A blind man could book Stevens and Patterson and sell out. They were the two of the biggest, you know what I mean? They were the two of the greatest stars of all times, and I dare men, too. And they had Pepper Gomez for the Hispanics. They had The Rock's grandfather, Peter Mazia, for the Samoans. They had a cast of characters because, you know, uh, San Francisco is a real ethnic city. So they had a little bit for everybody. And, you know, years earlier, Roy had actually tried to invade Hawaii, which Ed Francis and James Blears had. He tried to go in there and run against them, and that didn't work out the way he had hoped. But it's not like he's an innocent babe in the story is the point. No, and he tried to run Vegas when LaBelle was running Vegas. So he was never an innocent guy. So, you know, maybe, I can't speak for anybody, but maybe Bob thought, well, if he didn't get heat, I won't get heat by doing this. When did you first hear that something was going down in San Francisco? Well, I knew something was amiss. I had wrestled Bob for the U.S. title, and I beat him in the whole thing. I had to give the belt back, and, uh, you know, there was a discrepancy, and I beat him twice, and there was a discrepancy. And then we had uh, Royce Patton was the third match. You'd have blood, and then the fourth match, you'd have some way to no stopping for cuts of blood. Well, the fourth match, they brought in Haystack Alhoun to be the special referee. And the only way I could lose if I used a foreign object. Well, Root pulled out a foreign object, went to hit me with it. Calhoun blocked it. It ended up in my hands. Calhoun turns around, sees it in my hands, and disqualifies me. They carried me to the ring and carried me back on a pole. I think that Roy was trying to kill his own territory because he was afraid of Root at that time. Root had a bunch of guys that were loyal to him, and he was afraid of it. And when it happened with me, I knew I was through. You can make some mistakes in wrestling business, and the people will forgive you. You can't make a mistake like that. That's really, really, really insulting them. And I knew I was through there, and that's when he came to say, oh, I'd like to stay, and I said, I can't. I know it's uh, what's going to happen. And... I was putting my faith, I was going to have to put my faith in his hands after that finish. I couldn't do it. But Rube stayed for a while, and he tried to do some things, but it didn't work out. And then Rube ends up in Knoxville booking for Ron. Right. Robert Fuller and his crew had gone to Memphis to help out Jerry Jarrett and Buddy Fuller there. And Bob comes into Knoxville, and a lot of the guys that we 
see that are a part of this tape were already there. Bob Orton Jr. was already there. Ron Garvin was already a major star there. Uh, the great Malenko, obviously involved with this, and Ron Wright is a, a legend in East Tennessee. So they were all there. And he goes in there, and within several months, everything goes down. You were there, too, obviously. Right. Did you see something happening, or was it kind of just out of nowhere that Roop would decide to make out, this move on it, Fuller? It was out of nowhere because I'm not sure if Wharton, but the three of the other, like, the other guys lived in the same apartment complex and talked to one another. So I think they were planning to do this to Ronald, and uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, you know. I think that Ronald is such a good guy. He couldn't believe that something like this would come, especially the way he was treating people. You know, Kevin, one of the things people have been asking themselves after this video emerged is, what was the point? Who was this being made for? What was this being made for? What were they hoping to gain out of it? And did they gain anything out of it? Seemingly no would be the answer most people think. Do you have any thoughts I, on that, on, on who this was made for and what they were trying to do? Yeah, I think there's a second part of this interview, and we won't get into the length because I don't like to surmise on things that I'm not sure of. But you saw the end of the interview, and they indicated there was some more dirt coming out. Barnett, at this time, bought Knoxville, and it was going to be part of the Atlanta Territory, but it was going to be a territory within the Atlanta Territory, and Mike Loon was going to be the booker, and there he was going to take me up there on Friday nights. Now, I think it was the scare Jim Barnett saying, well, we're going to crush this territory before it starts. That's my opinion, because from what I heard, that Jim did pay them to uh, leave. That's interesting. That yeah. he paid them to leave because obviously they would all eventually just end up in Kentucky with Poffo. Right, right, right. Wow. So you actually believe Jim Barnett paid these guys to leave Knoxville? I believe uh, Jim would pay them because Jim was a businessman. He knew that if he was going to absorb, he was going to absorb uh, Knoxville, and he didn't want anybody coming on TV. And they had the tape, it was probably shown, and saying, oh, wrestling's fake, I've never had a real wrestling match, and blah, blah, blah. And there's more to come. So, I mean, uh, that's a pretty damaging assessment that's trying to start a brand new company. What was it like in Knoxville when Georgia was controlling the office, that brief period of time, relatively brief before they sold it to Flair and Mulligan? Yeah, it was a very brief time, and it, it was doing well because Mark, you know, was the maniac, Mark Moon at the time. But I think that Jim saw that that could be, Jim was a very, very smart guy. I think that Jim saw that, okay, now I have to make a tape for Knoxville alone. It's more cost than I thought it was going to be. Uh, now I get a rent smaller buildings and the return isn't going to be maybe I should take Knoxville. And then all of a sudden Mulligan and Flair come along and say, hey, we'll buy it from you. So I think that's how it was broken. And you got to remember at the time, Rick was a champion and Jim was his agent. You know, he booked the world champion. 
So I could see, and they, they were great friends. What was the relationship like between, for the brief period of time it existed, between the Knoxville end with Mark booking and the Atlanta end, which was it only booking at that time or was it not only? Yeah, there, there was some, uh, Oli was afraid of Mark that Mark would have, was going to end up taking his job. And Oli and Mark didn't see eye to eye in the booking philosophy. And I think uh, Oli was glad to see Mark leave. And Oli hated Tennessee in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one character we haven't talked about is Eddie Graham, and I'm fascinated to know if you know of anything that he may have thought about everything that went down. Obviously, we don't know if he ever knew about this video, but he knew about everything that happened because these were all guys that had worked for him. I mean, Ron Wright only worked there a week, but everyone else had been in Florida previously, and of course, Malenko had a long history, and Roop was Eddie Graham's guy. I mean, you talk to anyone who was around the snake pit, Roop was Eddie's guy. Do you know anything about the relationship between the two of them and how this affected that, if it did at all, or what Eddie thought about all this? I think that Bob uh, thought he was right, and most people do. I think he thought he was right. Him and Eddie had a fallen out. Malenko and Eddie had a fallen out, which, whether it was right or wrong, it's how you look at it. Because later on, as you mentioned to me once before, they actually ran against Eddie and uh, the Jacksonville, South Georgia area. And uh, it was like, at this time, Eddie was also in not the best mental health in the world either. So I think things, uh, it was just uh, a lot of bad things were happening at the same time. Kevin, are there a lot of guys from your experience that you've run into that have actually wanted to or tried to steal a territory? It's such a unique thing to do. No, 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 no. I mean, most the guys we're talking about is the guys that I know of. I don't know anybody else that ever tried to do it. I mean, there's uh, you have to. There's a lot of money to be posting bonds and buildings and TV stations. No, I think they just thought they could go in there and take it. And I think, too, they thought they could take it because of Ron Wright's reputation. Does that make sense to you? He was a legend. I mean, nobody was over in Knoxville and East Tennessee like Ron Wright. And if people saw him today, they would say, how could he got over? He was over so big in Johnson City. Every other Tuesday, he used to invite fans into the ring, and he would beat the crap out of them. He was he was over, and you know we're talking a long time ago where we weren't as sophisticated, and we got and they up here in Knoxville got one to two channels at best. So he was on, and when he was on, I'm sure he was doing fifty percent of the audience there. So I think they thought with him they could do it. Well, you know, another interesting guy that came back into the fold for that brief period of time where they ran all-star wrestling against Ron was Big Jim Hess, who Ron had fired as the commentator years earlier. All of a sudden, he was back there. He had a long relationship with Ron Wright and a little bit of animosity towards Ron for letting him go. Do you have any memories of Big Jim Hess? I only met Jim a few times, but he was Ron Wright's Dear, dear friend, and I think that's how it happened. You know, he had, like you said, animosity to Ron, but he was very loyal to Ron Wright. 
you know, if we could take a step back real quick, Kevin, to the beginning uh, where we kind of started. John Kazana, you know, we just recently on Ron yeah. Fuller's Studcast talked about Ron purchasing Knoxville for 150000 from John Kazana. Tell me a little bit about what it was like before Ron. You were there, obviously, one of the people who could say you got the team with Whitey Caldwell, who is with yeah. Ron Wright. He's that other legend in East Tennessee. What was it like working for Kazana? What were the payoffs like? What were the shows like? What were the big differences between Kazana and Ron? Ron was always bubbly. He's always one of the guys. John Kazana was a great payoff man because he was separated from that territory. He was a territory within a territory. So he had to take care of you. So he was a great payoff man. And there was no, nothing. You got to realize too, back then, there was no, very little entertainment in Knoxville. So it was either wrestling or UT football in football season. But other than that, there was nothing. And they did a hell of a job. I mean, Whitey Caldwell and Ron Wright threw huge houses at the ballparks all around the territory. Do you remember the first time you went into the Coliseum? Yeah, I I was there. It was uh, the first day I came in and... I worked with a young boy, Terry Gibbs, and uh, yeah, I had a, like an enhancement match. And then I, uh, the Mongolian stopper was on top, and I got to see him, and he was fabulous. I mean, you actually got to see, though, you know, because Ron always talks about the fact that he bought a town and he turned it into a territory. When you were there right. teaming with Whitey Caldwell, did you have any idea that it could become what it became with Southeastern, a full-fledged territory? I always thought that if they got TV that went over the mountains, they'd be going into places that had never seen wrestling on television. And I was, I was, I'm not going to say smart enough, but I knew technology was eventually going to build a tower high enough that it would go outside of Knoxville. And when they did, I mean, it was solos for a long time. Kevin, I mentioned at the top that you work for every major league version of Knoxville wrestling. And, uh, of course, you wrestled for Smoky Mountain Wrestling in the 1990s for Jim Cornette. Yeah. In your opinion, what are the long-term repercussions? What was the long-term effects of the public battle? It started, it got into the newspapers. You know, there were letters in the newspaper where Bob Roop said that Ron was the promoter and the athletic commission should shut him down because of that. What do you think was the long-term, if you think there were any, long-term problems that everything in the 1979 Knoxville Wrestling War caused? I think that when Jimmy took over, he smoothed it out. It took a guy like Jimmy to get that going. And I still believe this. If Jimmy had gotten Chattanooga, Lexington, and Evansville, it'd still be a territory. I'll tell you, it would have been a, if he would have just been able to get Chattanooga and Greenville, it probably would have been a territory. Yeah, he just didn't have enough big towns. Well, Kevin, before we wrap things up, you know, we've talked so much about Knoxville today. Let's end on a happy note. What is your favorite Knoxville wrestling memory? My favorite Knoxville wrestling memory, we played a softball game against the minor league team there. They were a single A, and I hit hit a ball over the fence in a single A stadium. So I rounded... (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I, I made it. I made it. I thought I really enjoyed it. And that was other things. That's what Ronald did. He did things like that for the guys. And the char- the money went to the charities. And he did a lot of good things. And uh, I was very sorry that that ever happened to Ronald. And he's a great guy. I just want to end it with that. He's a great guy. There he is, a great friend of this show, Kevin Sullivan, and you'll be hearing him again pretty soon on opening day Star Wars, and we'll see if he can correctly predict who's going to win the World Series this year, because boy, did he bomb last year when trying to predict who was going to win. But with that, let's now go to Book of the Week. And this week's Book of the Week is Gene Kaniski, Canadian wrestling legend by Steve Verrier. I recently received this book here in my office, and I've been going through it. I haven't read the whole thing yet. And once I do, we're going to have Steve on the show to do a profile of the book and talk a little bit about Gene Kaniski. But the little bit I've read so far, this book is really, really good. Steve wrote another book, which has really been unheralded, about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, about the history of wrestling in the Pacific Northwest. We're going to also do a profile on that one, because I think people need to really learn about that book, because I don't think a lot of people know about its existence. But Steve did a great job with this one, and like I said, once I'm all the way through it, we'll do a big profile on it, but I am prepared to recommend it as our book of the week. Check it out. Of course, Gene Kaniski, a former NWA champion, a legend not just in Canada, but in places like St. Louis, a huge wrestling star. And this is a book that every wrestling fan should check out. Once again, the book, Gene Kaniski, Canadian Wrestling Legend by Steve Verrier. It is, of course, available wherever you find your favorite books like Amazon. And if you're going to go to Amazon, use tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. You guys know how it works. By using that link, you support the super podcast without spending any more money than you would normally spend at amazon.com. All you do is type in tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon, and anything you add to your shopping cart from that point forward, we get a little bit of love and credit for. And thank you to everyone who's been doing that lately. We really do appreciate it. And of course, we encourage you to give it to your girlfriends, give it to your mistresses, give it to your boyfriends, give it to whoever it is that will be buying things on Amazon if you choose to support the Super Podcast, that is. And of course, why wouldn't you? There are lots of other shows out there begging you for money. There are lots of other shows out there begging you to support them. Who brings the quality? Who brings the best wrestling talk on the planet? I think if you stop and you ask yourself that for even a moment, the answer will be quite obvious. When it comes down to it, when it comes down to them or us, fuck those guys. Support the super podcast. Support your super podcast. And before we blow out Mike's eardrums, let's now go to the main event this week. And that is in the news with Jim Cornette. It is now time for one of the most popular segments we do here on the 605 Super Podcast, In the News. And of course, that means I need to welcome the anchor of the In the News desk, Mr. Jim Cornette. Thank you very much, Brian Last. We have... Oh, I I was about to say, (laughs) I was about to say in my newscaster voice, it will be my pleasure to bring you the news. Well, we'll see about that because we have some very interesting news here this week. And this first story, Jim is from the Star Tribune in Minneapolis, Minnesota, February 16th, 1965. Assault charge filed in stabbing of wrestler race. John Morton was charged with aggravated assault Monday after allegedly stabbing professional wrestler Harley Race in the back during a fight in a Minneapolis restaurant Friday. 
Race told police that he was eating in the Chestnut Tree, 1370 Nicolette Avenue, when three men entered the restaurant. Police said that one of the men, Jack LaRue, 25, 591 Dayton Avenue, St. Paul, struck a woman in the face. Race, who was alone, interrupted and told LaRue to leave the woman, Peggy Hayden, 22, alone. The wrestler returned to his table, but a waitress informed him that one of the men had a knife, police said. Race walked over to the men, and when LaRue <laughs> cursed him, the wrestler hit LaRue, knocking him unconscious, police said. Morton, 25, address unknown, then allegedly stabbed Race. The wrestler was taken to the hospital and released after being treated. Police arrested Morton as he and a companion, Kenneth Alexander, 26 of 3609 2nd Avenue South, were carrying LaRue from the restaurant. Now, we always hear these stories, Jim, about the toughness of Harley Race. And here's an amazing example, because not only is he stabbed, but... He's told there's a knife and he runs towards yeah. the knife. Well, no, I, I can, I can see this situation. He saw this guy smack this girl and he went over and hey, leave this woman alone. Right. And blah, blah, blah. And there was some words and it, he went and sat back down and the waitress came over and said, Hey, one of them's got a knife. Oh, they do. Well, I'll take that fucking knife. And he just happened to knock the other one out first that didn't have the knife. But, uh, I can believe he just calmly got up, went back over there. Cause they were probably mouthing off and here you go. Now I had heard, I don't know that that's the only time that Harley Race got stabbed uh, breaking up a beef in a restaurant. Uh, there may have been another one as well, but, um, you know, that's he wasn't going to take any bullshit off any. And this was 1965. He was uh, not quite 30 at that point. Right. So he was a uh, he was even younger and tougher than. <laughs> uh how many guys yeah. would do that, Jim? How many guys, you know, from that era, today is obviously a different world altogether, but in, let's say, the 80s even, how many guys, if they were in a restaurant by themselves and they saw a commotion like that, would actually get up and get involved? Uh, but, but, some of them. I mean, I can't just specifically call exact names, but, uh, you know, it, it, Buddy Rogers, didn't he make the papers a couple years before he died for taking some guy down in a diner or something and... and fucking him up that was trying to rob the place or bothering people he was 71 or so i think at the time yeah you know i i mean it obviously would depend on the the venue and the uh the numbers but uh i wouldn't be surprised for a guy like harley of three on one he would do the old deal where he wanted to wait until a few more of them showed up to make it even how much time did you ever get to spend around Harley? I know he was there briefly in 1990. I know he was there in 85, but that may have been before you got in there. Did you get to spend much time around Harley during your career? Um, well, it, just every once in a while, at, at you know, most recently over the past 20 years or however many years at fan fests and et cetera. But I mean, he was in Greensboro one night as a special attraction while we were, you had just got in for Crockett. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was, I mean, I didn't, sit down and take up all of his time, uh, his, his important, you know, boot lacing and cigarette smoking time to bend his ear. Like I would one of the boys that, you know, wouldn't knock me out. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I remember, I, you know, in that night in Greensboro, we were sitting near each other in the locker room and, and he was talking about, I, I can't remember how it came up. He might've mentioned he had to have surgery on something. And I, and I, he took my hand 
and put it on his kneecap. And that would sound, in anybody else but Harley, it would sound dirty, but he put it on his kneecap. It was like feeling a, bone, a, a bean bag. His kneecap wasn't in like a bone. It was like, it was like, it wasn't mushy. It was hard pebbles of shit. And his elbows were like pebbles of shit. And I'm like, what the fuck? Because uh, uh, he took all those bumps all those years. He took them exactly squarely and perfectly. But my God, he used to take that full flat back body slam on concrete. And, you know, uh, even as tough as he was, it, it, you know, fucked up a lot of shit in there. But I, I was amazed he could still walk. And he was out there wrestling in one of the main events. I don't think I ever really truly appreciated Harley when I was younger until I saw the Mid-Atlantic tapes and I saw that match with him and Steamboat. Yeah. That really made me appreciate how, when he was just a little bit younger than when I first saw him, how he was able to move around. Well, and see, I had first seen him right about the time of the Mid-Atlantic films that were shot in the late 70s. I saw him 77 uh, was the first time I saw him live when he got the NWA title. And... Going back then, and it was a big deal. I remember, obviously, at the time, I saw him in Memphis, and he came. He came to Louisville against Rocky Johnson, Memphis against Rocky Johnson. Then I finally got to see him uh, in Atlanta against Tommy Rich, and et cetera. Over the couple of year period, right before he started slowing down in the eighties, right. But when I go back now and look at the notes that I made from those matches. It's always the same thing. Best match I've ever seen Rocky Johnson have. Best match I've ever seen. You know, best, it was him. And it, I wasn't quite familiar enough with his work to to know what to, you know, what to expect. But it was, it was, and then his best stuff physically was in the late 60s, early 70s. That's why they considered him as the guy to go between uh, Funk and Briscoe to begin with, because he was one of the best workers in the world. George Shire recently was here on the show talking about just how good Harley Race and Larry Hennig were as a tag team. And unfortunately, there's very little, if any, footage of them together. Yeah, I don't know if I... I mean, there might be some real flickery 8mm stuff out there, but I don't know if I've ever seen a videotape of Race and Hennig. Real quick before we move to the next story, you bring up Rocky Johnson. Obviously from Memphis Heat and from what I've been able to gather throughout the years. I know that he was, for a while there, a pretty good-sized star, but unlike a lot of the guys, Austin Idol, Jimmy Valiant, whoever it may be, who were in and out of there a lot throughout the years, it didn't seem like he came back that often. Just how big was Rocky Johnson in the Memphis Territory? It's hard to explain in that he had great matches on top, he was pushed in the main event position, and he drew, especially the first couple of times he was in... In 76, they actually did the boxer versus wrestler thing with him and Lawler to take off on, as Gomer would say, the Ali Inoki thing. And people bought that he was a boxer. And he came in, and they even had the match with by, and he wore boxers, shorts, and et cetera. And then suddenly he started wrestling, uh, and people accepted that too. Uh, but he drew, drew big houses, especially in Memphis. And, and it, I mean, it's no secret. They, they loved in that era, black baby faces of uh, Zulu against the stomper. Stomper was so hot and Zulu looked so good. He sold out to Coliseum three weeks in a row. Uh, but Rocky, he was a great athlete and he could work and he could carry it. Um, he wasn't the outlandish promo that, that, uh, that handsome Jimmy or Austin Idol or or even like Lawler or you know the other guys that got over to that level, and Dundee was the exception too. But he he just he worked his ass off. But I think 
that Rocky Johnson in Memphis drew well based on his work while he was there uh, and drew big houses, especially in Memphis. I mean, I'm not going to say that he, you know, fucking tore the house down in Louisville every time he was there uh, as far as uh, the gate. But people don't remember the great angles that Rocky Johnson did because he never did those great promos. He never, he, you know, they remember whether on the heel side, they remember Austin Idol breaking the plaque over Lawler's head or LeDuc cutting his arm with the axe or the Tupelo concession stand brawl. They remember the, the Lawler Dundee, you know, because Dundee got his head shaved. None of the great angles involved Rocky Johnson or the great promos. So they really didn't show highlights of him when he wasn't there so much. And also they showed more highlights of the heels on TV anyway because they would come back and either team with or fight Lawler again eventually, but Rocky was a babyface. So I think when he came back, he he had another run in what was in 1980 <laughs> that didn't do any business because nothing was doing any business because Lawler's leg was broken and he was gone. So that was kind of forgotten. And then they came back in the mid-80s after the Watts talent trade I think that's when they moved, when the Rock City moved from Hawaii to Nashville and, and you know, it was like 6'4 and 15 years old in high school. And by then, business was dodgy. So it was really at first run in 76 and 77, he was a he was a big star at a time and a main event guy at a time where business was doing pretty goddamn good anyway. Jim, as we move on to our next story, I want to make... Boy, that was a long goddamn answer to that, wasn't it? It was a good answer, though. <laughs> well, I had to work it out in my head as you asked me because he just... They didn't keep showing the tapes over and over. He wasn't... While he was in big drawing programs with Lawler and other guys, he wasn't in these memorable angles that were saved on tape for so many years. And I think he just was a guy that, you know, didn't get replayed over and over. Jim, as we move on with our next story, I want to make mention that these stories have been pulled from Scott Teal's Crowbar Press archives on Facebook. I encourage anyone who enjoys wrestling history to check out his page. Great, great stuff. The Crowbar Press archives. But this next story is from Upland, California, December 4th, 1941. Belt put up as security. Upland, December 3rd, Bill Varga, 22, said to be the world's light heavyweight wrestling champion and two companions were at liberty today under $10 bail each following their arrest on charges of discharging firearms in the Upland city limits last night when they were hunting rabbits with the aid of a flashlight at 13th Street and Benson Avenue. Varga, who gave his address as 5406 Lexington Avenue, Hollywood, had with him at time of his arrest his championship belt, which he said he won Monday night at Hollywood Legion Stadium. He left the belt as security while he and his companions, Earl Patrick Hallinan, 21, of 1111.5 North Coronado Street, Los Angeles, and John Hallinan, 34, 2610 Scott Avenue, Los Angeles, drove to the metropolis to secure cash with which to post bail. The trio assertedly had bagged three rabbits when arrested. This is a young Count Billy Varga, obviously celebrating <laughs> his big championship win with this rabbit hunt at night. Jim, in general, um, and I know some places the wrestlers don't get to leave the arena with the belts, and in some places they do. What's the protocol in terms of what a wrestler is supposed to do with the belt, where they should bring it and where they shouldn't bring it? Well, I, you know, I don't know about these days, and it varies from company to company. 
But in the old days, it, 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 you, if you won the belt, it was your responsibility. Put it in your bag and carry it around, and you better fucking have it when we need it, and you better give it back when it's when it's time. And that's obviously every time in the old days in the territories when they had a change of championship belts, it was usually when the last guy got mad about money and took off with it. Um, and I can't believe that that didn't happen in that Southern Junior Heavyweight title belt that I love so much that uh, Nick Goulish used from 1952 to 1976, and Lawler took it home with him when they got a new one and took it to a autograph session in Memphis years ago, and, and somebody made off with it. Oh, my God. Yeah, but, um, but no, you like I said, that's why sometimes belts would turn up <clears throat> missing and why a lot of collectors are happy today but it was your responsibility you took it and you carried it every night it was like you were the champion and obviously in the territories there wasn't a deposit like there was for the nwa belt it was you know depending on the era and i think the person 10 grand or 20 grand or they finally flared put up 25 i think or crockett put it up for him probably but in the territories for the regional belts, there usually wasn't a bond or a deposit. It was just, it was your job if anything happened to it. And I would have to think that this, Billy Varga would go on to be, what is this, 1941? In the late 40s and 50s, he'd be the, you know, one of the names in local Los Angeles wrestling and be a big star and on the TV and everything. But he's a 22-year-old kid with two other jack-offs out hunting rabbits with a flashlight and fucking guns while he's got the belt. He probably just won it and they went and got drunk. If the promoter, who was the promoter back then in LA? 41. That would be interesting. I don't know that off the top of my head either, but, yeah. but, but whoever it was would have not been happy and probably wasn't happy to see this in the newspaper. I'm wondering how quick Billy Varga lost that belt after this came out in the paper. That's a good question. Something I need to look into here. <laughs> and the follow the following week, Billy Varga loses championship in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. What did you have any rules in terms of guys who left with the belt? What they couldn't couldn't do, and what would cause you to blow up if you heard about something with the belt? Well, well, back in those days, the guys, as long as you brought it to the fucking show the next day. I mean, I have pictures myself of a variety of championship belts wrapped around a variety of female people that have been <laughs> close to me over the, the years. I don't care what you did with it on your own. I didn't, I don't think anybody was spunking on it like that one with Paige. Uh, but I didn't, as long as you brought it back and you had it there the next night and I didn't lose it forever. I, you know, I don't know of anything that anybody else had done with it. They left it in their fucking bags. Hey, what do you think about the idea that Kerry Von Erich carved his initials into the NWA belt? Oh, that way. Yeah. That was, <laughs> He could have at least done it in a, a place where it wasn't on the main plate. It didn't show. He could have put like a monogram over on the end somewhere. But, uh, but I, you know, it I, it meant a big deal to him or it meant a, a great deal to him. That was, you know, something his dad had always wanted. So I'm sure it meant a lot to him, but I don't think he needed to deface the plate over it. I still haven't found an answer to who was it that carved the word stooge into the front of the old North American title in Mid-South Wrestling. I still need to find out what happened there. But, uh, Jim... Our next story, let's go across the pond to Blackpool, England, January 4th, 1960. Burglar picks wrong home for break-in, Blackpool, England, UPI. John Rankin decided to break into the home of Dominic Pye, and that was his big mistake. Pye, who makes his living as a heavyweight wrestler, picked him up and put him to sleep. 
Pye said he used a three-quarter Nelson with a gentle press on one of the neck arteries. <laughs> Rankin was convicted of burglary and ordered jailed for five years. Boy, they don't fuck around in Blackpool, England, do they? I'll tell you, that gentle press on the neck arteries, <laughs> that's a very popular move amongst wrestlers when they deal with a burglar, I would assume. Well, and and still, I'm still going back to this sentence. Five years for breaking into a house, not stealing anything, and getting choked out with a fucking English cravat for your fucking trouble. I bet he never stole again. <laughs> he probably didn't. Um, you know, and I have a uh, pie is a a well known. Wasn't this is this the pie I'm thinking of that was a well known English shooter, British shooter, I or is this? Uh, I don't know either. I don't know, but let's move on to our next story, Jim. Yes, let's move on since we don't know. <laughs> let's go to Baltimore, Maryland, December 1st, 1938. Police unmask golden terror of wrestling. Baltimore, December 1st, Associated Press. Unsympathetic police unmask the golden terror of wrestling shows as Robert Weatherly, Philadelphia, ringside weight with mask, 303 pounds. Weatherly was booked on an assault charge under his real name despite his protest that his mask and concealed identity were an important part of his box office appeal. The Golden Terror lost to Nick Campo Frida in a match here, and his defeat was greeted by a barrage of pop bottles and other missiles. He roared defiance, and a spectator, Max Jacobs, said he was kicked in the chin by the enraged terror. Hearing was set for December 8th. I personally feel really bad for the Golden Terror here in this situation, asking the police, please, please do not unmask me. This will kill my business, please. And, 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 and now, but now we know that uh, what wasn't, uh, wasn't Clyde Steves a Golden Terror in, in the 40s, or was he the Golden Superman? No, that was Walter Podolak. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of, uh, I'm just glad he wasn't unmasked in, in fucking Nashville. Nick Goulas would have fired him. They never unmasked uh, Pat Malone, by God, when he was the Green Shadow. He was never unmasked? Uh, well, and not until he lost it in a match to Roy Welch. <laughs> but the cops couldn't get his mask off, I bet. Pat was a salty old bastard. Jim, our next story. Let's get back to your old stomping grounds. Memphis, Tennessee, December 21st, 1943. Memphis sports writer Fall Guy for Lady Wrestler. Memphis, December 20th, Associated Press. Henry Reynolds. Commercial appeal sports writer saw a blonde lady lugging a huge parcel into the post office. Chivalrously, he volunteered his services. The weighty package taxed all of his 150 pounds, but he finally made it after three stops for breath. Then the blonde turned to her perspiring benefactor and said sweetly, Thanks, it was nice of you. Would you like to come out to the wrestling matches tonight? I'm Mae Young, the woman wrestler. <laughs> Well, that's an interesting way to sell some tickets. Ah, I bet she said more like, thanks, fuckface. <laughs> I could have got it myself, but I'd rather have you do it. You want to come to the matches tonight? I'm Mae Young. <laughs> she's lucky he didn't mug her. Or well, I, yeah, the other I'm, way around, actually. I'm, I'm thinking yeah. she's lucky that he didn't. she didn't accuse <laughs> He's lucky she didn't accuse him of trying something with her so she could mug him. That's right. Um, and it would have been his package that that got yanked around and carried in, stuck in a slot. 1943, women's wrestling in Memphis. Who was promoting and what was the scene in Memphis in 43? Uh, it, you know what? 
I don't know that much. I know that Ed Wolf was the promoter in the late 40s, early 50s. Les Wolf. I said Ed Wolf. Les Wolf. And he's the one that sold in 57 to uh, Roy Where Welch and, yeah. and, and the Goulas Welch office. Uh, he, I don't know if he was there as far as, uh, as 1943, but interesting that Mae Young, because Meltzer says nobody can find listings for her wrestling before 1940 because everybody says how she wrestled in, in 1939. Nobody, if so she would have only been a pro for a couple of years at that point. Wow, a rookie, a young May Young here. Something but she still would have been wrestling at the Ellis Auditorium, and if Elvis was alive, actually he was alive, he would have probably been about fucking six years old or whatever at that point. He was probably sneaking in the Ellis Auditorium to watch May Young. Jim, for our next story, let's head up to Toronto, Ontario, Canada, February 7th, 1933. Toots Mont cleared. Toronto, Ontario, February 7th. Joseph Tootsmont, wrestler from Denver, Colorado, was acquitted here yesterday of responsibility in the death of Teresa Lucioni. Mont's conviction for criminal negligence in connection with an automobile accident was quashed by the appellate court here. I had never heard about this before. Did you know anything about this? Well, actually, yes. It was... My God, I've read so much research stuff over the last couple of years, but either it was in the Fall Guys or it was in uh, uh, the New York, the Madison Square Garden book that Scott Teal did, or it, somewhere that he was in the, I think it was as far back as, as the maybe the late 20s, but this may have drug on for a while, but had been in an accident and, and some woman got killed and that derailed some of his wrestling for a while. Obviously, Tootsmont later on would become partners with Vince McMahon Sr. in Capital Wrestling, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. But more importantly, he was a member of the Gold Dust Trio with Strangler Lewis and Billy Sandow and the man who invented the modern way of booking programs, finishes, angles, etc. And also, I, when I would write a column for the Raw magazine uh, under an assumed name because I was a heel manager on camera... I would write under the pen name Joseph T. Mont. I didn't know you wrote for the Raw magazine. I did when they wanted people who knew how to spell and fucking write proper articles. Yes, I did. Well, obviously, you know, beyond the Gold Dust Trio, as a wrestler, how big was Toots Mont? How big of a draw was he? Was he a big star in the places he went? I, well, I mean, he was one of the guys, from what I've read, just from the books that I've read, and obviously there's no film or whatever the fuck, but he was a, a fairly big name when it was just barnstorming wrestlers. There was no structured offices. He was part of developing booking offices, but he was pretty well thought of as being a pretty fair wrestler, but he wasn't at the top level either in box office appeal or in actual you know, he wasn't the best guy. He was used as like a policeman in some cases, I think, in, in his early days before he got in, where he was he was a pretty fair fucking wrestler, but he wasn't a box office draw and he wasn't Strangler Lewis. So he found his niche in the uh, behind the scenes. To any of the listeners who are not really familiar with him, you said that he invented modern booking, etc. What do you mean? Um, it, it, it was his idea to come up with fluke and or uh, disputed finishes that led to rematches. It was his idea that these wrestlers could take this match, especially in the days before communication and even before a lot of people had radio. 
for fuck's sake, they could take the match from town to town and nobody would be any the wiser if they did the same shit or just book the same matches. Uh, the idea of working programs with each other came from that. The idea of building up you not only your champion, but also the top challengers with wins over different people and, and in an organized fashion so that they would meet in a big match. Um, a lot of that came from Toots Munt. Slam bang Western wrestling is what he called the style. We'll talk a little bit more about Tootsmont in a moment, but let's get to our next story, Jim. New York City, January 24th, 1958. Matt for Arena. New York, New York International News Service. The New York Athletic Commission Friday indefinitely banned all professional wrestling exhibitions at St. Nicholas Arena. The suspension stemmed from the commission's investigation into a riot during Wednesday's show in which two men were sent to the hospital. One fan was struck in the eye by part of a broken chair. Six police cars and an ambulance were summoned when fistfights broke out in the crowd. <laughs> During a spirited tag match between Chris and John Tolos and Pat O'Connor and Chief Red Cloud. The commission said that after studying the report of the deputy commissioner in charge of the wrestling show and accounts in the press, we are satisfied that disorderly incidents occurred in violation of our rules covering such situations. Disorderly incidents occurred in violation of our rules covering such situations. That is a very ambiguous statement. Anyway, <laughs> the show scheduled for Tuesday, January 28th was canceled and subsequent shows suspended at least until such time as we are completely convinced that those who promote wrestling there are able to do so in the interests of the public and within our rules, unquote. <laughs> Man, can you imagine how much heat there was in New York at this time? This is just a few months after the riot at Madison Square Garden, which led to children under the age of 14 being banned from Madison Square Garden until the 1970s. And here's a riot. A poor guy gets hit in the eye with a part of a broken chair. <laughs> Six police cars, an ambulance, and a partridge in a pear tree. And, well, Toots Mont's slam-bang Western-style wrestling. New York had been dark. Remember, there was no wrestling in Madison Square Garden from 1939 until 1951. And even though they had kept up the small clubs, St. Nicholas Arena and, and Queens and Jamaica and all those little uh, arenas that you see the ads for, they obviously weren't drawing any big money because they weren't in the big building. And, the, and those buildings, you know, they were clubs. They, you, if you worked the New York area in the 1940s, like Jim the Black Panther Mitchell, you would be in those little clubs and boroughs in those buildings that seated 500 or 1,000 or 1,500. It was like old boxing arenas. So there wasn't big money in wrestling in New York at that time because the 30s had been the exposés. Dan Parker and the Daily Mirror and the publishing of the Fall Guys, and it was all out in the New York papers. And I've just brought this up on Twitter just uh, not long ago that the old newspaper articles of the late 50s covering the garden shows the garden is selling out rock and prez are turning them away Twenty thousand fucking people but the papers are always still making the snide comments you know the the hokum and the hilarity and you know casting the role of the victor and all that stuff because of 20 years earlier everybody in new york still knew that wrestling was but well the newspapers wouldn't let you forget that wrestling was bullshit which is why i think on reflection not that i'm trying to get too deep here when they revived wrestling in the garden, they tried with Luthez and Gorgeous George off the TV and didn't fucking work, right? 
Right. Vern threw 4,000 people. Vern Gagne off Chicago TV. Didn't fucking work. Luthez. What worked? Rocca. Then what worked? Rocca and Perez. And Buddy Rogers, I mean, in any era, Buddy Rogers was huge. But then Bruno. Then Pedro. They set the tone. Rocca set the tone for the idea that New York always needed an ethnic hero on top. The ethnic hero or the the ethnic population, the Puerto Ricans, the Hispanics, the the Italians, a lot of them weren't reading the newspapers. Do you think that Atlanta and and, and the garden suddenly became do you think that there was any other event held at Madison Square Garden that had such a percentage of Hispanics and Italians and immigrants in general? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Fez failed. Uh, Gorgeous George failed. Uh, Vern Gagne didn't get over in New York, but the ethnic stars did because it had been trashed in the papers, but the ethnic audiences weren't reading the English language papers. So then did that even after that would have no longer been an issue, then the, the, the die was cast that New York would always have an ethnic star on top for the next 30 fucking years. The tag team that started this riot, or at least caused the riot, Chris and John Tolis. You know, Bob Barnett grew up in New York, and he told me that when he saw them at that time, he loved them because they were like Neanderthals. And you see those pictures of them, and I understand what he was saying. And I never got to see any young John Tolis, or at least a little bit. There's some footage out there, but he said that they were a dynamic tag team back then. Oh, well, you can tell from John Tolis's work that you can see on tape when he was 50 how he could go and that what kind of shape he was in. And so, and I've seen some old Tolo stuff from the sixties on some of these stray VHSs or whatever that I've, and they were just in good shape, perpetual motion could go. And then Tolos had the big mouth, but he never got to be a star. And the Tolos brothers were a big team in the fifties when, you know, there's no video available. He never got to be a, a, a star on his own until that run with Blassie in Los Angeles. And by that point, Blassie's an old man and Tolis is much older yeah. than, you know, he was obviously when he was in his prime. Yeah, but at least, but see, Tolos was, he could talk. They both could talk and Tolos was still in shape where he could carry the, that part of it. But yeah, the Tolos said they were big in the, in the Carolinas as a team. They were big in the New York area there. And, and that's where I was going with that also is you talked about all the heat. Toots Mons slam bang Western style wrestling. Once he got in, they figured out the, the, Ethnic stars and the Gaga and and the heat. That's how they got New York back and almost lost it, obviously, as you can see from there, because this is a time where they were selling the garden out constantly every month and St. Nicholas Arena and all those clubs. They were all fucking huge. Well, they had to get the garden back for a reason. And for that reason, let's go to our next story. New York, New York, January 3rd, 1934. (laughs) Wrestlers, promoters called for quiz January 9th. New York, January 3rd. Toots Mont, Dick Schickat, Strangler Lewis, and Rudy Miller, wrestlers, and Jack Curley and Ed White, promoters, have been issued subpoenas to appear before the New York Boxing Commission here January 9th following an attack on the mat game as it is conducted by Jack Pfeffer. Pfeffer appeared before the Boxing Commission yesterday and presented a statement attacking the sport and was put under oath, repeating his statement, which named the wrestlers and promoters. Well, there it is. And, you know, here on this episode of the Super Podcast, we're talking about the Knoxville Five tape of guys threatening to expose the business. Here's Jack Pfeffer, who 
exposed the business and still lived in the business for another 30 something years. But this is a pretty major story here, right, Jim? Well, this started the whole thing. And, and we just read in February 1933, Mont got cleared in the auto accident, but he's back January of 1934. He's already obviously heavily figured in with, with Lewis. And this was when uh, was this when they had already split up with Sandow or on the outs with Sandow and Jack Curley was involved as yeah, a promoter? That's what I was thinking, too. Uh, yeah. But um, And Dick Schickhead, of course, was a former world champion. Rudy Miller was probably another guy like Toots Mont. That, if Toots Mont would put uh, Strangler Lewis over, Rudy Miller's the guy that put Schickhead over, and then the, you'd have your big Schickhead-Lewis match. But anyway, Rudy Miller would later on go to be the promoter in Pittsburgh. Jack Pfeffer couldn't get his way so he exposed the business to the commission who back then had no fucking idea what was going on with wrestling even the boxing and wrestling commission didn't know because this was one of the first legitimate and widespread exposés ever of exactly how things were done and it came in new york <clears throat> and then when pfeffer you know couldn't get his way he was apparently the person that was suspected of being the source that was feeding information to the Dan Parker at the Daily Mirror and the newspapers and the sports pages to expose wrestling in New York. And that's where Pfeffer made his reputation for the next 30 years. He would go from territory to territory, book my girls or book my guys or book whoever I'm managing. And if you don't, I'll expose the business. And Jack Pfeffer was managed Don and Jackie Fargo when they were the top team in in New York in the late fifties. I don't know if he was allowed to go to the matches, but he got a cut. He would get them booked places and the, whether it be Nashville or whether, whether he got over so good or whether it be New York where they were great for rock and Perez and or Ohio. Cause that way they could learn from buddy Rogers, but Pfeffer would get a cut of their money, but he kept them booked everywhere. I just talked to uh, Ron Fuller actually about it because his father, buddy Fuller was a world champion for Jack Pfeffer as I think was a buddy, buddy Valentine. Was that it? Because Johnny Valentine was big in Chicago and they were running kind of outlaw fucking revamp of Chicago there in what, 62, 63? Yeah. When Fred Kohler was either, he had lost all his pull and his money or he was out entirely. That was the end of Fred Kohler. Fred Kohler That's brought Jack Pfeffer in and Jack Pfeffer destroyed it to the point where Vern and Bruiser and Snyder were able to go in there and buy everything. That's right. And, uh, but yeah. <laughs> But that this was, you know, 30 years before that. Jack Pfeffer was doing the same thing, but this led to the exposés, the newspaper coverage, and led to no wrestling on a major league basis in New York City for 12 years. Well, for our final story, and I think you'll see where we're going with this, you and I on The Experience sometimes talk about money then versus money now. So for this story, and to find out a little bit about what was going on in that in-between period, let's go to Hollywood, California. December 15th, 1942. Film and sport notables facing tax prosecution. Hollywood, December 15th. United Press. A score of screen and sports figures were named today in federal liens asking payment of allegedly delinquent income taxes. Blonde Madeline Carroll, however, sued the government for deductions. Her suit, the only one against the government among the tax disputes, said she was the sole support of 51 French war orphans who were quartered in her home <laughs> outside Paris from 1936 to 1939. Prince David Medvani, last of the marrying Medvanis who was inducted into the army last week, was asked to pay $1,488. 
William Cagney, producer and brother of James Cagney, assertedly was delinquent $8,023.58. Mr. and Mrs. Alan Mowbray were named for $22.27.15 apiece. Singer Jack Dawn and Mrs. Dawn were asked to pay, and all the little Dawns were asked to pay $2,404.72 each. Misha Auer, the Russian comedian, allegedly owed $11,500.22 from his 1941 income. John R. Osborne, prominent racetrack figure, was short $62,146.42 on 1939 taxes, according to the suit. Wrestler Toots Mont, good God, he's everywhere, was asked for $18,000. Director Ray Carey, allegedly delinquent, $1,213. Actress Phyllis Brooks, $37.51. Ruth Chatterton, $114. Makeup artist Purse Westmore, $3,015. Producer Harry Eddington, $68.57. And comedian Patsy Kelly, $4,374. I hate that Patsy couldn't handle her money. $18,000 in 1942. $265,000 today. Just that he was in delinquent, delinquency on in taxes, and that, this is, is this just for 1941? Well, it doesn't say Oh, no, that. it doesn't say, okay. Yeah. Well, Osborne was short on, and this is the racetrack fucking figure, prominent racetrack figure. I wonder what his real line of work was. <laughs> $62,000 short on his 1939 taxes. I got to get my inflation calculator back up here. <laughs> well, just figure that's a million dollars that he didn't pay. But uh, Tootsmont, okay, yeah, 18 grand worked out to what? 265,000. This was 1942. We know he had been in L.A. Had been 10 years previously. Even if that was for fucking a number of years. But a lot of, you know, this apparently, they wouldn't let you get too far. I see everything from 1939, 1940, 41. And that's what he had to apparently tell them that he made. No, and, that's what he said. That's what he owed. That's not what he made. No, I'm saying that's that's what he that's on what he had to tell them that he actually made. How much did he really make and not because fucking wrestling? How many how many incidents happened that he just got a suitcase of cash handed to him and said, see you later and never declared it to begin with. So he was making some fucking money. And he, I, I have no reason to dispute a lot of the advertising and publicity and and etc back in those days of the 20s and 30s when they said what the world champion would ask for and get as a guarantee because the whole thing was built around it wasn't like a wrestling card it was like can we get strangler lewis to come to the town and defend his world title and we're going to sell tickets to it and we're all going to get rich and he'd get half the fucking gate or whatever so i mean those guys were fucking it was a license to print money I didn't realize just how much money someone like Tootsmont at that point, 42, would have been making. It's really extraordinary. Well, and think about when, when um, the, the story, so the story goes that to get Lewis to agree to drop the belt, the origination of every, all the double crosses that led to the original Montreal double cross, didn't Paul Bowser put up 70 grand? To yeah. get the world champion on Ed or world title on Ed Don George, that's approximately what a million dollars today. A little over that's a about million. a million. I'll yeah. give you this million dollars to let me let my guy win the belt from you, so that I can make money with it, and then when I give it back to you, you know, I, I, what the fuck? 
that was a lot of fucking money. Yeah. Our wrestling money did not uh, evolve with the times like uh, other sports did. Certainly not, but uh, either did this show. So as we begin <laughs> to wrap things up, Jim, any final words to the listeners of the Super Podcast? Yes, don't trust Jack Pfeffer. Thank you. Fuck you and bye. Boom! There it is in the news with Jim Cornette, one of the most popular segments we do here on the Super Podcast, and this was a fun one. You'll be hearing more from Jim, and you'll be hearing more from in the news very, very soon here on the Super Podcast. But as we wrap things up this week, Mike, I can't thank you enough for sitting in, debuting here on the Super Podcast, being the co-host. I certainly want to invite you back to the show very, very soon. As we wrap things up, anything you want to plug? How can the listeners stay in touch with you? How can they hear you? See, anything I want to plug. Yes, 1986 Tajere. I still would like to. <laughs> because, Brian Last, let me tell you something. Much like I love my professional wrestling and much like I love my hip-hop, I still love my porn stars all soft and furry as if it was 1986. Oh, you were whether yes, whether it be my porn stars or my fabulous ones, soft and furry. <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> catch me every day for this type of thing. Mondays Mondays through Fridays at three p.m. Eastern time, six p.m. on Sundays. Wrestling Observer Live with Brian Alvarez and I. You can catch in a multitude of places. I also do the admin Mike Big Audio Nightmare. Uh, both of those things are located up at F4WOnline.com. And uh, you, you, you come for me, stay for Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer Newsletter, which is the real reason you should stick around there. There's a bunch of cool stuff on there, but really it comes down to the newsletter. And, and that's we know where our bread is buttered. That, that right. and those Brian and Vinny shows, if you like that sort of thing. And if you do, eh. but, but, but regardless. <laughs> uh, and I also have dabbled in doing my own podcast, too. I have a, a SoundCloud you know, hopefully I'll start rapping on it as well, too, because that's the rule. used to have a SoundCloud, but I've been putting the shows up there. So every once in a while, I'm putting those out and experimenting and seeing what people want there. So hopefully you can check those out, too. I, I forget the, the URL. Just go to my Twitter <laughs> at SemperVV. And that's about the only social media I got. Check that out. Wrestling Observer Live. But as we wrap things up, a few notes here. Of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at 605pod. You can follow the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter at SuperPodcast. And you can follow me on Twitter, if you so wish, at Great Brian Last. Of course, the Facebook page, facebook.com slash superpodcast, the official online hub for all social media activity of the Super Podcast. See the Travis Heckle artwork, vote for the top 10, get a show update whenever you're thinking, where the fuck is the show? Hey, go to facebook.com slash superpodcast. It's also the best way to message the show. A lot of people always say, hey, how can I get in touch with you? Or sometimes someone will tweet me, hey, I sent you a message and I never heard back. If you're not my friend on Facebook, I didn't see the message. But if you message me at the Facebook page, I will see it. So best way to get in touch with me, once again, facebook.com slash super podcast. If you would like to support the super podcast by wearing a t-shirt with either the super podcast logo or perhaps even the mothership logo, perhaps you don't like to wear t-shirts because you think they're dirty and you want a polo shirt. We got those too, as well as stickers, magnets, and so much more. Go to the official online store for the 605 super podcast. Hey, I got a t-shirt idea. Oh, what's that? I hate to interrupt the plug, but like, you know. And I bought weed from Jerry Gray T-shirt. Hey, I like that idea. <laughs> Maybe it'll come with a sample, depending on the state you are in. But find out more about that next time on the Super Podcast, if Mike doesn't get arrested for making that comment. Of course, the online store, tinyurl.com 
slash superpod store. And thank you to everyone who has recently bought a t-shirt as well as the sticker set. We really do appreciate it here at the Super Podcast. We mentioned it earlier, tinyurl.com slash superpod. Amazon is the best way to support the show. By using that link, you support the show with every single purchase you make at amazon.com after you punch in that link. Once again, tinyurl.com slash superpod. Amazon. If you really like this show and like to make a donation to the production of this show, you could do so in a couple of ways. One, you can go to paypal.me slash superpodcast to make a one-time donation or patreon.com slash superpodcast to make an ongoing monthly donation. And I want to thank our patrons, especially you secret millionaires out there. I really do appreciate your support and patronage of this show. Once again, patreon.com slash superpodcast. Of course, the top 10 was brought to you by our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsor Records, R-A-M-S-E-U-R, RamsorRecords.KungFuStore.com. And don't forget, Samantha Crane, You Had Me at Goodbye, the album that is up for a 2019 Indigenous Music Award. So congratulations to Samantha. And once again, support Ramsor Records because they support your super podcast. And if you do go to iTunes for the show, please leave a positive review and a five-star rating. It really does help this show out. I also want to mention, if you want to mail anything into the show, you could do so. The address, the 605 Super Podcast, P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. That's the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership, P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. The 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For Mike Sempervivi, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! state-of-the-art lighting rigs and sound equipment howard why don't you read the bro- uh the roadie i should say the brody read the uh roadie part for uh for this as we went through <laughs> all right i was just quite i was just trying to surreptitiously read through my position because i knew my chair was gonna squeak <laughs> like a dying whale okay okay oh, Gigi P. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what is going my on my goodness i forgot my own gimmick <laughs> Jujubee! Jujubee! Meh. Bob. I don't know how to do that. I mean, I guess that's how I would do it, right? Meh. Uh, meh. You know what's funny? People never say meh. It's no like, one does. It's like, you don't, you don't say meh. You don't go meh. It's like more of a facial expression, like meh. <laughs> No one says it. You don't go mad. <laughs> okay. You know how you should do it? Like this. Nah. All right. Let me try it again. Okay. Like more guttural. Like more of just like a, a, a motion rather than a word. Everything to your satisfaction, monsieur? Meh. Um, pardon? Meh. <laughs> 
Now that sounded like a constipated cow, yeah, right? Well, there. well, you know what? I have to play it differently the first time because he comes back to it. I have to repeat it the second time. And right, man. think of it like a movie you don't like or something with actual disdain, like meh, meh. Because it's kind of like a moo. It's like a moo or a um. No one something. does this. No one says this like this or does this. They type it. It should be the same inflection as like eh. Like, nah, it's not, it doesn't even, it can't come out. It's weird. It's, but it's not, eh, it's meh. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, no one even says that. It's the ASCII emoticon for a shrug, goddammit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's weird. This script has a lot of challenges. All right. No doubt. Oh, yeah. All right, I'm going to try one more time. All right. Mm. Everything to your satisfaction, monsieur? Meh. Uh, pardon? Meh. <laughs> so, so, hold on, hold on. <sighs> Meh. That's American for no, it wasn't. Matter of fact, it was quite, how do you say, shitty. Dance. We? Oui, that's the word. Shitty. And I'd like to tell your shitty owner how shitty I think his shitty frog food is to his shitty frog face. <laughs> you insult my restaurant? <laughs> you insult my food? <laughs> you insult my restaurant? You insult my food? You insult my restaurant? You insult my food? You insult my restaurant? You insult my food? You son of a bitch! You brought me up here on a recruiting trip. Oh, no, no. oh no, I'm sorry. I wasn't prepared for that one. <laughs> do that one. Oh, one it's time. It. That was great. Do that, okay. Do, yeah, do that one more time. I, I that one. Yeah. Me up. <laughs> oh my god, he fucking chooch. <laughs> I can't stop laughing because I'm reading this and I'm like, this is so stupid. It's funny. <laughs> okay, God, do your mag fucking nip it, and then I'll get me in the mood. Right, god. Right. Mag fucking nificent. You son of a bitch. You brought me up here on a recruiting trip. Are chased by McMahon while Andre cooks some delicious shit on the grill. <laughs> McMahon sees Senior and the joy disappears. Boy, the way they paint this relationship between Howard and Vince. Yeah. Or Howard. Uh, Vince Senior, excuse me. Hold on. <laughs> Okay, we can go forward. Let me see. Is that it for you? That's it for you. Let me. I'm gonna shut off the recorder. Any final words? If I use any of this in outtakes, fab, you fucking licious. I don't know. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hold on. We stopped it. <laughs>